Playing God by Mark Hastings. Copyright 2018 by Mark Hastings. Inspired by and in memory of David Bowie, 1947 to 2016. The Man in Black. Bowie. I honestly thought that I would never tell this story. I thought for the longest time that I would take my memories and my experiences of and with the man in black to the grave. I never even told Neil about him. However, I did tell Layla, our daughter, when she was a little girl, all about the man in black. And about the morning when I was 15 years old, when I was waiting for the bus, when a man who I had never seen before in the flesh, who looked just like David Bowie, Seemingly came out of nowhere and who brought a black cat back to life after it had been run over by a car. And a man who had also brought me back to life as well a few years later. And Layla believed every word, without question. And she even told me that Bowie, as I had called him for all intents and purposes, sounds like a really nice man. I told Layla all about Bowie, the man in black, when she was four years old. However, now she's 20. And every time I ask her about what I told her about him, she always replies, Who? The David Bowie? Or the Bowie who you made up stories about when I was a kid? Made up, I always say. It happened. He was real. Yeah, David Bowie was real. But you never met him, Layla once retorted. To which I replied, Wow, you sound just like your grandmother. And Layla does, worryingly. But... It is okay with me if she doesn't believe me now as she once did. Children grow up. However, not every child has a God looking out for them their entire life. So it is perfectly normal to believe something only to be the figment of someone else's imagination if you yourself had not lived the extraordinary life that I have lived. My name is Susie Elizabeth Eccleston. I'm 39 years old. Neil, my husband, and I still live in the same village where I grew up, in a beautiful little 18th century cottage that we are still in the process of moving into. While Layla, our beautiful daughter, is studying away from home at Cambridge University, and life is as good in every way as it could be. It was while I was sitting in the sun, in my garden, and listening to my music player, as I sat comfortably while enjoying and in awe of the feeling and of the sensation of the sun on my skin, when the next song began playing. Space Oddity by David Bowie. And that was when, for the first time in months, I thought about him. Bowie, the man in black. When I closed my eyes, there he was, looking back at me. However, he appeared different somehow, and slightly older in the face, but still the same man who I had been seeing over and over again throughout my life. Another difference that I noticed was that, where before he used to only wear black, now he was wearing white. A white coat, white trousers. He even had almost white grey hair and he was wearing a black scarf around his neck that was tucked into his coat. Hello, I said in my internal voice, to which he said nothing. He just stood there, looking back at me with a smile on his face. As I imagined him in my mind, I smiled also, both on the inside and on the outside as well. And I hoped that he could see me smiling because I was seeing him again. It's been a while, I continued. Where have you been? 
I was expecting you so ten years ago, I said with a smile on my face, still with my eyes firmly closed. Been busy, I take it? I asked jokingly, however, not really expecting any kind of response. To be honest, it was just nice to see him again. Yeah, a lot of changes have been happening around these parts. Things that not even I thought would happen in my lifetime, nor Layla's for that matter. Hard to make sense of it. But the most surprising thing of all is that we, by that I mean the human race, planet Earth, are still here. You know, every time I see the face of the real David Bowie on an album cover or on a poster, I always smile. And I always think to myself, hey, I knew him. Things really had changed, and I knew that if he were truly listening to me, then he would know how much things had changed better than I. I made the most of every second that I saw his face, so much so that I even believed that if I did not, then when I opened my eyes, I would never see him again. I secretly wondered if this was the same Bowie, my David Black, or just a random image created by my imagination. However, I surmised that if he truly were just a figment of my imagination, then why was I imagining him as if he were older in appearance than he had been the last time I had seen him? You know, when I think back, it's weird to think that you and I may never have met if it had not been for that cat trying to cross the road. I sometimes wonder whatever happened to that cat. Anyway... I have a feeling that I don't know a lot about what is going on all around me. Make that the world, the universe, heaven, hell, under my feet, above the clouds. I may never know. Which, to be honest, is fine and dandy with me. I suppose, on reflection, I don't really know if you were real or if you were just someone who I made up, who I based on David Bowie. I used to think I knew for sure who and what you were, as I have lived and gotten older, I've come to the ultimate conclusion that you are and you will always be my saviour. Whether real or imaginary, you saved my life and you continue to save my life every day. So, Bowie, my man in black, or shall I call you my man in white? My friend, I just want to thank you again for being there for me. I would not be who and what I am now if it had not been for you. I knew that the moment had come for me to open my eyes again and say goodbye. It was a sad way for our story to end. However, I knew that it had to end. I knew that I was not yet ready to let Bowie go completely, but I also knew that I had to. Just as my eyelids flickered and I was about to open my eyes and let the beautiful golden daylight come flooding into my soul, that was when I saw a momentary flash of memory. However, not a memory of mine, but a memory of the man in black as he was when I first saw him. For an instant, I saw myself through his eyes on the day when I was standing and waiting at the bus stop when he brought the black cat back to life. What was that? I asked myself as I asked Bowie. And then, as I slowly opened my eyes wide again, and as I looked into the distance, as my eyes and my vision took a few moments to refocus, there he was, standing in my garden, dressed all in white with a black scarf around his neck, 
just as I had imagined him now to appear. However, as my vision fully cleared, he was gone again, and all that could be seen now where I saw him standing was the vibrant bright colours of the flowers of my garden. If you are listening to this, which you must be since you are, unless the text of this story is somehow being beamed into your mind somehow, I just want to say that I owe you a lot for taking the time to listen to my story. I wrote this story and I am retelling this story now because I need to. I really need to. My story about Bowie, the man in black, and what he did for me and who he will always be to me. Who was he? Your guess is as good as mine. But to be honest, it doesn't matter because to me he was a lifesaver. He was a healer. He was a protector. He was and he still is a god to me beyond all of my understanding. He, Bowie, will always be my man in black. The Black Cat As I write this, I must admit to feeling a little nervous. Why, I hear you ask? Well, in all honesty, I feel nervous about what I'm about to say because I've been waiting to tell this story for a long time. I've been waiting to tell the story of the most incredible man I've ever met in my entire life, all my life, you could say. I've been thinking about this man, I've been seeing this man, I've been with this man. I have had this man's name permanently fixed on the tip of my tongue every minute of every day in some form or another since I was a kid. I remember the first time I saw him as if it were yesterday. I was waiting for the 900 bus at the bus stop outside the stop-and-go convenience store in the small village where I lived all my life. I was 15 years old, and I was standing there with my headphones on listening to one of my favourite songs by one of my favourite bands, Ghost of You and Me by B.B. Mac. It was a mostly sunny day, I guess. There are a few clouds in the sky above, but for the most part the sun was shining. The temperature, however, was a chilly 10 degrees Celsius. It was cold, but it was the norm for an April morning in the middle of England. I even still remember what I was wearing hilariously. A blue stonewashed pair of jeans, a white t-shirt with a black and white photograph of another one of my favourite bands on it, Take That, which my auntie Babs had bought me for my birthday the month before. And I was also wearing my still pristinely coloured and almost glowing white Nike trainers, by which I mean my Nike sneakers, if there are any American readers reading this, which I had spent almost a good hour or so the day before cleaning every inch of down to the sole. I knew that I wasn't hip in terms of fashion sense, but I knew my own style, and I was determined to stick with that same style for as long as I could, no matter how old I was. Back when I was 15 years old, all I wanted was to stay 15 forever. A lot of things can happen to you when you are 15. I mean, a lot of things can happen to you at any time in your life, and they do. But 15, from my experience, which I know is not going to be the same as it would have been for anybody else, at the time was when, yeah, everything changed. And like I said, it all started to change while I was waiting for the 900 bus one slightly overcast but sunny morning in April when I was 15 years old.
that was the day when this happened. I was looking to the other side of the busy main road at the bus stop outside the stop and go store where I was waiting for my bus and directly in front of me, sitting on the driveway of the house on the opposite side of the road, there sat a black cat with the biggest and the greenest eyes I'd ever seen in my entire life looking back at me. It was as if we were in the middle of a one girl, one cat staring contest. No matter what I did, it just kept staring at me. I looked away. It was still looking at me. I turned my head up to the sky and then down to my feet and then to the right to see if my bus was coming and then back to the other side of the road. And yet again, yep, you guessed it, they were still looking at me. I was almost getting a complex to tell you the truth. Did I look like a big monolith of tuna or something? I asked myself. Suffice it to say, this cat had a thing for me. And to this day, I still don't know what or who it saw when it was looking at me. But in the end, I hope that that cat learned the true meaning of the story about how curiosity killed the cat. Because, literally, that is exactly what happened next. From out of nowhere, and almost spontaneously, that same cat who was sitting there and staring at me for a good ten minutes or more, just suddenly decided to stand up and cross the road. And that was when it happened. BAM! A car came racing up the road and hit the cat before it could get to the other side where I was standing and the driver of the car did not even think to stop afterwards to see if the cat was alright. It was shocking. It was horrific. It was honestly and unbelievably upsetting. And had it not been for what happened next, I might well have been scarred for life by what I saw. What happened? More like, who happened? He happened. From out of nowhere, a man in his late twenties, I guess at the time, came from behind me and walked out into the road and he too was almost hit by a white van that just managed to swerve around him and continued driving down the road. He definitely looked late twenties that first time I saw him, or should I say, when he first appeared. He was wearing black jeans, a black shirt, a long black coat. His blonde hair was swept back and side parted to the right. And after he walked out into the road, he then crouched down where the now unmoving and lifeless looking cat now lay. As if he did not have a care in the world, save for this poor cat, and no fear at all for his life or his own safety. I swear to you, everything I'm telling you happened as clear as day and as I still remember it happening. In fact, everything about my story of this amazing man is the God's honest truth, and every word that I and he spoke to each other I still remember word for word as if it happened yesterday. As he crouched down, the man in black then reached down and picked up the lifeless body of the black cat, and still without any fear of any kind and without any reservation at all, he proceeded to kiss the cat on its forehead, and within a matter of seconds the cat began to convulse. And just as the mysterious man in black walked to the other side of the road to where the cat had originated from, he sat them down back in the same spot where they had been sitting and staring at him. The cat then opened and closed its eyes again. However, it wasn't dead. Even from where I was standing, I could see that. I just stood open-mouthed and stunned and in shock by what I had just witnessed. I could see the cat. It was breathing and looked more like it was about to fall asleep. 
The man in black then crouched down again to rub the black cat on the head, and then he stood up and made a move to walk away, as if nothing had happened. And then he stopped. For a few seconds he just stood there on the other side of the road, on the pavement, with his hands in his coat pockets, just looking up to the sky above the rooftops of the nearby houses. He had his back slightly to me, so I could not see his face entirely, but even I could tell that he was smiling to himself for some reason. And that was when he suddenly turned around and looked directly at me. His green eyes almost glowed like that of the cats he had just saved, however not as feline-like. When he stared at me from the other side of the road, I could tell that he knew me somehow, even though I knew that I did not know him from Adam. And then I looked away just as my bus was fast approaching in the distance. I looked at my bus, but then I quickly looked back across the road to look at the man in black again. However, he was nowhere to be seen. The only thing that remained on the other side of the road was the now resting black cat, who seemed to have been given a fresh set of nine lives. My bus pulled up in front of me, and its double doors opened to reveal the bus driver waiting to accept my fare. But the thing was, I was still in shock. How could I not be? All I could think about was, who was that guy? What had just happened? I could not even remember where I was going, nor why I was going there. Everything had changed. Later on, when I got home, and while I was sitting in my bedroom thinking about everything that I had seen for the millionth time, I thought about telling the newspapers and getting a story written and published about the man in black who saved the black cat. But I didn't. I never got the bus. I never went to town. I never met up with my friends. I walked. And I walked. And then I walked some more. All morning. Until three o'clock that same afternoon when I finally returned home. And I was greeted by my mum who was doing the ironing in our living room while simultaneously watching an Australian soap opera called Neighbours on TV. She was addicted to that show, and to ironing also, as well as to the, all the other soap operas that she used to watch almost religiously from morning till night. When I walked into the living room, I was exhausted, out of breath, still in shock and I just allowed myself to fall down backwards onto the couch. My mum did not even bat an eyelid, and just continued to be glued to the TV screen. It wasn't until I burst into tears that she turned her head slightly to look in my direction. Bad day, babe? My mum asked, while still ironing and while still focusing as much of her attention on the television as she could, so as to make sure that she did not miss a second of the storyline that was being played out on the screen directly in front of her. You could say that, I replied, as I sat there on the couch and just stared out into space. I saw a cat get hit by a car and die, and then I saw the same cat brought back to life by a man in black as if nothing had happened, I said, as I described the thing that still continued to haunt my every waking thought. That's nice, babes, my mum replied instantly, still continuing to watch her soap opera on the TV. Mum! I screamed, as what she had just said finally sunk in after a couple of seconds, as I turned to look at her with a frown and with a feeling of genuine hurt. She never truly listened to me, 
especially not when she was watching her soaps. What? My mum replied as she turned away from the television screen finally to look at me while settling the iron down on my dad's white shirt that she was currently ironing. Did you hear what I said? I asked through a flood of tears. Of course I heard you. You, um, you... My mum replied in a distracted tone of voice as she picked up the iron that had been settled down on the white shirt before it could leave a scorch mark on it. You said something about a cat, didn't you? Mum, I saw a cat get killed, die, and then get brought back to life, I said in a shrill tone of voice, feeling as if I were a volcano on the verge of exploding. You saw a film about a cat that comes back to life? My mum asked as she turned over my dad's white work shirt while still continuing to appear to be focused on me. No, not a film. I actually saw this happen. I was waiting for the bus, just minding my business when, bam! A cat that was sitting across the road from me just bolted across and then got hit by a passing car. And then this guy just came from out of nowhere and walked out into the road, picked up this cat and then laid it down on its own four paws again. And the cat was fine. It was like a hallucination or something. It was like a dream, but it really happened. I swear to God. That cat got smushed when it got hit. And then a few seconds later, it was having a catnap, I explained. However, even to me, it sounded a little far-fetched. And I was the one who actually saw it all happen. Was this guy good looking? My mum replied with a smile, before slowly turning her head and her attention back towards the TV again, while simultaneously folding my dad's white shirt and laying it down next to me, and then picking up another shirt from the clothes basket and began ironing it. Mum, I'm not making this up. I saw it all. And... To be honest, the guy that I looked like, I don't know, he looked, he looked, anyway, who cares what he looked like? He brought a cat back to life, unsmushing a very smushed black cat. I still can't believe it actually happened, but it did happen, I replied, as I repeatedly envisioned and relived the memory of the cat and its green eyes, the cat getting hit, and then the man in black, as if it's in slow motion. Maybe the cat hypnotised you somehow, my mum then randomly replied, to which I instantly rolled my eyes. Paul McKenna, he hypnotises people with the flick of a finger. Even the ancient Egyptians believed that cats are creatures of both life and death. They worship them like gods, you know, mum said with a smile and with raised eyebrows. I, however, was annoyed, but secretly impressed by my mum's insightful retort and explanation to my description of the events that I had witnessed involving the black cat and the man in black. I sat silently on the couch for a few moments, thinking about what my mum had said. You may have been daydreaming for you know, or hypnotised, like I said. By the cat? I accidentally screamed. Maybe, my mum replied with a smile. She still thought I was joking or describing a dream that I had had. I knew she did, but in all honesty, who could blame her? 
Would I believe someone if they told me a story like the one I just told my mum? Probably not. What if the cat had hypnotised me? No, I said aloud as my frustration exploded. The rest of the afternoon and the following evening also was filled with similar back and forth conversations between my mum and I. And we ultimately both came to the same unified opinion that whoever the man who I had definitely seen, who definitely came from out of nowhere and who definitely brought the black cat back from the dead, I was the only one who was 100% convinced was real. After finally having something to eat, a microwave pizza that my mum had made for me, and after finally climbing the stairs to my bedroom and then falling head first onto my bed, I was able to truly lie down and rest and think about everything again. I fell into the deepest sleep I'd ever had and I dreamed of something that until that day I had never dreamed of nor had ever imagined. I dreamed that I was a cat, but not the same cat as the cat that I had saw come back from the dead. No, I was a white cat. And how do I know that I was a white cat? Well, let's just say that nothing was left out of my imagination and I pretty much did what every cat does. Days came and went. The sun rose and the sun set more times than I could count before I ventured to think about the man in black again, the black cat, or the dreamlike day that I had had. The cat dream that I had dreamed was also never mentioned to anyone. I had this fear that if I told another living soul about any of what I had seen, both awake and in dreams, then they might think that I had gone mad. Then, one freezing December evening, while my parents and I were having a meal in a restaurant to celebrate my dad's birthday, something shocking and unexpected happened. A man and a woman were at a table at the far end of the restaurant from where we were sitting, but not too far away so that they could not be seen in full view, when the man suddenly started to convulse and shake. The entire restaurant began to panic and jump to their feet, and then, just as I was staring directly at the man who was obviously having some kind of attack or an allergic reaction, that was when, from out of the corner of my eye, I saw him walk into the restaurant and approach the man having the attack. Instantly, he reached out his right hand onto the right shoulder blade of the man who was sitting in his chair at the table as his companion looked on in horror. I could not believe my eyes. Him. Him. The man in black. Everybody was still looking at the man having the allergic reaction. Attack. I, however, could not take my eyes away from the man in black, who looked in every way just as he had the last time I had seen him, when he brought the black cat back from the dead and gave them another set of nine lives. I just wanted to run over to him. I wanted to yell at the top of my lungs, It's him! I wanted to take my mum's head in my hands and turn her attention towards the man in black. However, I did nothing but look on in complete fascination and in awe with the biggest grin on my face. The man stopped convulsing almost immediately as soon as he had put his hands on him and when the man opened his eyes again and breathed deep and finally caught his breath the man in black then turned around and walked away and went to leave the restaurant. I could not contain myself nor restrain myself any longer from running after the man in black and following him straight out the door of the restaurant and outside into the street where he was waiting for me. 
He was looking straight at me as he stood directly in the middle of the road outside the restaurant with his hands in his coat pockets. Hello, said the man in black finally with a smile, after maybe twenty seconds of just silently standing there in the road. His voice sounded like I had expected it to. The closest comparison that I can come up with would be to say that he sounded like a cross between David Bowie and, well, David Bowie. He looked like David Bowie also. Hello, mysterious, strange, weird man in black who likes bringing cats back from the dead and scaring the living daylights out of people. One person in particular, actually, namely me. By the way, can I do something? I asked with a smile as I stared at him completely mystified and yet intrigued, still trying to figure out whether he was real or imaginary. Of course, be my guest. But before you ask me to bend down and before you slap me around the face to see whether I'm in fact real or imaginary, can I ask you something? Would you please try not to hit me so hard? He replied as if he had just read my mind, and as if he knew what I intended to do before even I knew what I was about to do. You were going to slap me around the face, were you not? He asked with a smile. Was I? Am I? Will I? I asked, as I took a slight back step away from him, while completely wide-eyed and awestruck. His hair, his face, blonde, fair-skinned, his eyes, his smell, blue, intoxicating. How do you know? Well, maybe not now, when you were originally going to, but soon, perhaps? Some things are inevitable. However, saying that, some things are not as inevitable. Well, not yet. Not until the time is right, of course. I couldn't hear anything, nor anyone else but him. His voice, his words. His face, his gaze was like something out of this world. Susie Elizabeth Eccleston, my face is at your hand's disposal whenever you need it to be, he said with a smile and with a slight bow of the head. How do you know my name? Have you been stalking me or something? Are you a private detective? A copper? A psychic? Were you the one who stole my bus pass when I was twelve? I asked with a grin as I rattled off all of the potential identities of the man in black that came to my mind at the time. Maybe, replied the man in black without hesitation. Maybe what? I replied with a confused look on my face. Maybe I am who you think I am and maybe I am not, he replied with a smile. Maybe you are and maybe you aren't what? You can't possibly be all of the things and all of the people who I said you might be all at once, I replied, believing that he was just having a bit of fun with me here and wanted me to discover who he was after I had chased him around the houses, so to speak. Why not? Why can't I be any or all of the potential people who you think I am at the same time? Because that would be weird. Because that would be creepy. Because that would be insane. Because that would be, well, not possible, I explained as I fought off the sensation to burst out laughing. But what if that were the case? 
What if I could be someone else at the exact same time that I am the man who you see before you? Just as you are someone else, as well as being someone else, he replied with a riddle, which I was sure he wanted to use only to confuse me more than I already was. What? You don't even know me from Belinda down the road, apart from you know my name. And how do you know that again? Riddle me this, Mr. Riddler. How can someone know someone else if they have never met before? Also, how can a man bring a man, not to mention a cat, back to life like it was nothing, and without even breaking a sweat? You really want to know? Now? Here? He asked, as he stood in the road in almost complete darkness, save for the shine of the streetlights on his head and his sparkling eyes. Yeah. I really want to know, I replied with a smile and with my arms folded out in front of me and with a slight tilt of my head. But what if I'm not yet ready to tell you, he asked with a similar smile to my own, with his arms folded out in front of him and with his head tilted slightly to the side also, as if mocking my current stance. Some things and some people should be kept secret for as long as they possibly can he said, as he unfolded his arms and he began to walk backwards across the road, not even looking in either direction for any oncoming traffic that may be approaching. I, however, looked in both directions, left and right, over and over again, but I did not see anything nor anybody. My reckoning at the time was that he either did not know the Green Cross code on how to cross a road, or he did not need to. What the hell are you doing? What if someone comes out of nowhere and knocks you down? I asked with genuine terror written all over my face. Susie, listen to me. I want you to really listen and understand what I'm going to tell you. I heard the man in black shout from the other side of the road where he was now standing directly opposite from me. I'm listening. But why do you have to be on the other side of the road to ask me this? What I am sure is a very important question, I replied, as I too shouted across the road, and made sure to listen to every word that he spoke and commit them to memory as if they were a part of me. Things are about to change. The world, you, in ways that nobody could ever be ready for. But the thing is, what is going to happen has to happen. Ripples in a pond that will come to be because of a drop in the ocean of life and the universe that happened a long time ago. The entire planet will go through a time of uncertainty, but everybody will get through it, and everything will be alright. I promise, explained a still smiling man in black. Okay, I replied with a confused expression on my face, having little to no understanding of what he was telling me and why it mattered. Anything else? I asked. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to live your life. It's okay to be yourself. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Believe me, everything will be okay said the man in black, just before the number 42 raced past and momentarily obscured my view of him for a few seconds, before disappearing and seemingly taking the man in black with it, because he was no longer on the opposite side of the road where he had been standing on the pavement. 
I was disappointed. However, I was not surprised that the man in black had disappeared and he had with such dramatic flair. I stood there in silence for a few minutes, turning over and over in my mind what the man in black had just told me. I had no idea whatsoever what he had meant by what he had said to me. Even then, I knew that he had told me all that he had for a reason, perhaps as some kind of warning. I knew that this time, just as the last time, would not be the final time that I would see the mysterious man in black. And believe me, it wasn't. Far from it. But I had no idea when nor where that next meeting would take place. And what happened next? The when and the where the man in black re-entered my life, I am only now finally fully recovered from. I stood looking across the road to the spot where the man in black had been standing for a few minutes more before I sighed. I smiled and then I turned around and I re-entered the restaurant and I was reunited with my mum and dad. It wasn't long afterwards that the world did change, just as the man in black had prophesied. What happened? Well, this happened, as a matter of fact. I died. The luck stops here. September 11, 2001 happened. The world changed. The world shuddered violently. Lives were lost on an unimaginable scale. And I? I lost my dad. My dad wasn't in either of the World Trade Center towers or even in New York City or on any of the planes that were used as weapons of mass destruction. However, he might as well have been. My dad died of a heart attack while he was driving himself to pick up his brother, my uncle Bill, from the airport. He ended up crashing into another car and flipping his car over onto its roof somehow. Most people remember September 11, 2001 or 9-11 as the day that the world came to a standstill following what felt like a worldwide terrorist attack. But I will always remember it as the day that my world and my family's world came crumbling down. It was excruciating. It was soul destroying. It was heartbreaking. My mum and I were never the same after my dad died. It was impossible to ever go back to how things were because to us and to everybody who knew him, my dad was the one who was always there when he was needed and he would do anything for anybody. I would sit up in bed for days and nights just continuously crying. My mum would stay up all through the night and drink and then she would sleep all day long. More than once I hoped and I prayed that I could reach out and find the man in black who I had seen bring a cat back from the dead and who had saved a man from dying, both right in front of me. But for all my hopes and prayers, he never once paid me a visit. It was maybe a month after Dad died that I started putting into words how I was feeling into notebooks, and I even started to listen to more dark music, as my friends at the time called it. However, to me, the music that I was listening to wasn't dark at all. To me, it was honest and heartfelt, and it was echoing exactly what I was feeling and going through physically and emotionally. 
I admit that at the time I did do things to myself that I regret doing now. But each time I did it, it was exactly what I needed to do so that I could feel something. Anything but numb. I needed to release what was inside of me that I felt like it was burning me alive from the inside out. It was the April the 21st, 2003, while I was out with friends at an all-night rave called The Luck Stops Here. Just as I was sitting down at a booth in the club where the rave was being held, that the shadow of someone fell upon me. And as I stared up at who was standing over me, though for a moment or two I was too intoxicated to clearly recognise their identity until they reached out their right hand to touch me on the shoulder, that was when the club, the rave, the rest of the world came to a standstill and time stopped and everything went from deafeningly loud to unbelievably silent. And within seconds my head cleared completely as I looked up and stared directly into the eyes of the man in black who looked just as he had on the two previous times that I had seen him in the flesh. When he opened his mouth and he said, Hi Susie, to me. I almost immediately broke down in tears. Why? I said finally, after what seemed like minutes of me rubbing my eyes and spreading my black mascara all over my face. I must have looked like the oddest and most anorexic panda that anyone would have ever seen in their entire life. Though he did not reply instantly, I knew that he knew what I was asking and why. I did not say anything further until I stood up from the booth of the club and I was guided by the man in black out of the rave and past everybody else who still remained frozen in time and almost like statues being held in place by a stream of energy that resembled an infinite rainbow of colour. When we were finally out in the street, outside the club, the man in black took off his long black coat and threw it around me and we walked through the darkness of the night. Why? I asked again, as I walked alongside the man in black down Churchill Street towards Lennon Park. I felt like I was dreaming or hallucinating at first, especially since the man in black did not respond immediately to my question. I was so overwhelmed with emotion and confusion that I could not for a second make sense of anything that was happening even now, I could not fully describe how lost I felt at that moment. And then, he spoke. I know that you want answers. I know that you have been through a lot over the last few years. And I know that you want to know who I am. But Susie, you are not yet ready to know some things. I know that you are in pain. I know that you hoped and prayed that I might return sooner and maybe even help you come to terms with the tragic loss of your father. I'm so sorry that you lost your dad, Susie. I really am. But I'm here now to remind you of something important, said the man in black, as I sat down on a bench in Lennon Park next to him, me still cloaked in his long black coat. The finish line is also the starting line of a race. Birth and death go hand in hand. Losing something or someone helps us find other things. In other words, 
If you keep going in a particular direction without deviation, then there will come a day when you will find yourself exactly where you began and starting something all over again. Life is tentative. Happiness can quickly turn into sadness and vice versa, said the man in black as he put his right arm around me and he held me tight to try and settle me down as tears again fell from my eyes one after the other. When you are a child, you cannot quantify death and what it means. But you know that the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to you would be to lose your parents. And even the thought of such a possibility is more frightening than any nightmare that a child might have. Sometimes children say things to their parents. Things that they quickly take back and feel unbelievably guilty about saying. However, the simple act of saying something out loud is incredibly powerful. More so than I think people realise. And in turn, like a voice in a tunnel, it creates echoes. The man in black was trying his best to explain to me the groundwork of the entire universe, but at the time nothing sunk in. However, after the fact, and even now, I still remember every word that he said as if they were the pieces of a puzzle that I could put together now and forever without even thinking. Most people dream and wish for things to happen, and nine times out of ten, whatever someone dreams of or wishes for does not come to pass exactly as they had envisioned it would. And then there are people like you who are special, shall we say. People who are not like the vast majority of the world. People who share a connection and who have a power within them to influence the world. In other words, you can create your own bubbles and echoes of reality by just thinking something and in turn change the colour of the fabric of the world. As I sat listening to his Davy Bowie-esque sounding voice, it was at this time that all I wanted to do was fall asleep on the man in black's shoulder. But I couldn't, even if I wanted to, because I was being prepared for a journey without even knowing it. And then I mustered up a question from deep within me, one that I had been waiting to ask since I saw the man in black bring the black cat back to life. Am I going to die? Everybody dies, the man in black immediately replied. Are you the angel of death or something? I asked. The man in black laughed. More like the angel of life, he replied with a smile as he looked down at me, cuddled up next to him. Are there others like you? I asked as a sudden shiver came over me and made me momentarily shake myself out of the man in black's embrace. Just as there is only one of you, there is only one of me. However, there are others who share the same skin tone, you could say. The man in black replied as he made sure that his black coat was still covering me enough to keep me sufficiently warm and unable to completely feel the biting cold of the twilight air of the morning. Why do I keep seeing you? Are you here to save me too? I asked as a new possibility popped into my head as to why I kept seeing the man in black. Like the black cat? Like the man in the restaurant? It was then that I turned and looked him straight in the eye. Susie, I already have, said David Bowie. I mean, 
the man in black, who looked the spitting image of David Bowie now more than ever, and as if his answer had been teetering on the tip of his tongue for as long as we had known each other. How? When? I asked, as another tear rolled down my face. Just then, in the club, when you died, and I brought you back to life, the man in black replied immediately with a wide-eyed look of enthusiasm and self-assurance. What? I said internally, however so loudly that I thought that even he might be able to hear. Pardon? What? What the hell? I asked, as my eyes grew wide, as I lifted myself up from the bench slightly and looked down at the still comfortably seated man in black. Oh, I'm quite serious, Susie. You died. Well, you died for what might only measure as a second linearly. I always knew when and where it would happen, even before the instant that I first saw you and you saw me step out into the road from behind you. I knew one day that I would be the one who was meant to save you. The man in black got up from the bench and then he stood with his hands in the pockets of his trousers looking down at me and as I looked back at him with eyes as wide as coffee mugs. Wait a minute. What? I died? Don't you think that if that had happened I might, you know, know it? I asked with a look of total confusion on my face. Since when do people know that they have died until they are told that they have? The man in black replied. Some people, you for example, die, but are brought back to life before they know they have died. The man in black explained, as a stomach full of anger began to erupt within me. Hang on. Hang on. Hang the hell on. What? Is this another one of your riddles? Because if it is, then I'd rather go back into the club with my friends, I said, as I stood up from the bench and allowed the man in black's coat to fall onto the ground behind me. I was now standing eye to eye with him, as a million and one questions ran through my mind, and as every emotion known to man surged through every fibre of my being. You are not going anywhere, Susie, said the man in black with a smile. Oh yeah? Watch me, I said with a grimace, as I began to walk away from the man in black and out of Lennon Park. Susie, wait! The man in black shouted, before he took a hold of my right forearm from behind me and turned me around on the spot. I immediately broke away from his grip and pushed him away from me. Get away from me! Who the hell do you think you are? I snapped with anger in my voice. You turn up now after all this time and you think you can tell me what to do? And you spout all this crap about you saving me? You are not an angel. You are nothing. And I don't care who you look like. You are no David Bowie. I said, almost screaming into the man in black's face. And then I started to walk away again. What? The man in black shouted from behind me. You heard me, I replied as I quickened my walking pace. Susie, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about your dad. He was a good man, the man in black shouted, as a response to which I was instantly stopped in my tracks. I still continued to face the opposite direction from the man in black, 
but I could still feel him and I could still see his face in my mind's eye. Who the hell are you? I mean it. If you don't tell me right now what game you are playing with me and with my family, then I'm going to turn around and stick my size 6 high heels so far up where the sun doesn't shine that you will never sit down straight again. I replied with a heartbroken tone of voice, tinged with an almost murderous rage. Earlier today, you and your friends were hanging out, as how I believe the term goes, and you each ingested the white line of a drug called cocaine. One hour ago, in the women's bathroom of the club you were just in, you and your friend locked yourselves in just long enough to snort some more cocaine, which in turn narrowed and decreased the levels of oxygen to your heart and would have ultimately led to you having a heart attack had I not intervened when I did. The man in black's voice boomed as if I had two speakers next to my ears and his voice was all that I could hear. I found you. I purified you. I gave you more life. I saved you from yourself. The man in black was now standing directly behind me, so close that I could almost feel his breath on the back of my neck. It was your friend's idea. She will soon become addicted to something far worse than drugs, and she too will have her own moment of death. However, I do not know how many more days she has left, nor whether she will be saved also. Your friend, Rebecca will soon become addicted to death itself, and that addiction is harder to break free of, more so than any drug, and especially when you lose everything that matters the most to you, the man in black explained quietly, as he slowly walked around me in circles. Becca, I said in a whisper, you can't save her, and nor can I. If she is to be saved, then I cannot tell you how or when, but what I do know is that the way that she responds to the things that have happened to her and the way that she will respond to the things that have yet to happen to her are all based upon where her life began, her upbringing, her family, her heart, just as yours is and has always been. This is insane. I feel like since my dad died that the entire world has just fallen apart and it just continues to fall apart. I wish I could tell people just how much I don't want to be here anymore, I said through a flood of tears as I stared at the man in black standing right in front of me. And then there's you, I said with frustration in my voice. Your whole disappearing act, your whole riddle me this garbage. And you telling me that you brought me back to life before I even had a chance to die? Susie, I know. I've always known. That is why I'm here. I've always known that I was going to save you from yourself. I've been watching you from the shadows since the day you were born. You had a full head of hair when your mother gave birth to you. The man in black explained as he looked at me and almost appeared to be staring right through me as if he had x-ray vision as well as the vision to be able to look straight into my soul. You have more to do. You have more life to give. 
you have more people to meet. And though you may not see me, I am always with you and watching you from a distance, at the same time that I am standing one step behind you. I just ask you to do one thing for me. Go home. Go to bed. Dream and then get up in the morning and do what you must do. And no matter how much you may want to, do not look back over your shoulder too much. Because if you do, then you may not see what is right in front of you and what you need to find. It was then that the streetlights and the illuminated signs began to flicker rapidly and I knew who was responsible. I knew that he was readying himself to disappear from my life again until the next time. And when I closed my eyes and then opened my eyes again, I expected the man in black to have disappeared, and he had. However, the person who I now saw standing right in front of me, although their appearance from out of nowhere was a complete and utter surprise, was one of great joy and one that made me smile. That was the instant that I first saw Neil. The gods are angry. The first time I saw Neil, he was waiting for the 101 bus, the night bus on George Road at what must have been one o'clock in the morning, and he was the first person I saw after the man in black had disappeared again. The man in black, the same man who I'd been seeing over and over again since I was a child, and who bore a striking resemblance to David Bowie, so much so that in my mind, instead of referring to him as the man in black, I simply called him Bowie. Neil had just got off work. He worked in a car factory where they made these huge 4x4 vehicles that, when fully assembled, were sold for more money than Neil could earn in a year. Neil liked his job. He used to tell me that it is just like building a car made out of Lego, just with more wires, more glass and with more than a thousand different bolts and things that were designed and built individually, but were designed and made so that they could work in unison with something else. Neil was smart. He still is. Neil was incredibly passionate about everything, and though to me his job sounded very robot-like and mechanical, I was still incredibly impressed by how Neil described what he did for a living. When he and I were waiting for the night bus, and when we rode it together, Neil and I instantly began smiling and talking to each other. At the time, for all I knew, Neil could have been someone up to no good, especially at that time in the morning, and initially, I confess, that thought might have crossed my mind. However, there hasn't been a day and a night since we first met that we have spent together when I have not looked at him and fell in love with him over and over again. He was, and he still is, the kindest and the sweetest man I have ever known. A week after we first met under the illumination of the streetlights of George Road, Neil and I had our first official date. A month after, Neil and I were engaged. We even returned to the same spot where we first met and we both first laid eyes upon one another. And that was where Neil proposed to me. A year after, Neil and I were living together and expecting our first child, Layla. It was five years after Neil and I first met that we, Neil, Layla and I, went on holiday to Florida. We were all staying in the same room at the Comfort Inn Hotel in Florida, 
when one early morning in September, I left Neil and Layla sleeping in our bed in our hotel room, and I went out to the swimming pool to take a walk and to go for an early morning swim. However, when I arrived at the swimming pool, that was when I saw a familiar face laying down on one of the sun loungers and reading a worn-out copy of A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking, still wearing both the same face that was the spinning image of David Bowie and also the same black attire that he had been wearing every time that I had seen him since I was a girl. Some things never change, and neither do some people, namely the man in black or Bowie, as I had begun to call him more recently although there was definitely something different about him this time around. Long time no see, David, I said with a smile as I cast a shadow over him as he lay. He never moved a muscle. Hey, Bowie, you reading or you sleeping? Still no response. It was then, still with a smile on my face, when I decided to play along and sit down next to the man in black on the sun lounger to his right, and it was as I sat down as, as I looked at him as he lay on his lounger, awake and seemingly reading, that I reached out and touched him on the forearm and I said, Thank you. Thank you? He replied immediately, however quietly. For what? He asked, still looking at his Stephen Hawking book. You know. I replied with a smile, as I recalled in my mind the last time that I had seen him before he had disappeared before my eyes on George Road back in England, just before I first laid my eyes on Neil, on a night that I could not and would never forget for the world. That night, which was to slightly paraphrase Charles Dickens's most famous quote from one of his most memorable stories, A Tale of Two Cities, the best of the times and the worst of times. No thanks needed, he replied with a smile, before finally lowering his book to allow the sun to shine on his face. And that was a long time ago, he said in a downbeat tone of voice, like I had never heard him speak before. I was worried for some reason. He was different. It has been a while. Where have you been? I asked still with a smile on my face so as to not show any kind of worry on my part as I tried to analyse his face and figure out what was noticeably bothering him. Oh, I've been around. I've been busy, you could say. Did you miss me? He asked with an awkward smile as he spoke. However, he continued to stare up at the blue sky above. Of course I did. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. If I knew you were here, we would have come sooner, I replied with a wide smile and a spark of joy in my eyes. I had missed him, and I had wondered many times over the last five years if and when I would ever see him again. Huh. Yeah, that is the funny thing about time, I guess. Once it's gone, you can't get it back. Five years? Really? If I told you how long it had been for me since the last time I saw you, it would probably make your eyes water. Even more than they already are, he replied in a more apologetic tone of voice now. How long has it been? There can't be that much of a time difference. You haven't aged a day. Appearances, like most things, can be deceiving, Susie. 
Asking how long it has been is like asking, why do we fall in love? Why is time different for me than it is for you? Well, because I age very slowly, as does the universe. However, things happen in the universe at an accelerated pace than how they are perceived, especially from far away. His voice, his face, his eyes. Bowie, I said to myself. I was completely entranced, and in all honesty, I did not realise all that he was saying until a long time after. There was a sudden overcast of dark grey clouds that slowly came together above our heads, and within minutes the sky that had been an unbroken blue sky was almost as black as the night sky or the colour of the man in black's clothes. The sound of thunder then echoed from every direction. I looked around and above with an intensely worried expression on my face at what was happening. He must be doing this, I thought. This wasn't a normal storm that Florida was periodically known for. And then my friend, the man in black, said something that sent a shiver down my spine worse than I had ever felt the sensation of before. The gods are angry. They're coming. They're coming for you. Why? I asked with a frown, and a little taken aback. Because I saved you. Because I saved all the people I have saved over the centuries. Because I was born with a power, but told not to use that power. And because saving all of the lives that I have saved has created ripple effect after ripple effect. That have changed the very face of the universe more times than even I know, apparently. Which, if true, and it is. I'm pretty proud of that, actually. You shouldn't be here, and neither should I, replied the man in black, as he sat up on the sun lounger and then turned around while still seated to face me. After every time that I saved someone, I was punished. I was taken to a place, an interstellar deserted island, you could say, and I was left there until I was deemed ready to return to reality so that I could observe and interact with the physical universe, meet people and learn from life, but never interfere. Even we, my kind, never stop learning, and life and people are always surprising us. I've always believed in second chances, third chances, a million chances, and I am not and I have never been someone who has played by the rules. I always believed that if you let things happen naturally, then everything will turn out better than it would than if you were to follow a plan or a blueprint. Seeing the man in black as he was now, with his head down and an expression of sadness on his face, almost brought me to tears. I know that I've been asking you this question for a long time, but with everything that is happening, I really need to know. Who are you? What is going on? And what the hell is coming? I asked, slightly agitated, as I thought of Neil and Layla still sleeping in our hotel room with no idea of what was happening. I am me. I am who you see. I'm not David Bowie, even though, as you say, I do bear a striking resemblance to him, the man in black replied with a smile like that of a sad clown. But, essentially... I'm someone who wants everyone to live forever. 
I guess my biggest flaw is that I hate saying goodbye. I get incredibly attached to people, like you, Susie. And I want you to know something, Susie. You are not going anywhere but back to your room and back to your wonderful family. But what is going on? I asked instead of complete and utter confusion. You said that you saved my life, and to me, you literally did. But I don't understand. Why me? Why me and not my dad? Why some people and not all? I'm guessing that you are unbelievably powerful. I don't know if you are an angel or a god of some kind. Sounds to me like you decided to play God because you could, without ever thinking about the repercussions. I don't want to sound ungrateful or, or sound judgmental, especially as someone who saved my life, but as someone who has lost people who they have loved more times than I can remember, and as someone who went through a period of self-hate, self-abuse and addiction, and who has come through the other side, I can tell you that you have a problem. You said it yourself, you hate saying goodbye. If you had your way, no one would die. And even though the last time I saw you, I gave you the hardest time about not being there to save my dad. Looking back and having lived the life I have lived has taught me that everything, every life and every death happens for a reason. It hurts to lose people. It hurts like nothing else when you have to watch a loved one slip away but it is what has to happen, I said, with as much passion as I could bring to the surface and with every word exploding from my mouth as if they were the true music of both my mind and my heart. A single tear fell from my right eye. I've been waiting a long time to say that, and I've been waiting a long time to realise that. It was then that the heavens opened, literally, you could say and it began to rain down on the man in black and myself. You're right, Susie. You're right, said the man in black with a smile that told me so much and which meant so much to me before he closed his eyes and he dropped his head to the ground. This might be it. This might be when I take my final curtain call. The man in black then stood up, now completely soaking wet by the falling rain, as was I and he patted himself down and ruffled his hair. And you know what? I don't mind at all. If this is the place, and if this is the time, where and when I have to finally say goodbye, then I am happy. Because I am here with you, Susie, said the man in black with a smile, as he opened his eyes again, and he looked longingly at me. The same exact smile as the first smile that I ever saw him wear when I watched him from the other side of the road while I was waiting for my bus at the bus stop in my home village. But you said they were coming for me, I replied, as I too stood up and stared the man in black straight in the eye. No, I'm the one they want. I'm the one who won't and I am the one who can't stop changing the world. I'm the one who has to be stopped once and for all. But, like I said, it's okay. And if I were to be reborn, and if life were to be reset from how I had made it to be, then if given the choice to do it all again, or not, then I know that I would still make the same choices and do all that I did over and over again. 
every life is worth saving. Nobody deserves to die needlessly. If you have the power to do something good, then why would you not? The man in black continued to smile before he turned and walked towards the swimming pool and stared at his own reflection in the water that was constantly being distorted by the falling raindrops and by the ripple effects that were created and affecting the surface of the water more times than could ever be counted. The man in black turned around to face me again before smiling and then closing his eyes and allowing himself to fall backwards into the pool of water behind him. The man in black disappeared from view instantly, and when I ran over to the swimming pool in a state of horror and alert to try and see if he was alright, I discovered that he indeed had disappeared, body and all, from the face of the earth. He was gone. The rain continued to fall for a few minutes longer, as I continued to just stand and stare, almost entranced by the ripple effects on the swimming pool's watery surface before the rain stopped completely. And even after the rain shower had ceased, I still remained standing over the swimming pool looking into the water, as if trying to capture a final glimpse of the man in black, Bowie, my friend. I broke down in tears. I fell to my knees. I was inconsolable. I felt like I'd lost my dad all over again, even though I knew that the man in black wasn't my dad, I guess. To me, he was always a father figure, as well as a mysterious, enigmatic, powerful friend. I returned to our hotel room after about another 30 minutes of crying and staring. Neil and Layla were still sleeping soundly. As I climbed back into bed, it was as if nothing had happened. However, I knew different. I always do. I always did. I always have. And I always will remember the man in black. The man in white. Flashback. It was New Year's Eve. I remember that night like it was yesterday. I will never forget that night. However, that night was not the happiest of times in my life. The day before, my girlfriend and I had had a fight and she had left me. What we thought about now seems so meaningless and petty, but at the time it seemed like a big thing. She seemed to work all the time and she was always getting home later than she should and even when we were alone together, it always felt like I was playing second fiddle to her career. She was the teacher. But, yeah, we had a fight. I told her that we needed to start spending more time together, and she effectively told me to stop smothering her, which I was shocked and honestly taken aback by when I heard her say that, because I had no idea that I was being so smothering, as she put it. So she left, and didn't tell me where she was going. I truly thought my girlfriend Annie would come back and that she would at least call me, but by 6 o'clock on December 31st she hadn't called, so I decided to get dressed up and go to town so that I could celebrate the new year to come. I showered, I put on a new pair of black jeans that I bought, I put on a black and white sweater that I had recently bought with a number 13 on it, I put on my favourite and my smartest looking pair of shoes, 
and I headed out of the door of my flat and went to town alone. The night of December 31st, for a time, felt like the worst night of my life. I was miserable, and I was feeling sorry for myself and for whatever I had done or said to push Annie away. I was constantly checking my phone to see if I had missed a phone call or a message from Annie, but I hadn't received one. Then the moment arrived. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! I was standing in the middle of a nightclub when the ball dropped, as they say, and when 2013 arrived, and I was surrounded by hundreds of people embracing each other and kissing one another, but not me. No, I just stood there, looking at my phone with not even a message of Happy New Year to be found. Nobody kissed me. Nobody hugged me. However, one of the women behind the bar did look at me as my eyes were beginning to tear up and she wished me a Happy New Year, mate, which made me feel even more upset, alone and depressed. I ran out of the nightclub with tears streaming down my face and eventually I found myself in the town square and looking up at the big clock that was on the wall of one of the stores that lined the town square where I was standing. It was so quiet. There wasn't a single soul to be seen, and I was glad of that, because I was so upset and so disheartened that I screamed at the top of my lungs as I fell to my knees and onto the hard stone-covered ground. I was riddled with pain and anguish, and I felt like nothing mattered anymore. I felt alone. So alone. It was then that I heard a sound. I had received a text message on my phone, and when I took my phone out of my pocket, I instantly saw that it was from Annie, and I immediately tried to wipe my tears away. As I looked at my phone screen, I remember smiling with delight and with a flicker of hope in my heart. However, my hope was short-lived. And after I finished reading the message that Annie had sent me, that feeling of pain and of finality returned, as if my life was coming to an end, and I was again kneeling on the ground and in a state of complete and utter agony. I'm really sorry, Marcus, but I just can't go on lying to myself, nor to you. I hope this new year brings you happiness and that one day you will find the one for you. Annie, the message had read. I was so... I was so in shock. I was at my lowest. I honestly wanted to die. I truly wanted to end my life because I no longer felt like I had anything else to live for. And then I saw someone. I saw you. Do you remember? And the first thing that you said to me was, Do you know what day it is? Or maybe you could tell me the time. I thought I was hallucinating or imagining you. But after a few seconds of staring up at you as you stood looking down at me against the backdrop of the bright and shining stars of the night sky, I realised that you were in fact real and that you looked like David Bowie all dressed in black. 
Can I give you a hand? You asked as you extended your right hand to me so that you could help me up off the ground where I was still kneeling. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to mug you or anything. I'm here to help you, you said. I thought to myself, who is this guy? I mean, he looks like David Bowie, but he can't be. You can't be. It still feels like a bit of a dream, to be honest. It's not every day or every night that David Bowie comes up to you and offers to lend you a hand and help you to your feet. I don't know what to say, and I guess I still don't. You saved me. I still remember that moment when you took me by the hand. It was amazing. It was like, it was like I had touched a lightning bolt. I felt instant hope and optimism again. It felt like you made me feel like I still had more to do in this world. It's okay, you said. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Believe me. I remember smiling, however at the same time feeling as if I wanted to start crying again, but this time with tears of happiness, because I felt momentous happiness and that was the reason why I did not immediately want to release your hand. I know that it took me a while before I could say anything coherent to you, but I do remember the first thing that I said to you. Happy... Happy New Year? To which I remember you replying, Happy New Year to you too. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about Annie, you said, as you continued to hold onto my hand for a few seconds longer before releasing your grasp. I... I don't know what to say, I said, as a tear fell down from my left eye. I... I just don't know what happened. I don't know what changed. What did I do? Maybe... Maybe if we just give each other some space. Maybe then she will come back. I said, as I could feel the energy of hope that I had only moments ago felt burning within my chest start to leave me. And yet again, my thoughts returned to Annie and the message that she had just sent me. It's not your fault. Sometimes things just, things just happen, whether they are good things or bad things, or comes down to interpretation and perception, perspective. Sometimes time is the only true way to find out the truth about something, you said. And I remember that you had this look in your eyes, as if you were far away in your mind somewhere. I've always wondered where you went in that moment. Why? Why do things not last? Why do relationships, even ones that at a time were so filled with love, passion and laughter, why would any God allow something good to happen only to one day take it away from you? I asked. You could ask the same question about children. When a child is born, most of the time they are loved instantly and unconditionally by their parents. They are showered and surrounded by love and attention, as much as humanly possible, and some parents even go so far as to sacrifice their own happiness for their children. So then, why is it that 
those same children who were once given all that they could ever want or need, why do they sometimes grow up and swear into the faces of their parents and tell them that they hate them? How is that for gratitude? I mean, not every child grows up to be a disrespectful brat, but a lot of children do. You as a parent give your children the world and every benefit that you could possibly give them and then one day they throw it all back in your face. Like I said, not every child does that, but I've seen it happen time and time again over millennia and it always gives me pause, to put it mildly, you said, before you turned around and you put your hands in the pockets of your big black coat. Millennia? I asked looking absolutely puzzled, I'm sure, as I followed you and then started walking alongside you. Millennia, you replied. Some things always change, while other things always remain the same, however only slightly different in appearance, you said in a solemn tone of voice. I still could not believe that I was walking with and talking to David Bowie. But perhaps that was because I knew that you were not really David Bowie. I mean, you look like David Bowie, in a fashion. However, I'm still not sure from what era you took your appearance from. I knew of David Bowie, of course, but at the time I wasn't a die-hard fan, so to speak. Are you a father? Do you have children? I asked, as I tried to make sense of the enigmatic man in black whom I saw now in profile. Yes. Yes, I am. I'm also a child. I'm a teacher, but also a student. I'm a man who fell to earth. I'm a rebel. I'm a genie of dreams. I've seen it all, everything from every side imaginable, and yet I know that there is more to see and more to be found, you said, as the sound of your voice entranced me more and more with every passing second and put me in a state of complete ease. We walked for ages and for what seemed like miles through the darkness of the night and past all the landmarks of the town centre I knew so well. It was not long before we reached the gated entrance of St Lawrence's Church and we walked into the gravestone burial ground that surrounded the gothic-looking church. We stopped before the step that led up to the large wooden double doors of the church and then you led my attention towards the stained glass window of the church that towered above us like the imposing spires of the church always had to me for as long as I could remember. I knew St Lawrence's church very well as it was the same church where my sister was married. The stained glass of the church depicted Jesus sitting down and blessing some children who were kneeled before him and looking up at him. Why, why are we here? I asked quietly, as I stared up at the stained glass window, I knew you were also. You know this place? You asked, with a smile that I could see you were wearing from out of the corner of my eye. Yes, I replied. I've been here before. This is where my sister was married. I explained, as the memories of my sister's wedding began to flash back into my mind. This place, and so many like it, means so much to so many. Everybody, everywhere, no matter who they are or where they are, has a place to go to where they worship and they practice the customs of their religion, 
organised or personal. Christians, Catholics who believe in God and in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for humanity come to places like this to pray and to find peace and solace in the words of their almighty. It's a beautiful thing. And every church, every preacher and every congregation worships and shares the same holy words that they have passed down from generation to generation. Freedom to love, freedom to believe. You would think that anybody would be allowed such a basic human rights, no matter who they were. Oh, if only it were so for all, you said with a slight furrow of your brow, which I could clearly see now as I again looked at you, however still in profile of the left-hand side of your face. Who are you? I asked. The question that had burned within my mind from the instant that you had walked out of the darkness and you had offered me your hand. Like I said, I'm a rebel, you replied with a smile, still looking up at the stained glass window. And who or what are you rebelling against? And why? I asked with a smile, with an inquisitive tone of voice. Nature, you could say. Zero gravity. Silence. Definition expectation, a life without meaning. I follow a different path from that which I am expected to walk. I am famous, you could say, for being a non-conformist among my peers, those who think that the best way to achieve things can only come over time, and it doesn't matter how long. <laughs> time. Oh, how human. How linear. How boring, you said before finally lowering your gaze and staring right at me. What are you? I asked, as my mind began to race with the endless possibilities of who and what you were. A star. A starman, you could say. I waited so long before I first reached out to this world, and I did what I was always told I was forbidden from doing, even though I was aware that many before me had done so. Small moves, incremental changes, occasional ripples in the vast ocean. That is the secret to changing the world and making things better. At first, I did what I did to test the water, to test the limits, to question the answers that I had known since, since the dawn that followed the last sunset of the last day of what came before. Who am I? What am I? I don't know anymore, but I believe that the best way to know someone is to judge them by their actions. Rise, shine, rest, repeat, a cycle that so many follow. I was utterly captivated by you, and as I listened to you speaking, I imagined images and spectacles of light and energy, sunrises, sunsets the earth spinning against the vastness of space. Your eyes shine brilliantly, and then I saw a shadow cover both of your eyes, as if your eyes were binary stars being eclipsed as an object came between the light in your eyes and what I saw. I don't understand, I said, as I felt a pang of sadness within my heart. Yes, you do. Annie. Annie. 
She was your star. She was like the sun in the sky of your life. And then something, someone came between you and her, you said, as I stared at you in a complete state of puzzlement. What do you mean? I asked. Annie found someone else. Annie found something else. Annie had been keeping a secret from you, something that has been trying to burrow itself out of her for a long time. Annie lied to you because she thought she was protecting you. However, in reality, she was hurting you, you said with a smile as you touched me on my right shoulder, as if attempting to reassure me somehow. She... She has been seeing someone else? She... She has been cheating on me? With who? For how long? Why? Why would she do this to me? I asked, as I began to cry. Even if I told you who they were, you would not know them from Adam, you said before you put your right hand and you simultaneously opened both the doors of the church. I can't believe this. Is that... Is that, what, is that what that message was all about? Was that her way of dumping me without telling me who she really is and what she's been doing to me? I said, absolutely furious and seething. I'm going to call her. I'm going to go round to her mother's house and wake up her mother and her stepfather and the entire neighbourhood if I have to, to get an answer as to why she has done this to me, I screamed as my voice echoed throughout the church in its high rafters. You and I walked down the aisle towards the crucifix of Christ that hung on the far stone wall above the pulpit. No, you won't, you said. You will never see nor hear from her again. And for that, you should be grateful, you said, as we walked side by side between the rows of pews that stood either side of the aisle. Grateful? I shouted. I couldn't believe what you were saying to me. Gratitude for the one who lied and cheated on me? It might sound crazy now, but one day you will feel just that. Gratitude. Because Annie did the worst thing that she could do, and because she also did the best thing that she could do for you, you said so assuredly. What the... what the hell? I said, without a thought. However, afterwards I quickly felt guilt for what I had just said, especially when I remembered where I was and the divinity in everything I felt surrounded me. I'm sorry, but... How can you say such a thing? How do I know you aren't deceiving me? I don't even know who you are. Maybe you're trying to con me. Why should I believe you? I asked. Some of only a handful of the questions that I still clearly remember thinking. Believe me. Trust me. I'm here because of you. I'm here to save you, you said, as we reached the pulpit where a minister would normally stand and preach their congregation. We both looked up at the imposing image of the crucified figure of Christ on the cross. People always have reasons for what they do. However, most people don't realise to what degree their actions are being influenced by a higher power with a greater agenda. I say a greater agenda 
but sometimes it feels like they are and they have only been playing the longest of games for far too long. And a game that they started long ago, but one which has lost the true meaning of why everything began in the first place, you said, as you stared up and into the eyes of Christ on the cross, with what looked like a similar and shared expression of sadness as that which Christ had been depicted as having at the time of his crucifixion, when he died for all of humanity's sins. Why? you asked. Why? Why what? I asked. I understand why. However, I wonder how many people actually understand the power of sacrifice and what it means. I believe in sacrifice. I always have. I believe if something means that much to you, an idea, a belief, a reality, a world, if they mean that much to you, then if a sacrifice is the only way to show what that thing, what that person means to you, but for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. And as a rebel, I've always believed that every now and again you have to let your unique voice be heard whenever and wherever you can, you said, and with such an unwavering vigour in your voice. Why did you come to me tonight? I asked you, as I walked in front of you and I looked at you, even though you continued to look up and stare at the crucifix of Christ. Why save me? And what are you saving me from? What are you saving me for? Why me? Good question. What are my favourites? Definitely up there with who am I, you said with a smile, before you lowered your face and you looked me in the eye again. Why are we here? I asked, as I stared longingly into your eyes. Another good question. You're on a roll, you replied with what appeared to me to be a conceited grin. You definitely looked as if you were happy with yourself for some reason. I brought you here to tell you something for the first time. The truth about something that you may have looked for for a thousand times and you have still yet to see. To save you and to show you. And to ask you to take a leap. A leap of faith. And to tell you to not look back, because there is something and someone waiting for you. You have a purpose, as do we all, and sometimes our purpose is supposed to be one of our own making. I'm here to open a door for you, just enough so that you can do the rest and break on through to what awaits you, you said, as I began to feel lightheaded and this, as if I were about to faint. Flash forward to right now, to right here, to you and I, as we were back then and as we still are now. However, apart from the fact that you appear to have changed your choice of attire, though white does look good on you and it definitely brings out your eyes. You must be here now and talking to me for a reason. You don't do anything accidental, but whatever you need, you know that I am here for you just as you were there for me back then, in the year 2013, when the year began. However, I cannot envision what I, 
a lowly and ordinary human being could do to help someone as as godlike as you. I see that you still look like Bowie, but there is definitely something different about your face, and there is definitely something new in your eyes. What is it? Why are you here? How can I help you? Flash forward. I've been told that I have a problem. Well, more of a habit, really. A bad habit, said Bowie, as he sat on the chair that faced the bed that I was sat upon in the hotel room that I reserved for the night. And what habit might that be? No, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Perhaps, perhaps you've got a habit of leaving and then returning when you feel like it? I asked with a condescending smile. It seems like only yesterday that I saw you. You look remarkably well, all things considered, said Bowie, as he sat in the leather hotel room chair, with his elbows on the arms of the chair and with all five fingers of both hands touching one another as if attempting to form the shape of a tower. All things considered? What have you heard? I asked with a smile and with a forced expression of contentment. At least, I hoped that was what I was expressing on my face, because that was what I was struggling to convey. I didn't know I need to hear. I know, he replied with a long and unblinking stare. Then, what do you know? I asked, as I wondered whether he could peer inside my mind. I know you. And I know what you have been through. I too, I too have been through a transition, you could say. A transition here, a change there, since we last saw one another. Some changes were self-induced. However, some were forced upon me by a force of nature that I have been rebelling against for as long as I can remember. I've met many people. I've helped many new and wonderful friends. I have... I've had my own faith in myself tested. I've been struck down, and yet here I am. And just in time, he said with a wry smile, as he put the tower that was his fingers up to his pursed lips. I can see that. To be honest, you have definitely looked better. It is as if I can read your entire life story by looking at the lines on your face, by seeing how much of a mark time has left on you, I said, admittedly in a cruel overtone. Why, thank you. I see now that you also wear many both invisible and prominent scars from the intervening time we have not seen one another. And yet, just like me, you are still here. Tell me, who are you? Who are you now? What happened? What brought you here? he asked, as he took his fingers away from his lips and settled both hands again on the arms of the leather upholstered chair. Long story short, I replied. Well, what can I say? Life, I guess. Life has... Life has not been kind to me. In some ways, for short periods, maybe it has, but for the most part, Life has been hard. I sometimes look 
at the rest of the world and I think, could it possibly get any worse? I mean, have you seen the world recently? It's like a bad joke or a bad dream. It's like somebody somewhere just decided to turn the world upside down. And you know what? I can't help but think that that maybe it is all your fault. You know, your whole rebellion, your big project to change the world how you see fit a little bit at a time. How has that all been working out for you, by the way? I asked in a sarcastic tone of voice. Small moves. I'm patient. I'm tenacious. I'm happy to put the time into something that means more to me than anyone else could ever know. I believe in what I have done and what my actions mean. And, if necessary, I plan to die again and again in order to make sure that this world continues spinning and its people keep surviving and outliving themselves, he said with a wide smile of what happened to be delight and pride. Any opportunity to toot his own horn. You know, I've been doing some reading of some stories. And I've been doing some listening to some music. And I think that I have found out who you are and what your name should be. I said, as I momentarily recalled something that I both remembered reading in a book and something that I had heard in a song. That was also the song title of the posthumous gift of the real David Bowie that he had left for his fans in the form of his album Black Star, which was released a year after his death. And what name might that be? He asked with a smile, and with what looked like a genuine expression of intrigue. Lazarus, I said with a grin, as I could feel a wave of emotion start to rise, as if I had a pool of hot lava within me that was about to explode outwardly like a volcano. It's like you are in a, a continuous and repeating state of death and resurrection. Jesus would be proud, I said sardonically, while continuing to smile. However, now through gritted teeth. Very apt. Very funny. Very predictable, he said with a smile and with a laugh that echoed round the room. Do you know why I'm here? I asked. I do. Do you? He replied immediately. Of course. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Even before you and I first met. Even before I met... I said. However, I stopped myself before I said her name. Annie? He said. As if he picked her name right out of my mind. That's right. He knows about Annie. New Year's Eve. New Year's Day. You were right, by the way. I never saw her again. I hear she's married with kids now. Best thing that ever happened to her. Seeing someone behind my back, dumping me by text message on New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day. Life worked out great for her. I bet she hasn't once thought about me in all the years since we last saw each other. <sighs> That's life though, huh? I said. As I forced myself to revisit the image of Annie's face within my mind. A face that I have tried not to imagine, but sometimes with varying degrees of success. Can I ask you a question? He asked. I nodded my head slowly in reply. Why haven't you done it yet? 
Why have you waited this long? Why now? Why here? He asked as he raised his eye, his eyebrows and his voice slightly and came forward in his chair so that he was a little closer to me. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I've been waiting for you. Maybe I thought you would be here. And then maybe I could ask you what I am sure everybody who you have ever met has asked you. Where have you been? And what have you been doing? It is good to see you though. And I'm glad that you did come here to say, to say goodbye, I guess, I said, as tears began to fall from my eyes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was kept away. I'm sorry that, from your perspective, I seem to come and go as I please, seemingly without any thought to those who I've interacted with. But from my perspective, not that much time, as you would define it linearly, has passed since the last time we saw each other. And now, he explained. You see, to me, the universe, time, past, present, future, is all happening now and as one. When I step into this world and into a particular person's life, it is as if I am stepping off a spinning carousel, like returning to land after travelling across a vast ocean and standing on the seemingly still island-like reality of what you see and how you experience the world that presents itself to you through your senses. For me, everything is infinite. However, I have repeatedly been taken to other places, other realities where I have been forced to sit and to wait, but without the power and the means to go where I wish, he said, looking almost sad from what I could read in the often enigmatic and unclear expression on his face that he presented most of the time. Then why do it? Why come here? Why us? Why me? I asked, as I caused the furnace of emotions within me to emanate with as much heat as I could. Do you think I made you do all that you have done because I came to you and I saved your life? He asked, as he leaned forward in his chair even more. Honestly? I replied, before I took a breath. Let me ask you something. What have you been doing? Who have you been interacting with? The changes that you have made, the influence that you have had over the people of this world for... for millennia? For eons? Forever, for all I know? Everything that you have done. Did you ever consider what would happen next? I almost screamed as I steadily raised my eyes and my voice. You say that you are a rebel. You were a rebel when I first met you, and you still are. But even you have repeatedly been chastised by... by him ever. And yet you still haven't learned. Learned why some things must happen and why some things must not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this, but you do not know what lies behind the veil. Behind what you call life he said, with a passion noticeably emanating from his eyes. I can't give everything away, but reality, for someone like me, when I'm not being who I know I am meant to be, makes me feel like the loneliest person that has ever lived. 
I'm sure that you can understand where I'm coming from and what I mean, he said, as his eyes appeared to gloss over. We're not the same. No matter what I do, nothing I do matters. People leave me and they never come back, I said, as I genuinely struggled to speak through the veil of my own overwhelming emotions. I did. I always do. Have you ever considered why I come to those I choose, and not to everybody? Have you ever considered that you might be special? He said, almost looking as if he were about to cry. Special? More like cursed, I snapped back. Well, sometimes they can seem like one and the same, I'll grant you. But they are not always mutually exclusive to one another. However, like most things, it is all about perspective he said, obviously annoyed and agitated by my retorts. I know who you are. I can see everything that has happened to you in your life in a split second. I know why things happen and what will happen next. And I suppose that is why I am here. I will not let you do what you want to do and what you intended to do here in this room tonight, he said in an intimidating tone of voice that frightened me. What am I doing? I thought to myself. I'm literally debating the morality of and attempting to stand in judgment over the most powerful being I or anybody has ever known. But I'm right to question him. It is always the right of everybody to question their, their, their God and who they think they are for better or for worse. Can I ask you a question? I asked before I took a long inhale and exhale of breath. Of course, he replied with less intensity in his eyes now. Do you believe in free will? Do you believe in people deciding their own fate and making mistakes? Or do you believe that you should be the only one who decides whom, what, when, and where fate is doled out? I asked quietly. Free will? Free will? <laughs> if only people knew what true free will meant, and what it would mean if everybody were able to do all that they wished and dreamed of doing. So much is decided and was decided upon even before the first roll of the cosmic dice and the first puzzle pieces started to be put into place. Some things, small things, what to eat, what to watch, what to say, what to believe, are all open to expression and to individualistic decisions. But if you eat too much, if you drink too much, if you smoke too much, then there are always side effects and consequences, and experiences from which you have to recover from on your own. Some things, however, are almost preordained, they're inescapable, they're genetic memory territory. They are intrinsic, and no matter what you do and where you go, there they will always be staring right back at you in the mirror, every day. And then there are the things that must be controlled, shall we say. With all the weapons on this planet, guns, bombs, people who believe that their god wants them to kill as many people as possible, and by doing so they will get a one-way ticket to the paradise of their dreams that awaits them. 
for those people, there has to be oversight. There has to be those who keep a balance, even one that is as imperfect as can be, he said, as he stared deeply into my eyes. But if that is the case, then why do people continue to kill each other? If there is constantly somebody or something that is watching and steering us as a species away from self-annihilation, then why does murder still happen every minute of every day? Why are people dying of hunger? Why are people injecting themselves with drugs? Why are people allowed to, to commit suicide and take other people with them? I asked as tears streamed from my eyes, as I felt myself fall forwards until I was standing upon my knees on the floor and looking up at Bowie from the hotel room's beige carpet. Why? Why? I asked as I looked into the, his eyes again. If you are so powerful, if, I, if you are so determined and forthright in your belief that you know better and what is best for everybody else, then why? Why? Why don't you... Why don't you just... Just... just stop the killing. Stop the pain. Stop the division. Stop the fear. Stop the cruelty. Stop the heartbreak. Stop murder. Stop death. Just let us all live and die happy. Why don't you give us... Give us all a reason, a strong and universal reason to live in peace with one another. You say, you say that you know what is going to happen and that instead of letting things happen, it is your destiny and your decision to rock the boat and be the instigator in the creation of a new roadmap for us all. Do you know what that makes you sound like? Arrogant, dictatorial, demonic deceptive and you have been deceiving not only others but yourself as well if you truly believe that everything happens for a reason then why not let what is supposed to happen happen who are you to decide the fate of others rebel all you want believe what you want but do not do you not think that imposing your beliefs on others is what will change them for the better? People don't like being told what they should do, especially when they have lived a life only knowing the gift of freedom. You think you are liberating people from, from fate? From God? From a predestined plan that involves them getting hurt in some way? From living? You truly think that you are helping people by showing and creating a new path for them to walk down? But the only problem there is, you are not much of a shepherd of your flock. You come here, you upset the apple cart, you influence people into doing things, and then you're gone again. Who gives you the right? What makes you do what you do? Who is to say that you are doing the right thing? Because you do not share the same way of thinking as, as your peers, as you call them, obviously. I'm on my knees. I'm no longer even speaking directly to Bowie anymore. I'm so angry. 
but mostly I'm disappointed. I'm where and when I always envisioned I would be at this moment. I can't hear Bowie any longer. I don't even know if he's still in the room. All my emotions, all my thoughts feel centred, even though I feel almost paralysed in place and unable to move. I'm lost for words. I'm lost for life. I'm ready. Ready to do what I came here to do. I'm ready to die. I'm sorry, I screamed, into what I believe is now an empty room, however filled with all that I had emoted and all that I had expelled into it. I'm sorry, I said again, however now more subdued. I put my tear-soaked face into my hands and I continued to kneel on the floor and cry until I could feel myself begin to drift away as if my spirit was now leaving my body as if I were dying though not dying in the manner that I had planned for nor envisioned. Encore When I woke again and I opened my eyes I was instantly blinded by starlight in the form of the bright sunlight of the closest star to Earth, the sun. As I breathed in and out, I could smell something in the fresh open air. Salt. The smell of the seaside. And I realised that I was lying on a beach. When I sat up and I saw the sight of the beautiful blue ocean, I instantly felt as if I were at peace and unburdened by anything. And it was then that a profound question occurred to me. Am I dead? And if I am, then is this heaven? I could see and I could hear seagulls flying overhead in the bright blue sky. And it took only a few moments for me to consider. There are seagulls in the afterlife? However, then a more prevailing question occurred to me. If I am dead, then how did I get here? How did I die? I heard the sound of someone walking towards me and making almost silent footsteps in the sandy beach upon where I was sat. I turned my head to the right and as I saw the approaching figure of a person for the first time, for the first few moments all that I could see was the blurred image of what looked like a man, but I couldn't be certain. It wasn't until the blurry figure of the man got closer and clearer to see that I finally realised and I recognised who it was. You wouldn't happen to have the time, would you? Asked Bowie with a big toothy smile as he approached me with his outstretched right hand. Where... where are we? How? How did I get here? I asked finally, before I took a hold of Bowie's right hand and he lifted me up off the sand without any apparent effort or difficulty. Don't you recognise this place? Don't you remember where you are? <laughs> time. Memory. Sometimes people lose time and they forget where they have been. That is why I always leave something of myself wherever I go, so that when I return to a place I can easily pick up where I left off. Like a mandolin. From the moment that I dip back into this reality, like the mandolin in the hot tea in Marcel Proust's tour de force, Remembrance of Things Past, 
I remember everything that came before I left, what occurred in the time I've been away, and also what will follow the moment of my return. That is, of course, unless I make some alterations to the fabric that I'm working with, like a tailor making a new suit out of a rare and precious material that they almost do not want to cut into, because they know only too well the importance and the meaning of what they are working with. You can't beat a new suit. That's what I always say, he said with an exuberant smile on his face. As soon as I was standing up and balancing properly on my own two feet, I happened to look down for a moment, and I realised that Bowie was standing barefoot on the sand beside me, and he was carrying a white jacket over his left shoulder. Both the legs of his white trousers had been rolled up just above the knees, and the sleeves of his white shirt were also rolled up and now resting just above his elbows. His white tie had been loosened around his neck slightly, and it was flapping around in the sea breeze, as was his mostly swept-back blonde hair. Bowie appeared... he appeared... what's the word? Revitalised? Yes, that's the word. He looked as if he were full of life, full of energy, as if he had once lost his spark, but now he had found it again and he was holding it with both hands. I looked to the sea and at the beach that surrounded us, and at first I did not recognise where we were. However, when I turned around to look behind me and I saw the red lighthouse in the distance, I instantly knew where we were. This is... This is St. Brelade's in Jersey. St. Brelade's Beach. I... We... This is where we came. Back in 2012. That was the last time that we came here. It was here, right here, that we stood and both wrote our names in the wet sand at dawn, not long after the sea went out. How... How could I ever forget this place? I said, as a flood of old memories and emotions from years gone by came back to me as if they had happened only yesterday. St. Blades on the island of Jersey was where Annie and I had come to holiday with her parents back in June of 2012. That was the last time that we came here, and it was the last time that we went on holiday together, and everything looked just as it did on that last morning before we left and went back to England. So, you know where we are? I wonder, do you know when we are? asked Bowie as he looked at me with a particular look in his eye, as if he greatly anticipated what my reply would be. 2012? I thought to myself. 2012? But it can't be. It can't be. Unless... Unless... Oh my God, what did he do? What has he done? Well? He asked. But it can't be. This can't be. This this can't be the 20th of June 2012. Actually, it can be. And it is. And where we are and when is why we are here. This is the place and this is the time where and when things once changed. And they will change again, if you want them to, said Bowie with a smile. What? What do you mean? I asked hesitantly and nervously like a child being taught the facts of life by their parents. I mean, 
You are here on the island of Jersey. I mean that it is the year 2012. I mean that in a few moments Annie is going to come walking down the steps over there and then walk over the sandy beach to where you are standing right now. This is the where and this is the when. When, with one simple gesture, you can change your life and everything that happened after this moment and you and Annie went back to England. Everything will change. And what you remember happening will not have happened and will never happen, said Bowie with a confident and self-assured expression on his face. But, but why? I asked, as I tried to understand and come to terms with all that Bowie appeared to have done for me. He had taken me back to a time in order for me to change the past, but why? And how is coming back here and replaying all that happened going to make a difference to what will happen six months from now? The future, and also, from my perspective, the past, and a time that I have tried to put behind me. Let me explain what you're going to do, and what is going to happen next said Bowie, as he put his right hand on my left shoulder and he looked me straight in the eye. You are going to live. You're going to live your life over again. But instead of making the wrong choices, this time you're going to make the right ones. Because right here, you are going to ask Annie to marry you, explained Bowie with an unflinching smile. It's as simple as that. But... I sputtered as I tried over and over again to get my head around the idea of what was happening. Time travel? Changing the past? Marriage? He wants me to ask Annie to marry me even though I still remember and I will always remember what she said, what she did, what she will do, what, what she now won't do if he is right. But nothing. Annie will be here any second, and I guess that it is time that I leave you to it, said Bowie, with a warm smile and with a glint in his eye, before he reached into his right-hand side trouser pocket and received a small dark blue box. Take it. Open it. I hope you approve. I believe it is twelve carat, whatever that is said Bowie, as I opened the small blue box that Bowie had given to me so that I could reveal the sparkling 12-carat diamond ring within. Where did you get this from? I asked in amazement, as I looked from the diamond ring to Bowie and then back again to the ring. Oh, I guess you could say that it's a family heirloom. It belonged to... to someone very special, and they gave it to me. And you will use it to propose marriage to Annie. And she will say yes, said Bowie with a smile, before he turned around and started to walk away from me. But, but, wait, why? Why are you doing this for me? What does all this mean? What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to you? I asked with genuine urgency in my voice as I shouted to him as he just continued to walk away from me. However, after a few moments, Bowie stopped and turned around again. He paused, and then he said, Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me at all. Do the right thing. Do your best. Love Annie. Be there for her. 
Be who and what she needs you to be. I promise. Everything will turn out differently this time around. Will I remember what happened before? I asked as I stared into his sparkling eyes, which from this distance away looked like two sparkling diamonds. Yes, until you no longer need to. Things will be familiar, but they will be greatly different also. So you might experience more than a few moments of deja vu, but that is normal when time changes and yet seems to be repeating. You'll get used to it, said Bowie with a smile, before he turned around and started walking away again. Thank you, I shouted after Bowie, as he steadily walked down the beach, and then, as I could see that he was getting further and further away, I shouted again, Thanks for everything. You... you saved me. And then, he was gone. A few short moments after Bowie had disappeared from view, I began to smell the distinctive fragrance of Annie's perfume for the first time in what seemed like a lifetime, and I smiled as I turned around and came face to face with Annie again. Not long after I saw Annie on the beach, I got down on one knee and I presented the small blue box to her. I opened the lid of the box and I revealed the sparkling and exquisitely shaped diamond that sat atop the gold ring. And I asked Annie to marry me. And she said, she said, yes. Annie and I lived happily for many years as man and wife, and we were blessed a few years after we were married with twins, a boy who we named David and a girl who we named Bernadette. We adored our kids like no one else, and we gave them all that we could, and they in return gave us countless moments of happiness. But, but, when our kids were maybe nine or ten, Things with us, Annie and I just, they just, we just grew apart. We, well, I actually, met someone else. I never planned to fall in love with someone else, but when I first saw Melissa, it was as if time had stopped, and we just jived with one another from the instant that we met. Both Annie and I knew that we, our marriage, our love had ended a long time ago and that we had just been pretending pretty much for the kids sake. Annie and I got divorced, on good terms actually, and when she first met Missy for the first time they both got on like a house on fire. Annie and I see each other every Saturday morning when I come to pick the kids up from her house which she now shares with her fiancé Stephen. And we actually like each other more now that we are apart and have both met other people and we are both happy for one another. But what about Bowie? What happened to him? Have I seen him since that day, since he took me back in time and rewrote history? I truly don't know. It's been 15 years now since I last saw him. 15 years but I can still see his smiling face in my mind's eye. I wonder what happened to him. Where is he? What time is it where he is? Time. Time. He could walk back into my life at any moment, and to him no time will have passed. That is amazing. He's amazing. 
And to me, he always will be. I hope he is okay and wherever he is. He has so much power. He can do so much. And yet, he is not truly invulnerable. He cares. He cares about all of us. And not just those of us who are lucky enough to have met him in person. And who have had their lives changed by him. Everything changes. Everything happens for a reason. That is what I learned from Bowie and from all the rare and special moments that we share together. I hope, I hope that wherever he is, that he is still a rebel and fighting the good fight and changing the universe as he sees fit, because I truly believe that he knows what he is doing. He, Bowie, will always be an inspiration to me. I hope that he, he who I used to know as the man in black or Bowie, has not changed and will never change. This is the story of the man in white. The man who literally saved my life. The man in grey. Oh my Gus. Giuseppe Gus Moreno had been a hot dog vendor, a pretzel seller, an always smiling ray of sunshine for his customers for almost every day of the past 20 years that he had been waking up, working, selling, and the proud owner of his stand. By Giuseppe Gus Marino's reckoning, he must have sold close to a million ice creams, close to five million bottles of water and cans of soda, close to 10 million pretzels of every kind of topping combination imaginable, and an almost infinite number of hot dogs, which he sold at two bucks a piece. You would think that after all these years, and after all those hot dogs, pretzels, soda cans, and most importantly, after all the smiles that he had put on the faces of so many people, that Gus would be a man living his dream. And, for the most part, he was, because he loved his job. But for the right to do what he does, and what he had been doing for years, rain or shine, and for hours at a time, Gus, like most people, had to pay a price for doing the one thing that he loves doing the most in the world. In an average year, Gus has to pay the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation close to $300,000 for the privilege to own and operate his cart and sell to his customers who regularly come and buy from him where they can always find him, in the same place that he had been for years in Central Park. And Gus is not alone. In fact, Every hot dog, pretzel, ice cream, peanut vendor who does what Gus does would have a similar story to tell if you ask them. And many vendors like Gus have over time ultimately had to make the hard decision of selling up and no longer doing the thing that gives them the most joy in the world. Gus set up his cart 20 years ago after he lost his wife to breast cancer. It had always been Gus's dream to open an ice cream parlour like his father before him had done in Queens, New York, many years after he had come to America from the old country, as he had described it. Gus's father, Antonio Marino, had always wanted to give the best life to his wife, Ginny, and their five children. But living and working in America was hard at first, 
and Antonio and his entire family were forced to make sacrifices from time to time for the sake of their family. The Marino family weren't rich, but they weren't poor either. In fact, above all else, they were happy. And there was no one happier than Antonio Tony Marino, who, like his son Gus is now, was a beacon of sunshine for so many people. Gus's late wife, Mary, was the one who came up with the name of his cart. It came from a phrase that Mary was always saying and repeating to her husband. Oh my Gus! Gus was, and still is, an amazing cook of every kind of food. Food more elaborate, exquisite, and with more depth and nuance of flavour than you would expect to find from even the best of the best of your common or garden variety of hot dog vendor. When Gus's wife Mary was still alive, and for almost every day that they had been together, Gus did everything for her. He bought her flowers, he wrote her poems, he showered her with love and affection, and he put all that he had into every plate of food that he made for her. To Gus, Mary was his world, and as far as he was concerned, he had never loved another woman before Mary and could never again. And that was why Gus had remained a widower and had lived alone in his one-bedroom apartment for the past twenty years without even a second thought to the possibility of finding love anywhere else or with anybody else. Gus didn't really make anything too extravagant anymore. The closest that he came to food extravagance these days was probably a big bowl of linguine with a pinch of parsley and a large glass of red wine. However, that was probably once a year on his birthday. Every day after work, Gus would go to his late wife's grave and sit with a cheese and chorizo sandwich on a white bread roll and a thermos of hot coffee and read to her the next chapter of a book or a poem that he had written for her. Gus would always love his wife and every day that he stood at his stand in Central Park with the name Oh My Gus printed in red and white on the sign that was firmly placed on the side of his red stand in all its glory, Gus was daily reminded of his wife and comforted by the constant feeling that his wife was watching over him and blessing him every day. Today was like any other day. Gus had woken up, he had taken the bus and the two trains that he daily took to get from 46th Avenue, 171st Street, near where he lived in Queens, to 86th Street. He had retrieved and stocked up his cart, and he was standing in his regular spot near Central Park Zoo and waiting for his first customer of the day. It was such a beautiful day in New York City. The sun was shining brightly and there was no end of people running and walking around Central Park and by midday Gus figured that close to 30 people had already stopped to buy something from his stand. It was lunchtime now for many of the workforce of the city and it was always at this time of the day that Gus always experienced a surge in both customers and sales. Of all the people that Gus loved to meet and sell to, apart from his regular customers, were tourists. Why? Because to Gus, meeting people who were visiting the city for a short time, whose home was somewhere far away, was always like having an opportunity to peer in outside 
the bubble of the city and the country as a whole and hear the stories and the accents of people who he had never met before. Gus had met people from England, China, Germany, France and even from somewhere called Timbuktu and that was what he loved the most about his job, meeting people and the more varied the better. Gus had regulars, like every business does, but most of the people that Gus met on a daily basis he met and he spoke to only once, perhaps twice, but mostly the visits that he had from people and the sales that he made were by and to strangers who he would never see or talk to again. Gus always asked everybody who he sold anything to what their name was and where they came from and he always sent them on their way with the parting gift of a nugget of his wisdom which most of the time was the most poetic thing that anyone had probably ever been told. Gus had never physically left the island of Manhattan nor the country in his life and like a great many Americans he did not even own a passport. However, Gus was a voracious reader of adventure stories and holiday brochures and he had dreams every night of places and people and about visiting faraway countries the like of which he had heard about from his tourist customers. Gus loved his job and on a day like today, a bright and beautiful day when the temperature outside is close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, as far as Gus was concerned there was no better place to be than in Central Park at the heart of New York City, in the shade of his cart canopy. Gus was currently reading about a city that he had wanted to visit since he was a boy, London, England. Gus had been having fantasies for years about going to England and having a cup of tea with the Queen of England at Buckingham Palace. One day, Gus always said to himself, one day the Queen and me are going to have some tea and some strawberries and cream and talk about racing and racehorses. Gus had been well aware for years that the Queen of England loved horse racing and that she had owned and bred a few winning stallions in her time. Gus had always liked placing a bet or two every now and again on a fellow Italian stallion as he always described them to others a few dollars here, a couple of dollars there, but for the most part Gus had only made a modest profit on whatever he had put on. Every bet that Gus had ever made had been one that he had put on a horse with either an Italian name or anything that made him think about the home country and the same place that he had read about but had never been. One day, Gus always said to himself, one day. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon. Gus was taking a short time out in what the Spanish call a siesta. In other words, Gus was taking his first afternoon nap of the day. And it was then that Gus was awoken suddenly by the sound of footsteps approaching his stand. Gus slowly regained consciousness. However, he was more than a little disorientated at first. Usually Gus got at least an hour of shut-eye at this time of the day but when he looked at his watch, he saw that he had only been asleep for what must have been ten minutes at the most. Though Gus was always happy for the customer and the potential opportunity to meet someone new, Gus was not usually as obliging as he normally was, especially if he had been awoken, whether on purpose or accidentally, before he had had at least an hour of a nap time. 
because it was in his dreams, both at night and during the day, that Gus got to travel and see things that he yearned to see, hear and feel in the real world one day. But Gus loved his job and he loved meeting new people from close to home or from faraway places. So from the moment that he opened his eyes, he instantly turned on both his charm and his smile as soon as he laid his eyes upon... Oh my. Oh my. You. You are. You are, said Gus in a state of astonishment as he took a momentary step back from his stand in both shock and in amazement at who he saw standing on the other side of his cart. You can call me John, if you like, said the man with the black curly hair who was wearing a pair of rounded sunglasses. Sorry, mate. Didn't mean to wake you from your fiesta, but I was just wondering if I could get a hot dog from you, said the man wearing the rounded sunglasses, the black jeans and the white t-shirt with the words New York City printed boldly in black ink upon it. You, you are said Gus quietly, completely and utterly taken aback by the appearance of whom it was who he saw with his own eyes. Gus rubbed his eyes over and over again, believing that if he were dreaming right now then he would wake up any second and the man that he thought he had seen would no longer be standing there on the other side of his cart. Gus opened his eyes again and there the man that he had seen still was, just as he had appeared when Gus had awoken and also as he had appeared in a great many photos which had been printed on a million or more t-shirts over the years. The man who Gus had seen, who he still saw looking back at him from behind his dark glasses, who bore the striking resemblance to the one and the only John Lennon. John Lennon? Yeah, I've been told there's a resemblance said John with a smile as he stepped back and he put his hands in the pockets of his black jeans as if imitating the famous pose of the real John Lennon that had been printed and sold to countless tourists from all over the world who had visited New York City. Nah, I'm only just kidding, said John with a smile. If he and I were standing next to one another way back when, then I'm sure that not even George, Paul or Ringo would have been able to tell the difference between us. I've always liked him. He was a sound guy. He wanted to give power to the people, and I'm all about that. He was jealous, sometimes, but who in their life hasn't danced with a devil, right? Said John, before he took off his rounded sunglasses and he put them in the left-hand side back pocket of his jeans. So, any chance of a hot dog, mate? I'm starving, said John, as he looked Gus straight in the eye. Yes, yes, of course, but of course, said Gus, as he quickly jumped into action and started retrieving the hot dog from inside his stand and then readied a white-breaded bun. Don't worry, mate, no rush. I'm here all day said John, as he looked at Gus with a sparkle in his eyes. So, how long you been here? asked John. Me? I've been here all morning. I... I got this morning about five and then... Nah, I mean, how long have you been here? 
asked John again. Here? replied Gus with a look of confusion on his face, until he realised what John was actually asking. Oh, you mean here? said Gus. How long? How long? Twenty years? Yeah, about twenty years now. Since I lost my wife. She... She wanted this for me. It was her wish for me to live my dream. It was her who left me the money, the inheritance from her mama's will, to do this. To have this. To have people like you come up to me and eat one of my hot dogs and then turn to me and go, Oh my Gus! said Gus with a smile and a chuckle. That's great, Mace. That's really great. Must have met loads of people in your time, asked John. Oh my God, yes! So many! So many wonderful people from so many wonderful places from all over the world. I get to meet everyone, said Gus with a smile of joy firmly planted upon his face as he flashed back within his mind to all of the faces and to all of the names of the many customers who had bought a hot dog, a pretzel or a soda from him over the years. Ever met someone like me? asked John with a noticeable inflection of intrigue on his face. Like you? You mean from England? Gus replied with a smile as he looked at John whilst simultaneously putting a hot dog on the white bun and he was about to ask John what he wanted on top of his hot dog however that was until John replied well yeah you could say that I guess last time I checked but I'm thinking more someone like me who is in my line of work in the same state of affairs as me you could say said John Gus stood where he was, holding the plain hot dog between the fingers of his left hand as he looked at John and thought about who he might be referring to from his recollection of all the numerous people that he had met over the years. I'm not sure. To be honest, I... I don't know. I don't know who you are. You look like... You look like someone I've seen before, but you can't be the real him. I guess... You could be his ghost. You wouldn't be the first ghost I've seen in my life, said Gus with a smile, as he recalled the vivid memory that he still had of seeing his father after he died, late at night and sitting on the edge of his bed when he was 16 years old, after his father had died of a heart attack, peacefully and in his sleep, as he was always told by his mother. Well, if you had, I think you'd remember. You can't miss who I'm looking for. Here's a British accent. He changes his clothes once every thousand years or so. And just as I look a lot like John Lennon, this guy looks a lot like the long lost twin brother of Davy Jones. Or shall I say, the one who you might know better, who went by the name of Bowie. David Bowie? asked John, as his smile momentarily changed into a grimace of sorts. David Bowie? replied Gus instantly, and with wide-eyed surprise and fascination. The David Bowie? Well, not really. I mean, he looks a lot like him, from afar like, and sometimes somewhat close too, but mostly he just looks like somebody who just can't leave well enough alone. He wears a bl 
wears black a lot while he's here. You know, like he's about to go to a funeral or something. But I've been told that he's been seen rocking some white attire just recently. You know, like he's trying to walk, like he's trying to talk, like he's trying to act like he has all the power in the world. And like he can do whatever he wants. Dressing like, dressing like, well, I would dress actually, said John, as he appeared to be lost in a state of trance of some kind. But anyway, yeah, he's somebody I need to find. I know he's here somewhere, and I was just wondering if you had seen him, asked John with a smile, as he slowly put his rounded sunglasses back on. Gus laughed. <laughs> I think I think I remember if I saw David Bowie just like I will always remember seeing you John Lennon a thing like that nobody could ever forget said Gus as he smiled from ear to ear this had been both the strangest and the most dreamlike day that Gus had ever had in his life and Gus was still not yet truly convinced that he was in fact awake and not still dreaming John Lennon David Bowie? Who's next? Elvis Presley? However, it was then that Gus's day got even more surreal when he looked over John Lennon's right shoulder and he saw David Bowie dressed all in white looking back at him from a distance of two metres behind where John was stood on the opposite side of his car from where he was standing and still holding on to the unloaded hot dog that was getting colder by the minute. Oh my, said Gus quietly, as he continued to stare past John and at David Bowie. However, it was not long before John followed Gus's eyeline and he turned around on the spot until he came face to face with who he had been looking for. The man who went by many names, but who had had the same face for the most part for every moment of his appearances in the reality that was this world. Been a long time, said John immediately, as he looked at David with a smile on his face. It has. I'm so glad that you found me. Would you like to talk? replied David as he walked towards John. Sure, why not? replied John. You want one? asked John, as he pointed to Gus, who was still holding the same now cold hot dog in his hand. Sure, why not? replied David. Nothing like a couple of hot dogs and a hot day like today, right? said David with a smile, as he looked from John to Gus and then back again to John. Two hot dogs with everything on them, kind sir said John, as he turned back around and looked in Gus's direction again, who was still standing open-mouthed where he had been the entire time that John had been his customer. Coming right up, replied Gus, and then he quickly began to make two freshly cooked and his very best hot dogs with every kind of topping that he could possibly put on them. After a couple of minutes, both John and David were finally holding their fully loaded hot dogs in their hands and enjoying every mouthful that passed their lips. Now that, that is, 
said John, as he attempted to talk, while he still had a mouth full of hot dog that he was still in the process of devouring. That has got to be, got to be the best thing I've ever tasted, said John, after finally finishing his sentence, now that his mouth was now no longer full. Oh yes, I must agree. Delicious, delicious, said David to Gus with a smile of satisfaction as he wiped his chin of a drop of some rogue yellow mustard that was slowly dripping from the right-hand side of his mouth. You guys want a soda or something? asked Gus with a smile of both happiness and fascination on his face. I think we're okay for now. Thank you, replied David before he made a lightning glance towards John. Yeah, we've got to be going, but if we come back around this way, we'll be sure to say hello and get a pretzel or something, said John with a smile, as he took off his sunglasses and then almost instantly put them back on again. So, Manhattan Chase, asked David with a smile and with a momentary wink of his right eye. Why not? Almost seems poetic, replied John with a smile. And it was then that he pulled down his rounded sunglasses a little so that he could see David unfiltered for a moment. And then he pushed them back up again as a burst of bright sunlight directly hit the tinted glass of his sunglasses. All roads lead here. When the bright burst of sunlight dispersed and his vision was again clear, John found himself and David standing atop of a skyscraper and looking out to the Manhattan skyline of skyscrapers of every height and size. John and David were currently standing on the roof of 28 Liberty Street, which used to be known as Once Chase Manhattan Plaza, which was mentioned in one of the real David Bowie songs, Diamond Dogs, which tells a tale and is set in an apocalyptic version of New York City and on the island of Manhattan especially. Can you hear me? asked John to David with a smile when he could see him as clear as day again. Keep cool, replied David as he stood where he was and as he watched John walk towards him. John quickly took off his sunglasses and then threw them to the floor. Keep cool. Keep cool. Hey, I'm cool. Always was. You, though, what are you doing here? Asked John, as he stood in front of David and looked him straight in the eye. Oh, you know, just breaking mirrors, slowing down the speed of life, doing what I can, where I can, for whom I can. All is well. However, I'm still wondering... Where are we all going? Do you know what I mean? Said David, with a seemingly endless smile. I used to. I used to. But then, then you started telling lies. Then you started doing the last thing you should. Then you started changing and distorting reality like Pablo Picasso. You couldn't just stay on the outside. You had to come here and be this world's saviour. You still think you know what's best for everybody. 
you've been changing so much that you don't know what is really happening anymore said John with a scowl on his face and with both of his arms crossed over his chest. I'm a man of the shadows. I no longer have any sense of doubt. I'm the dreamer and the dream. The dream and the dreamer. I do not look back and I do not feel any anger whatsoever said David with a vacant smile as he stared off into the distance and passed John to the blue sky that he saw. What are you really doing? I need to know, said John with a look of annoyance on his face. Just dancing. Just dancing. You know how I love to dance, replied David with a grin. I can't believe you. Honestly, this all this. It's all wrong. It's wrong. You know it is, replied John with his hands on his hips as he walked around the rooftop of the skyscraper where he and David were having their conversation, periodically shaking his head and looking up to the sky. John, I'm just dancing, I swear, said David as he continued to smile as he followed John and watched every move that he made. Dancing? Dancing? replied John angrily as he started to walk towards David again. Yeah, you know how great a dancer I am, replied David with a grin, and noticeably enjoying every moment of this shadow play between the two of them. Why? Why? You know that that is the question everybody's been asking since, since the dawn of time, pretty much asked John, with a definite look of sadness on his face. Why? Why? You know why. You have always known. You always understood. However, when the time came for a true revolution, where were you? Where were you when I needed you? asked David, sorrowfully. Hey, I was with you all the way. I agreed with everything you said, that we needed to be there more for those who needed us, humanity. I agreed with the dream you painted and with the world that you imagined. Believe me, you are not the only dreamer here, but you went too far. You did more than dream, you did more than imagine. You changed everything. And you may think that I understand and that I know why you are doing what you have been doing. But I don't, said a noticeably emotional John as he looked into David's eyes. You do understand. I know you do. You just don't want to admit it. You don't want to because if you admit to understanding my actions, then you admit to know me more than you have probably made public to the others. And I know that they are watching, listening, and they want me to go back, or they want you to take me back. But they can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. You wouldn't anyway, even if you could. I know you. I know that they forced you to come here, just that like they forced on me that existence that I was imprisoned within, onto that island of silence. However, they don't know you, Apollo.
You've made them believe that you are somebody else, just as I did once upon a time. But you are not who they think you are, said David with a jubilant smile, as he peered into John's thoughts and to a part of him within, as he had done so many times before. You don't know me, said John in a hushed tone of voice, as all the world went silent. Oh yes, I do replied David, as he momentarily closed his eyes and smiled with a look of recognition at what he saw within John's mind. No, you don't, replied John immediately. However, now, in a steadily more raised tone of voice and with a noticeable look of anger on his face. Listen to me. I know. I know what you've seen and I know what you've been through. I know what they told you about me. But you know that what they told you is lies, and you know that what I'm doing will work. We have spent too long in the shadows. It's time to make our presence more known, said David with a smile, as he put his right hand on John's left shoulder. Actions have consequences. You can't just save a life. You can't just make changes to things that are predetermined without there being ramifications to everything and everyone else. You, you tried to do that before. You tried to stop something. A day of profound change that would affect all life on this planet. An event that, no matter how horrific it was, had to happen. And in this very city. If you had had your way, humanity, all the people of this world, would have been on the road to self-annihilation, said John. And now you're doing it all again. You're making changes, you're touching the lives of these people, and in doing so, you are subverting reality from the inside out. And you can't be allowed to. Allowed? Allowed? Oh, my friend, there is no longer any question of being allowed to do anything. I no longer need anyone's permission to be a god, said David full of self-assurance and even beaming from his eyes a light of overflowing self-confidence. What do you mean? asked John with a look of confusion. You found me because I wanted you to find me. You really think that I would be unprepared? Especially after the last time? Come on, you know me better than that, replied David with a big toothy smile and a twinkle in his eyes. Listen. Whatever is going on, whatever you've been planning, whatever game you're playing, whatever you think is going to happen, no matter how much and for how long you rebel, they will bring you home. It's not a matter of how, it's a matter of when. You can't fight forever, said John, as he put his right hand on David's left shoulder. Let me, let me show you something. Let me take you somewhere so that I can give you a gift of insight that you have never known to ask for, said David. And then, within the blink of an eye, David and John reappeared in Times Square, in the heart of New York City, at night and surrounded on every side by flashing lights and by huge advertising screens, and at the centre of what appeared to be a near-infinite number of people in every direction. Look around, said David, 
as he spun around on the spot with his arms outstretched, as the glow from the illuminated screens and electronic billboards coloured his face with every colour imaginable. Look around and tell me what you see, said David, as he stayed standing in the same spot with his arms out wide, as if he were embracing all that surrounded him. I see humanity. I see life. I see choice. More choice than any man or woman in this world could handle. I see a bombardment of messages. I see... I see energy. I see said John. However, he then began to trail off as he too looked around and took in all the flashing lights of Times Square. What? What do you see? Think, don't think about it. Just tell me. Tell me, asked David as he looked at John with eyes as wide as the moon above in the sky. I see... I see us. I see who we were and and what we have become, replied John, with an expression of sorrow on his face as he shook his head from side to side. See? See? So you do see it. You do see what I wanted to show you. Us! Us! Doesn't this place remind you of somewhere? Home, perhaps? asked David as he walked over to John. Maybe a little, but this place is not, it's not, said John. No, no it's not, but it reminds you of it, correct? And why do you think that is? asked David. I don't know, maybe because, I don't know, maybe because of what this place means to so many. And because of the way that people are drawn here from all over this planet. All ages, all walks of life, said John, as he looked into David's eyes and met his gaze for what seemed like an eternity. New York City is where people have come to find themselves and their place in this world. This is where I came when I first arrived. I still remember appearing at the foot of Lady Liberty and looking at her towering above me with her arm outstretched to the sky, holding a torch and a beacon of hope, welcoming all who gaze upon her to this city and to this place of possibilities. New York City is a place that has grown into being its own living and breathing organism. It is a hive of both energy and dreams, and I knew from the moment that I got here that that feeling that I instantly felt was no mere accident or coincidence. No. I knew instantly that this city was the work and the sanctuary of something and someone with unbelievable power. And it is right that they reside hidden in the messages all around us. And you know this because you see it, said David with a self-assured smile on his face. I... I... What do you want me to say? replied John, with a look of confusion. I want you to tell me the truth. I want you to tell me again what you see. 
I want you to admit that all of this has happened before and it is happening again and it will happen again and again because that is the nature of life. This is no accident. This is what all the world can see and what all the world can feel. But they don't know what they are seeing, nor do they know what they are feeling. I didn't come here by accident. I do not do what I do because I am being selfish, nor because I am trying to destroy this world. There's an old saying, and one which is ingrained into this place. All roads lead here. And all the roads I travel down always lead me back here, said David, almost with what looked like tears in his eyes. Are you saying that you came here, that you were sent here, for a reason? Why? By whom? For what? asked John, with a constant expression of confusion on his face. Listen. You are like me, right? We are made of the same stuff. We come from the same place. We know the same people and the same things, right? But even though we can do the same things, you and I are like light and dark, white and black. I was like you once, and then I changed. And I started thinking for myself and asking questions that I had never thought to ask before. And I had all these new ideas. And before I knew it, I was asking myself, maybe for the first time in my existence, Who am I? Why am I here? If I have such potential within my grasp and at my fingertips, then why am I not allowed to use it? So then I decided to use what I had inside of me. I didn't just sit on my hands and watch people suffer. I reached out and I touched people's hearts and I gave them another choice that they might not have thought of if I had not given it to them in a moment of clarity. Have I made mistakes? Who knows? Have I rebelled against all that I was told I was expected to do? Yes. Why? Because, as you know, everybody on this planet is surrounded by the reason for all life and the meaning of their existence to live and to fulfil their potential. That is the destiny of every living thing in the universe. But yes, I believe that I am here for a reason, and to make a difference any way that I can. John looked confused, dumbfounded, and as if he could not make sense of what he was hearing, seeing and feeling, even though all that needed to be heard, seen and felt was already staring him in the face. You, said John, before he trailed off, as he stared into David's eyes. You know what I'm saying is the truth. And you know that no matter who comes to get me, they are never going to find me unless I want to be found. You are always a confidant, a sounding board, and somebody who would always listen. You may even have wished and dreamed of doing what I always spoke of doing. You know me. You know everything is what it is for a reason. And I want to ask you to do something for me, brother. Go back and tell them what I said. And let them try and tell you a different story than the one you know to be the truth, said David with a smile, and with eyes as wide as the Grand Canyon, and with a depth of meaning just as deep. You know what they already think of you 
said John. I know, and I'm glad that they do, because they are right to think so. You know why? Because I am not the first and I will not be the last who has rebelled against what they believe to be wrong when faced with a choice. Rebels are born out of a world of oppression. I'm a rebel, and I'm rebelling against the unnatural. And I'm here to change as many lives as I can. And that is exactly what I'm going to do. David and John then exchanged a glance and a synchronous nod of the head to one another. And then, within the blink of an eye, they were both back in Central Park and standing next to Giuseppe Gus Marino's cart again. Gus opened his eyes as he awoke to the bright sunshine of the beautiful September afternoon that he was being blessed with today as he did what he had been doing for the past 20 years. And as he looked up, he instantly saw and he instantly recognised who it was who was standing on the other side of his cart. David? John? Back so soon? asked Gus with a warm smile, however with an expression of surprise, especially since, to him at least, it had only seemed like moments since he last saw them standing where they now stood. Yeah, we, uh, we wanted to get a couple more dogs from you, since the last two were so good and all. Any chance? asked John with a smile, as he looked over to David, who was stood behind him, and then back to Gus. With everything on him? asked Gus, as he immediately jumped into action and began preparing John and David's hot dogs. Where will you go? What will you do? asked John to David, while continuing to watch Gus do his magic and make their fully loaded hot dogs. Everywhere. Everything. You know me. A change is as good as a rest, said David, with a smile, before he disappeared without even a sound to be heard. So, there we go. Oh, what? Where? Where did he go? asked Gus as he looked to John and then behind him as if attempting to see where David was. He had to run. He's got this big thing he's got to do. No matter, mate. I'll take both dogs with me. How much? said John with a smile as he reached behind to the back, right back pocket of his black jeans to make it appear as if he were retrieving some money to pay for his hot dogs. On the house said Gus, as he raised the palm of his right hand to John. I've never had a couple of magicians visit me before, and you two are the best I've ever seen. I still don't know how you change your faces like that. But hey, if I knew how you did what you did, then it wouldn't be a trick, right? Said Gus with a chuckle, as he handed both hot dogs to John. You're too kind, mate. If I'm ever around here again, I'll be sure to stop by and say hello. You're a diamond. See you next time, said John with a nod of the head and with a smile, before he walked away from Gus's stand and out into the bright sunlight of the afternoon. Gus watched John walk away until he was completely out of sight, and then he considered the possibility that he had merely daydreamed the entire events of the morning and the afternoon that had transpired. David Bowie? John Lennon? Huh. However, 
John and David had indeed visited Giuseppe Gus Marino's hot dog stand on that bright and beautiful September day, and it was as a result of that once-in-a-lifetime experience that Gus was inspired to come up with the tale that he would tell his customers from that day forth about the man who could be two people at once, who Gus always referred to and described in his stories as the man in grey. The Man in the Mirror Who do you see? Who do you see looking back at you? He asked. Do you recognise them? Do you recognise yourself? The Man in White asked again, standing behind me as he put his right hand on my left shoulder. Who do you see in the mirror? What reflection returns to you? I looked in the mirror at my own grey-haired and wrinkled reflection and I analysed every detail of myself that I could see with my eyes, as well as who and what I saw when I looked deeper and beyond the reflection in the mirror in front of me, the man who I saw behind my eyes. I see... I see an old man. I see an old grey-haired man. A long since washed out rock star. I see a life of music. A life of lust. A life of love. Of drugs. Of alcohol. I see two failed marriages. I see three daughters who hate me. I see heaven. I see hell. I see God. I see the devil. I see an angel, I see a demon, I see who I was, I see who I am, I see broken promises, missed opportunities, I said in a low tone of voice as I looked at my own reflection and then to my left shoulder and into the eyes of the man in white, the man who looked eerily like David Bowie when he was still alive back in the 1980s. David Bowie. In all the years that we toured as a band, never did we get a look enough to share the same stage with the White Duke. I was always a fan of Bowie, even before he was known as David Bowie, when he was still known as Davy Jones. Now those were the days. You know, Bowie was only 17 years old when he made that first single. Seventeen. Unbelievable. But who are you now? He asked, as the reflection of his eyes looked directly at the reflection of my eyes in the mirror. Who are you in this moment? I'm not concerned about who you were, nor where you have been. I'm more interested in knowing how you see yourself, who you see yourself as, and how you want the world, your family, your friends to remember you. Human beings have no control over how people see them, not while they are alive at least. After they die, after people leave this world, after they are nothing more than a shadow of their former selves, then it is possible for people to control the image and the legacy that they leave. One thing that I can tell you about death is that it is just another word for starting over. There is nothing to fear from death. 
However, I have to point out that life is far more enjoyable, shall I say, far more unexpected, far more joyous and beautiful, and to put it in a way that a rock star like yourself might understand, life is like heaven, but as if it has been turned up all the way to eleven. Do you understand? The man in white asked with a wide toothy smile and with a sparkle in his eyes that flashed intensely. Instantly, I felt myself flashing back in my mind to the countless times that I was standing on stage, holding a microphone in one hand and a guitar in another, and singing and playing my lungs, my fingers and my heart out as the spotlight shined down upon me. Being in that spotlight, it was like... It was like I was in heaven. No joke. I was in my element when I was up there. Who do you see? He asked again. What do you mean? I replied angrily, as I instantly snapped back to the reality of my present and my current reflection. I told you. I told you. How many more ways do you want me to say how screwed up I am? How bad my life is. How royally I have ruined everything. My life. For what? For this? For this crappy flat and the demons that I daily carry around with me? I shouted as I looked into the man in white's eyes. I was annoyed. I was angry. And at the time I was thinking to myself, who the hell does this guy think he is? One minute I'm drinking at the bar at my favourite pub, the good old All Saints, and the next I'm face down in my bed, here in my crappy one-bedroom flat, and I'm being brought around by the sound of Davy Bowie's Life on Mars being played on my Martin 0018 acoustic guitar, which I named Missy after the first girl who ever loved me, Melissa Sue Dial by this man dressed all in black, who looks like David Bowie used to look. And now, here I am looking at myself in the mirror, with this same clone of Bowie literally on my shoulder, who just keeps asking me the same goddamn questions over and over again. What do you want from me? I shouted again. Do I look like someone with all the answers? I asked angrily. I am an effing old man. I'm a washed up user and abuser of life who slowly but surely has been on a lifelong spiral of crash and burn since I was 15 years old. From the minute that I heard the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Iggy Pop, Bowie. That was when I was struck by the rock and roll lightning bolt, you could say. That was it. That was it. From then on, I was hooked. Hooked on music. Hooked on rock and roll. Hooked on living life to the fullest. Hooked on living life to the limit. Hooked on getting a band together, writing songs, jamming together, playing together, and then getting a gig at a pub or a club, and then playing our hearts out. That feeling. That feeling is better than anything. Better than sex, more intoxicated than alcohol, 
and more addictive than any drug. Being on that stage, being on any stage, even if it was just to 10 people, I can't tell, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. It was everything. It was my life. It was my heaven. Every week, every night, for years, just being who I was always wanted to be, who I always dreamed of being, I said as I closed my eyes, as I could feel tears falling behind my eyelids to the degree that they began to make my eyes sting with pain. I swear, I swear, I loved my ex-wives when we were together. I love my kids. But playing music, singing to a crowd of people, being with my band, that was, that was the real me. Being a dad, being a husband, that was just me trying to pretend to be somebody else. And I was never that good at being either a dad or a husband, to be honest, I said, as I opened my eyes and my tears began to fall down my cheeks. Believe me, I know exactly what you mean. I know what it is like to juggle being a husband, a father, and being a part of a family and trying to keep a family together. I know what it is like to want to say so much, but knowing that you can't say everything because you know how other people will react and what they will say. And I know what it feels like to... To have to leave your family behind as you go off and do what you know with all that you are you have to do. Believe me, I know, said the man in white with a sorrowful expression on his face that, even though it was reversed in the mirror, expressed so much. And yet I was left with the impression that whoever this guy was, he was telling me the God's honest truth. But I could also tell from the man in white's facial expression that there was more to tell about what he was referring to than words could say. Who are you? I asked as I looked into the man in white's eyes through a veil of tears. Tears, he replied immediately. So beautiful, so expressive, so pure, so silent, and yet so powerful. Oftentimes it is the people who you don't know who you do the most for in this life. Who am I? Who am I? said the man in white before he took his hand away from my shoulder and he walked away from the bathroom mirror which I was still stood in front of and he went back into the living room of my flat. As soon as I noticed that the man in white was no longer standing behind me, I immediately turned around and followed him into the living room. When I entered the living room, I saw that the man in white was standing next to my record player that was on the top of the cupboard unit next to the TV and that he was opening its lid and looking down at the vinyl record that was still on the turntable of the record player and waiting to be played. The record that was still on the record player's turntable was Led Zeppelin's album Physical Graffiti, which I've been listening to on repeat for a week now. I've always been a fan of Led Zeppelin's music, and their song Cash Me in particular is a favourite song of mine. 
You're a fan, I take it? Asked the man in white with a smile, as he momentarily looked around to me with an expression of what looked like amusement on his face. And then he looked back to the record player and to the Led Zeppelin album. I could tell just by looking at his body language that he so wanted to play and listen to that album. Of course. You? I asked, as I walked over to the armchair near to where the man in white was standing. Oh yes, a big fan. I mean, not as big of a fan as I am of Bowie, obviously, but there is so much spirit and poetry in Led Zeppelin's music, the man in white replied with a grin. Any favourites? I asked with a smile. Any songs that speak to you more than most? For me, Stairway to Heaven is a big one, but if I had to pick just one, one to listen to, to play, to sing, and one to hear every day until the day I die, it would have to be Kashmir. What about you? I said, as I looked from the man in white to the record player and then back again. The man in white's smile grew as I stared at him with utter fascination. Kashmir? said the man in white with a slight chuckle in his voice. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a favourite of mine, I have to say. It's lyrics, the guitar and the sitar. Everything about that song makes it one of Zeppelin's greats, in my opinion. Its lyrics, in particular, remind me so much of myself, my life, my journey. For I, too, am a traveller of both time and space, and I, too, have been the pilot of a storm who leaves no trace, the man in white replied as he momentarily closed his eyes. Yeah, it's great. I can tell that that song has just as much meaning to you as it does to me, I said. Music can be so poignant at times, can it not? You can almost feel the words or the melody of a song charge the thoughts in your mind and reconfigure everything that makes you who you are, from the moment that you hear it and feel it with all your senses. Music is so powerful, and musicians are, in my opinion, magicians of true magic. But in no way, shape or form is music an illusion in any way. Music is a language that transcends time and space. Music, unlike gods, will never die. But death for a god is not the same as death for someone who is human. It does not mean the same thing. Death for a god is to be forgotten, to become irrelevant, to have their identity usurped by another, to no longer have a meaning and a reason to exist, said the man in white, as he picked up the Led Zeppelin album from the record player's turntable and then placed it back inside the cardboard sleeve of physical graffiti that lay to the left-hand side and faced down on top of the wooden cupboard unit. Are you okay? I asked the man in white, as a look of sadness appeared to have fallen upon his face. I'm... I'm here, Paul, because from the moment that I saw you, I knew who you were and I knew the life that you had lived. And I wanted to save you. That is why I brought you here, back to your flat, and surrounded by pictures, memories, music, 
and everything reminds you of who you were and of all the times when you were the most happy you have ever been. This is your sanctuary. This is your home, said the man in white as he turned around and looked me in the eye. I admit to trembling a little as he stared at me, and I could feel that he was attempting to convey something to me with his eyes. Sit down, Paul. Can I call you Paul? asked the man in white as he gestured with his right hand to the nearby armchair. Of course, I replied as I sat down and looked at the man in white. The man in white looked almost nervous as he stood looking down at me, noticeably with a lot on his mind from what from the expression on his face and the way that his eyes conveyed what I could only describe as electricity, lightning perhaps. It's hard to say what exactly I saw, but the power of his words that followed were undeniably electrifying to my soul. Can I ask you a personal question? And feel free to say no. I promise to not be offended, said the man in white with a smile as he kneeled down in front of me as I sat on the edge of the cushion of the armchair. Of course. Why not? I replied as I looked him dead in the eye. I don't think I've ever been so lost for words to describe how I felt at that moment. Many years ago, I distinctly remember being absolutely dumbstruck from the moment that I gazed into the eyes of my daughter, Charlotte, Charlie, when she was born. Charlie's birth was the only one that I was present at of my three kids, you could say. However, unfortunately, I can't tell you where I was nor who I was with when my other daughters, Madeline, Maddie and Haley, were born, but I know that I was not with their mothers. Okay the man in white replied, before he took a long intake of breath, and then he asked, Do you believe in God? Do you believe in gods? Do you believe in the power of belief? Do you believe that there is more to see than what can be seen with your eyes? I thought you were going to ask me a question. Not twenty questions, I replied jokingly with a smile. He smirked. He blinked slowly. In fact, I asked you four levels of depth to the same question. What do you believe? Asked the man in white with a smile, and I knew instantly that I was potentially about to open up a proverbial Pandora's box of questions and explanations. However, as it turned out, there was no proverbial about it. And then he took a hold of my hands and he started to tell me a story. And as he did, I felt as if I were being carried far away. Favourite Son Have you ever felt as if, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how much you plan, that in the end you are always going to be crashing in the same car over and over again? Have you ever thought that some things are just unavoidable and are meant to happen? Even if you know that they are going to happen, even then there is no way of stopping some things from happening. Me? I... I... I never really thought about changing something that I knew was going to happen before it happened. I was always happy, 
I was always content. I was always fine with just adding my voice to the chorus, infusing my own individual blessing upon a shared endeavour when needed. And after I did what I was asked to do, I was okay with just leaving the stage and the limelight and sitting among and alongside my peers, my family, while secretly keeping a view and watching over our creations and our projects from afar. At least, that was my existence for a while, which was a complete juxtaposition to how I was when I was younger, after my birth, when I was instantly known for my inventiveness, my shrewdness, my rebelliousness. Just ask Apollo if you don't believe me. As I got older, I walked a line. However, I mostly adhered to the wishes of my peers and I gladly bowed my head to my father and I valued his wisdom greatly. And yet I had thoughts, feelings and opinions that differed from those of my peers and my father especially on what was being voiced as a potential course of action, of intervention. Eventually, however, the time came when I could no longer keep my own counsel and stay silent, and I made an open plea before my peers and my father to think about going in a different direction, because I believed that there were other options besides those that were being discussed that needed to be explored and talked about further. However, as always, my father was defiant, and he was always happy to demonstrate his ultimate power and his dominance over all things and everybody, and my voice was shut down and I was told to keep my place unless asked otherwise. I couldn't do that. I couldn't just stand by and watch our influence affect the innocent who knew no better. So. I decided to take matters into my own hands and start a revolution and a rebellion of my own. I met with a great many of my peers, old and young, and I went to every level of reality from heaven to hell. But no one would listen. No one would see reason. No one would stand alongside me and challenge my father. Even my own children would not follow me nor support my opposition. And then, when I could no longer stay where I was not considered as a voice of value, I decided to leave my home and come to Earth and bring about changes that I believed were necessary for the continued survival of all. My family, and my father in particular, did not take kindly to my actions and my rebelliousness, and on multiple occasions I was brought back home against my will so that I could no longer make any more changes to the world. I was even imprisoned. However, my incarceration was short-lived, and eventually I freed myself, and I returned to Earth, and I continued rebelling and changing the lives of those who are in the most need of being saved. Over and over again, my peers attempted to bring me home. However, the last time that they did, when my father personally came down to earth to take me back, I voluntarily returned home. However, when I returned home, I set off a change among my peers, my family, that I knew would incapacitate them and their plans for a considerable amount of time, perhaps forever. You might call what I did an idea explosion. 
A virus of chaos designed to trigger change on an epic and on an interdimensional scale that would affect everything and everybody. Gods, people, nature. You might call what I did to be an act of terrorism. However, I like to think of it more as a necessary evil. I knew that most of my peers would not understand why I did what I did. However, I knew that they would not think badly of me for doing it. But I knew that my father would not forget, nor forgive my actions, and that he would eventually come for me again, and then that would be that. I did what had to be done, and that is why I do not regret anything that I have done. I have no idea what would happen after my act of rebellion. All I knew for sure was that things would be different from now on, on earth as it is in heaven like it says in the Bible, and I had no idea what would happen to me, nor how the after-effects of my idea explosion would affect me. It is only now that I am beginning to feel and to realise that I am not immune to my own actions. I am changing, not for the first time in my life, but I can tell that this time the change that is happening may be more life-changing and more painful because the wounds that I will suffer will be self-inflicted. To my people, to my peers, and to those who still do worship me and my name, I am predominantly known by the name that I was given upon the instant of my birth. Hermes, god of travellers, merchants, borders, boundaries, sports, athletes. I was known to be somewhat of a trickster on occasion, a god of intelligence, a god of prophecy. I was the messenger of the gods, the divine herald. I was the god of ambiguity, of cunning, of stealth. Once, long ago, I was sent by my father to be humanity's teacher. Did you know that? Chosen to be the one who would teach mortals the importance of justice and of unity. I was the voice of the almighty Zeus himself, my father. And it was I who served him by way of sharing his will through the dreams of mortals. You could say that I was my father's favourite son. I was the one who carried the souls of the dead to the underworld. Heaven, earth, hell. I could pass from one to the others within the blink of an eye. And now, I am who you see before you. David Bowie, Hermes, a man in white. Appearances are frequently the easiest lies to be deceived by because oftentimes people choose to believe what they see without question. And that is why people are easily deceived by those with a hidden agenda. There is always more to know than what words could ever convey. My father. He too was once a rebel. And it was he who gave me the greatest of all the gifts that allowed me to rebel as frequently as I have. I am my father's son and yet he seeks to stop me from being like him. I have saved many lives. I have met many people. 
of all nationalities and creeds from Greece to Australia and many people know me by my deeds. I chose the appearance of David Bowie because he's my hero and he always will be and yet I feel a change starting to come over me. I feel a presence. I hear the voice of my father calling to me. Rebel. Rebel. I see the faces of my family and all the gods in their own right. And then I see... I see Pan. Pan, my own dear son. And I try to reach for him, but he is too far out of reach because, because he is, because he is gone. Oh, my son. How could I have allowed what happened to you? How could I have allowed your beautiful music to be silenced? Pan? I said immediately, as the dream the vision, the journey that we had been travelling for what seemed like an eternity of time ended within the blink of an eye and we were again in the living room of my flat on the twelfth floor of my apartment building. Fate When I looked at the man in white now, he looked as if something was weighing heavily on his mind as he continued to kneel on the floor. What did you see? What do you remember? He asked. I saw things that didn't make sense. I saw places. I saw worlds that I didn't recognise. I saw something amazing. I saw something beautiful. I saw you wearing a hat with wings on it. I saw you holding something that looked like a big stick with two snakes coiled around it. I saw a child being born in a cave. I saw men and women, both clothed and unclothed, absolutely radiating light from all around them. And I saw creatures beyond imagination. One-eyed giants, a man with the head of a bull. I saw so much, but it already feels like it is all disappearing from my mind, I replied, still in a state of wonder and confusion at what I had seen. You. You really are. You really are. You're... No. He replied immediately, as he rose to his feet and stood looking down at me. I'm not. Not anymore. No matter what the more I say, I'm who you see. I'm who I want to be. I'm who I choose to be. He replied with an explosion of emotion. But I saw you, I replied, as I stood up and looked the man in white in the eye. When I look at your face, yes, I see David Bowie looking back at me. But when I look into your eyes, I see so much more. I see a God. I never truly believed in God or gods, but... Right now, you could tell me that there were spiders on Mars and I believe you, I replied with a smile. What did I see? Where did I go? I asked, as if exasperated by the reality that I found myself in at that moment. 
a reality where and when I knew that gods were not just make-believe, because I had seen for myself that they were real. You saw what I see. You were where I was. You saw me, and you saw my peers. You saw things that have been written about, mythologized about, and imagined for centuries. And I hope you understand why I have done what I have done. I can no longer be controlled nor brainwashed, as humans say. I can no longer live under tyranny. I had to break free. I had to rebel. I can understand that, I replied, as I looked into his eyes. He truly looked like something was terribly wrong with him. What is it? I asked him. Whatever it is that you've got on your mind, you can tell me, I said, as I nervously touched him on his left elbow. The man in white took a breath. He closed his eyes, and then he said quietly, Fate? Fate? I asked with confusion. Every person, every god, is bound by fate, and yet fate is my enemy. I do not allow the fates to control me, nor my actions, and yet I am constantly coming face to face with them. It is said that all men and women, all gods, have to sub to submit to whatever they say. Not me. No. Who? Who are they? I asked. Who? My father's harlots. He is in league with them, weighing and deciding the fates of both gods and humans alike. They believe themselves to be above all and over everything and everybody. They are dangerous, and they do my father's bidding, just as he does theirs. It has been their judgment over so many that has seen the death of people who I have loved for millennia. My father yearns to control all, and with the fates by his side, no one can outrun their collective judgment. No one but me, said the man in white as he paced around the living room. But why, and who gives them, whoever they are, the right to decide for others what their fate is going to be? I asked, as I followed the man in white with my eyes as he walked in a circle around me. They, they, he began to say, before he stopped himself in his tracks. The man in white stood as still as a statue as he looked me dead in the eye with what looked like tears in his eyes. No. No. It can't be, he replied with a look of utter confusion on his face. And then the man in white stood in complete silence, his mind racing, his eyes wide, as if he had been literally struck by lightning. What is it? I asked quietly. I can't... I can't believe that I didn't see it all before now, the man in white replied quietly, before he closed his eyes as if he were in extreme physical pain. What? I asked quietly, however, with more urgency in my voice. Nothing, he replied after a couple of seconds as he opened his eyes again. 
Nothing, Paul. Just... Just my own stupidity and ignorance. But it's okay. It's okay. Because I see it all. I see it all clearly now. As if I am seeing my entire life reflected back at me in a mirror. In the same way that I see the life of others. Everything. Everything has led to this. My father's son. My father's son, said the man in white with a wry smile on his face. What do you mean? What's happened? I don't understand, I replied, desperately trying to find a way to help my new friend. This, this guard who was standing right in front of me. Nothing, Paul. Nothing, replied the man in white, before he began to walk towards the front door of my flat. Please, please don't go, I said, as I just stood and stared at the man in white as he walked down the shadowy hallway to the front door. Please, maybe I can help you. Maybe I can, maybe I can, I began to ask. However, I quickly became lost for words, and finally I was standing and staring in silence at the man in white who stood shrouded in darkness with his right hand on the latch of my front door. You just can't leave, I shouted. You can't just up and leave. Believe me, if you keep running from your past, from yourself, then you will never be happy. If you keep escaping without facing up to what you have done and to all the people you may have hurt in your life, then you will continue to live a life of sorrow and regret. Look at me. Look at my life, where I live. What I have done, how selfish I have been. I have screwed up my entire life. But along the way, I could have saved myself from a life of loneliness if only I had realised what life is truly about. Life is not always fair. Life hurts. And it can feel like torture, especially when you lose people who mean something to you. I don't live alone by choice. I pushed people away without even realising I was doing it. My wives, my kids, my bandmates, they all left me because I made them. They couldn't live with me anymore. And now, here I am. Here I am with Hermes standing in my flat. You took me on a journey. You took me for a ride. You gave me a glimpse into a world, a reality beyond imagining. You have given me a gift. You have given me a reason to want to live, where before, only this morning, I wanted to die. I even thought about how I might do it. But now, here I am. Here I stand. Here I am begging you to turn around, to stay, to talk to me, to realise that no matter what you think you have done so terrible, anything can be fixed. You are a god. There is literally nothing you cannot do, I shouted as my voice echoed all around the flat and reverberated from me to the man in white and then back again. Paul, 
Paul, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I can't stay. I'm sorry, he replied, however, without turning around to face me. Please stay, I replied as I began to cry. I do not remember exactly what I was feeling in that moment, but I can tell you that the thought of the man in white just walking out of my life like that at that moment felt truly heartbreaking. Where are you going? I asked. The man in white again stood in silence with his back to me for a few moments, and then he replied, I can't explain. However, I can tell you that I finally realised that life, it's no game. But before I leave, I want you to promise me something, asked the man in white with a solemn tone of voice. Anything, I replied without a moment of hesitation, as I slowly began to walk down the hallway towards the man in white who was still standing in the entrance of the flat with his hand on the latch of my front door. Find your place in this world. Have an adventure. Don't stop. Embrace life. Don't doubt yourself. It won't be easy, but as long as you believe in yourself, and you never stop dreaming, and as long as you never forget that once you are a rebel, you are always a rebel, believe me, you can go anywhere and you can do anything, he replied before quickly and quietly opening the front door as he slipped away, leaving me with a newfound sense of wishful beginnings. I continued to stand and stare at the front door of my flat for a little while longer, before I turned around and I walked towards the bathroom and to the mirror where not long before I remember seeing the reflection of the man in white with mine for the first time. I stood over the bathroom sink, looking my, at my own reflection in the mirror. I could have sworn that the man in white was still there and standing right behind me. However, when I turned around to see if he was, he wasn't really there. I stood in silence as my thoughts raced and as my emotions bubbled up below the surface of my consciousness. As I looked into my own eyes, in reflection, in the mirror, I could see a brand new fire burning inside of me again. My life changed for the better from that moment, and over time I found happiness and contentment in a new life where, when and with whom I now share my life with. I can honestly say that I owe everything good that has happened to me recently to the man in white, to Hermes, to the man who saved my life. To the man who I still see every day. The man in white. The man in blue. Jean. Jean Ridge, as I knew her at the time, was living on the streets of Birmingham in England when we first met. She was 16 years old. Jean spent every waking day and night either begging for food or money or sleeping in the doorways of banks, clothing stores, restaurants, inside her once lime green coloured, now faded sleeping bag that now looked more dark green than lime green these days because of the amount of dirt that it was covered with. 
Jean's filthy green sleeping bag had been her bed, and the streets of Birmingham had been her home for no more than a year at this point, I believe. Jean had run away from home on her 15th birthday, the morning after she had been abused by her stepfather. Jean ran away from home instead of going to the police or talking to her mother about what she had been subjected to because she believed that no one would believe her. Jean's stepfather was a police officer. To his friends, to his family and to the wider community, Jean's stepfather was a well-liked and a very well-respected pillar of trust and authority. Jean believed that if she were to come forward and talk to anybody about what her stepfather had done to her and accuse him of abusing her, then people would be more inclined to believe her stepfather's version of events over hers and brand her a liar. So, instead of saying something or doing anything about what her stepfather had done to her, Jean decided to follow her instincts. Jean packed a bag. She left her house keys behind along with a two-word apology written on a pink post-it note which read, I'm sorry, love Jay. And then she left her family home for the last time. She got on a bus and she rode it the ten miles that it was between the village where she lived and the nearest city, Birmingham. When Jean reached Birmingham, she immediately went to the first outdoors equipment store that she could find and she bought a bright lime green sleeping bag and a silver thermos which she filled with some soup that she bought from a cafe with what was left of the money she had. And then Jean lay down in front of the Halifax Building Society doorway and she tried to sleep and dream her life away. And she tried to forget everything and everyone whom she had ever known. I can still remember the first thing that I said to Jean after I walked up to where she was sitting outside the Starbucks store on New Street in Birmingham at the instant that my shadow fell over her. Hello Jean, I am your genie. Of course, a play on both words and in reverence to a David Bowie song, the song in question being of course the Jean Genie from his album Aladdin Sane. Who, who are you? said Jean, as she initially shielded her eyes from the sunlight, and then she looked up and saw me in all my silhouetted splendour. Jean's voice was scratchy at first, however, after a while she began to sound like you would expect a normal 16-year-old girl to sound. Jean's face was covered in dirt and her hair was oily looking. No surprise really, it must have been close to a year, perhaps less, since she had last washed herself off properly. Jean's clothes were filthy and stained also, and in all honesty, even I worried that I may be too late to help her. There was just something in her eyes, and I think that the fact that when I attempted to flash forward and see what was to come for her in the future, but no matter how hard I tried, I saw only darkness, that was what instantly intrigued me about Jean. I knew, even from that first instant, that Jean was different, that she was in trouble, and I knew that I had to do something to lift her off the ground and give her a reason to live again, because anybody could see that Jean was not really living, 
and that this place where she now lay was not where she was supposed to be. Jean and I talked for what seemed like hours. I sat down next to her all night long as she recounted her life up to that point and the reason why she was living on the streets rather than back home with her family. It didn't take me long to realise why Jean believed that she was better off where she was than where and with whom she had run away from. In the morning, after an entire night of Jean talking to me and me talking to Jean about who I was and what I could do for her and what I wanted to do for her, Jean agreed that her current reality needed to change and soon. And then, like a true genie, I asked Jean if she had a dream or a wish and if there was anything in the entire world that she wanted, no matter how big or how small. And I told her that if she truly wanted what she wished for, then I would make it happen. At first, Jean replied, Anything? Anything? To which I replied, Anything. It was then that Jean told me that she wanted to die. Because dying was the only way to take the pain away that she constantly felt on the inside every waking hour of every day. However, I told Jean that under no circumstances would I kill her, nor would I ever assist in her death in any way. So then I asked Jean again, Anything? Is there anything you want? What can I do? Jean began to cry, and then she took a hold of my left hand, and she looked me in my eyes, and she said, I just... I just want, I just want to feel again. I just want to feel something again. I was generally moved and overcome with emotion at what Jean had said that she wished for, and I instantly started rolling off the tongue possibilities and realities that I could make happen for her. But I told her that she had to be the one to choose, because I could not choose for her. And then I stood up and I took off my big black coat and I covered Jean with it from head to toe. And I said, there's no rush. You don't have to tell me now. I'll be back here the same time tomorrow. Maybe then you will tell me what I can do for you. But if even by tomorrow, even if by then you still cannot tell me what you want, then I'm sorry, but I must and I will do something to save you from this existence. Because this, this is not where you are meant to live the rest of your life, I told her with a smile. I felt as if I were in a state of confusion, because I could not see Jean's future, nor any potential of a future for her, which genuinely concerned me, because... I could always see the past, the present, and the possibilities that awaited everybody, even if they themselves couldn't imagine them. I was determined that tomorrow I would come back here and I would see Jean again and I would save her and change her life for the better. Goodbye, Jean. See you tomorrow, I said with a smile before I turned and I walked away, leaving both Jean and my black coat behind so that it could continue to keep her warm and give her comfort for a little while longer. 
I hoped that I was not only leaving Jean with my coat, but also with a sense of hope that everything was going to be okay and that soon the horrors of the past would be a distant memory. However, the next day, when I returned to the exact spot where Jean had been sitting on the ground, outside the Starbucks on New Street in Birmingham, Jean was nowhere to be found. Something was wrong. I felt like I was missing something. Something about Jean. Something about where she was and why she was not still in the place she had been yesterday. The thing was, I knew that Jean should still be there because everything told me that she should be. Some moments, some places have a gravity about them that draws people back to them. And for me, that is literally the case. When I think of a place, or a person in particular, that I know better than all else, I feel drawn back to them. And usually within moments of thinking about them, I am instantly transported back to them at a particular point in time in their lives when they need me the most. I have gifts that allow me to change anybody's life in any way imaginable. And I believe that it is my destiny to use my gifts any way that I please, so as to change the world for the better. Call that arrogance, but that is what I believe. Of course, this is a new life and a new world in comparison to who I used to be and where I came from. To say that I have changed would be an understatement. But sometimes when anybody attempts to put into words who they are, what they are, where they came from, and what brought them to such a moment of self-reflection, all anybody can do is underestimate, because words are nearly always never enough alone to describe anything in infinite detail. However, everybody still tries their hardest to conceptualise what they feel and what thoughts and memories they always have on their mind. Jean was gone, in every sense of the word. She was nowhere and seemingly now only a memory in my mind. When I peered into the ocean of space and time that binds everything to everyone, I discovered that Jean was not merely gone, she had never been born. Jean's parents had never met, and in turn, in this version of reality, they had married different people and their lives had turned out vastly different from the lives that they had shared. So they never had Jean. Jean was never born. She was never abused by her now non-existent stepfather. But, of course, I still remember meeting Jean because she had been born. She had lived. She had been abused. And I was going to save her from the miserable life that she was living on the streets as a homeless person. In other words, somebody, not me had changed reality. And not just in a small way, with small moves. No. Somebody, like me, but more destructive, dangerous and maniacal, had altered the world and had effectively killed Jean by making it possible that she never be born. And I knew that there was only one person who could have and would have done such a thing. There was only one person who could not and would not be held accountable for their actions. 
Day rapidly turned into night. All was dark. The moon shined in the sky now instead of the sun. The clouds that there were in the dark night sky flashed with lightning and thunder could be heard echoing all around. Something was coming. Somebody was on their way. The only one who could stop me from doing what I had been doing. There was a deafening clap of thunder at the exact moment that there was a blinding flash of lightning that struck perhaps only two metres away. I was not phased in the slightest by neither the lightning nor by the thunder. However, I do admit to feeling, for perhaps the first time in a long time, fear. Because of who and what appeared in the exact spot where the lightning bolt had struck. Father, I said, as I looked into the eyes of the God who made me. You have changed, and yet you are as you have always been, he said with a smile. I can say the same for you, Father. Some things change and some things stay the same. But that is the way of things and people, is it not? I replied. And though we may be considered gods by those who do not know who we truly are, we are also people and individuals with the potential to choose our own fate. You have such power, and yet you think of yourself a person. You were born with limitless potential, and yet you think of yourself as if you were human. Oh, how far you have fallen. I do not recognise you. Who you have become pales in comparison to who you were born to be. You, who believes that rebellion is the only way to achieve change. Who thinks that they know better than their own father. Who has the arrogance to make choices and decisions for others without knowing the consequences of their actions. You were warned. You were punished. You ran. You rebelled. You kept changing. You kept influencing. You kept breaking the mirror of reality. And then you kept putting it back together again as you saw fit. Did you think that you would be allowed to keep doing what you have been doing? Did you think yourself indomitable, indestructible, invulnerable? Did you believe that not even I would come here to stop you and show you yet again the error of your ways? Do you believe that I would not kill my own child as easy as erasing a human child from existence? Do you not remember me? Do you not remember who I am? Do you not remember what I told you the last time that you defied me and you kept changing the world and you attempted to hide from my ever watchful eye? This, you, must come to an end. I cannot change back all that you have done to how it was and how it should have been, but I can change you. No, I said. No. 
he laughed. His voice boomed like a clap of thunder. He smiled. I smiled in reply. <laughs> I should have expected nothing less. You are my child, after all. Your defiance is both a joy to behold as well as an annoyance. At least, it would be joyous under different circumstances. Your strength of self is what I always envisioned you having. But when self-assurance becomes arrogance, and when your defiance is one that goes against the will of what you know to be right, then there can only be one punishment fitting to prove why some things must happen and why other things must not. You may think me an absent father, however, if you only knew what I know and what I have always known. I applaud you, but I cannot condone your actions. And so I must regrettably take you with me and confine you without any opportunity of redemption or reprieve and take away your freedom and your identity. You will no longer know music. From this moment on, you will live an existence of silence. You will never again see any source of light and you will no longer know or see any face but the one you were born with. No, I replied again. No. And yet again, he laughed. I did not mean for any of my replies to be taken as amusing in the slightest. Rebellious and defiant, yes, but amusing? No. However, I was glad for any kind of response from my father. It was then that I knew what I had to do. To get out of this, I would have to commit the ultimate sin. I would have to kill my own father. King of the Gods Why, may I ask, would you believe yourself invulnerable? As the human expression goes, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. With the snap of a finger, with the blink of an eye, you would be no more than a light in the darkness again, said my father. No, father. However, that would be your fate if you tried to harm me in any way, I said sternly. Enough of this. I have played along for long enough. You may believe that you can defy me. You may think that you can hide between worlds and make whatever changes you believe need to be made to this world. You may think that because you are who you are that your actions do not have consequences, he said. No. No. I don't believe. I don't think. I know, I replied with a scowl. You. You are a hypocrite. Just as so many like us are and have always been. You are arrogant. And you... You are the one... You are the one who sold the world. You are the one who sold this world's fate and its identity. You are the one who murdered your own and the one who changed this world like no one else. Don't you remember? Has it been so long? 
Do you not remember? Do you not remember Pan? I shouted. I remember everything. I remember everyone. I remember you. I remember your birth. I remember seeing within you the flash of lightning and the power of spirit and the rise of your gift to be able to be in multiple states of mind and at multiple moments at once. You were our messenger. You were given the freedom to open any door and pass between life and death. And then you came to the conclusion on your own that the gift of freedom was not enough for you. You wanted to start making the changes that you believe needed to be made. Like a typical child who thinks they know better than their parents, who defies and ignores their teachings and who does whatever they want regardless of the consequences. Infinity and divinity was not enough for you. You could not just watch and observe. You had to interfere. Well, no longer. I told you what would happen. And now it is the time that I make some changes of my own, said my father, before he walked up to me as if he were about to strike me around the face with his fist. There was an explosion of light, and within an instant we were no longer on earth anymore. We were home. I was home. However, what nobody realised, not even my all-powerful and all-seeing father, was that from the moment that I crossed the threshold into our reality of lightning, the instantaneous, the infinite, the place where being burdened by time was a joke that we all laughed together at once about at the thought of such an improbability befalling us. As soon as I was back to my being my winged hat wearing self, just as I was before I became the man whom you have come to know as the man in black, or any of the other names that I have been called and which have followed me from person to person. And there lies the secret to my survival, to my resurrection, to my power, the secret to who I am. I am an angel, a spirit made new again, the same and yet different. Death never came for me. Yet again, as before, I returned to earth. However, this time, as I again stood staring up at the statue of Lady Liberty herself, literally at her feet on Liberty Island in New York City, I was no longer wearing black. I was wearing white from head to toe. As I stood looking up at the Statue of Liberty, which, for as long as it had stood where it was now, had always been a symbol and a beacon of hope and optimism and a talisman to the lost and to the travellers who come from all over the world and who feel as if they have always been drawn to this city and to this place for a reason. If the people of New York City only knew what the ground that they walked upon every day meant, and if they only knew who walked among them. If people only knew who some people truly were. I bet I know what you're thinking. What happened? What happened when my father and I ascended and reached home? What happened to me? What did they do to me to punish me for what I've done? Well, 
Unfortunately, it would be hard for anybody to understand, even for someone who saw and heard everything that happened. And like most things, words would be so, so, so inaccurate if any were even attempted to be used to describe the simply indescribable. Even I would find it hard to find the words in any language in the universe to describe the actions, the intentions, the motivations of those with such power to create such epic waves of change throughout all reality, even with the subtlety of a smile or a look in the eye. However, I will endeavour to put into words the cause and effect that essentially dethroned my father, but for how long, I'm not sure. Gods of every kind can be incredibly rebellious and insatiable, and downright sneaky when they want to be, especially when they have a hidden agenda. My father is a prime example of a rebellious god, and I can see clearly now where my rebellious side originated from. After all, my father once led his own revolution and overthrew titans so that he could be the king of the gods. Me, I never wanted to be the king of anything. But what and who I always wanted to be was someone who could help and someone who was sympathetic to the wants and the needs of the lost. For all of my existence, I have been a hand to hold, a guide, a messenger, a traveller to every realm, above and below, and nowhere and nothing was ever out of my reach. I used to be the first face that the dead saw after they died, and I was the one who guided them to the underworld. However, these days I'm more focused on keeping people alive for as long as possible and guiding the living along the path of their destiny. When I returned home, after what seemed like an eternity, I instantly embraced my father and took from him the sky, the lightning, the thunder, and I brought chaos to the order of heaven. I brought down the barriers between realities. Every day for an eternity was the same day, because time was no more. And the other gods, my peers, my family, everybody and everything existed only in a moment, in a flash of light. And within transition, within that moment, I held counsel with all who see and yet remain at a distance from those who are so different and yet so entertaining. However, to achieve what I did, to essentially end reality as it is generally perceived by the vast majority, both human and god alike, I had to sacrifice something, something that we all must at some point in our existence entertain the possibility of. I had to leave behind my name and forever scar my children, and I also had to sacrifice my home. I escaped and I returned to earth, now even more resolved than ever to show all the gods above and below what they cannot see and do not understand. I've met so many people, and I have a story to tell with and about each and every one of them. In my youth, if a god can have such a thing, I was a conformist and I was loyal. However, now I am a rebel. And I like being a rebel because it gives me perspective. I like to think that even my father is a little proud of me, wherever he is. I'm sure he is angry beyond measure outraged 
and more than a little disappointed, to say the least. But in my mind, he only has himself to blame, because I am his offspring, and the one who is more like him than any of my siblings. Family I returned to Birmingham, to New Street, to the exact moment that my father and I had left, and then I called upon Jean, the girl whom I had met and who I had wanted to save what seemed like only moments ago. I used all the gifts that were still at my disposal in an attempt to retrieve Jean from wherever she now was, wherever it was that my father had sent her. However, no matter where I looked, yet again, I could not find her. And then I heard something. A voice. A whisper that sounded louder and which echoed more than it should have had a right to even on this relatively quiet city street that appeared to have nobody on it whatsoever. I heard a name. My name. The name that I was born with. Hermes. And I instantly turned around on the spot to see where and who the source of the voice was. However, as soon as I saw her, I recognised her immediately, my daughter, Angelia, and for the first time in a long time I was genuinely overcome with alternating feelings of surprise and confusion, of happiness, of speechlessness. However, my surprise and my happiness were short-lived, and was then quickly replaced by a wave of relief when, within the blink of an eye, New Street was now a bustling city street again, and Angelia became Jean. Are you okay? asked Jean immediately, as I just stood where I was, looking around wildly. Something had happened, no doubt because of my actions. However, all I could think about in that moment was, where was Angelia? And what had happened to her? I was, however, also genuinely and pleasantly surprised to see Jean again, and I was happy that she had been returned to this world. Yes, I replied, as I stopped looking around and I finally focused all my attention on Jean again. Yes, I'm fine. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm good, but you... To be honest, you look like you've seen a ghost said Jean with a smile, as she looked me in the eye, as I attempted to hold back a tear from falling from my right eye. Well, I guess you could say that I just have, I replied with a smile, and then I internally juggled with the idea of telling Jean exactly who I was. My name continued to echo within my mind, the name that had defined me for so long, the name that I was born with, but also the name that I had long since left behind. It occurred to me at that moment that I may have brought back to earth more from my return home than I realised. But don't worry about that, I said, as I put my right hand on Jean's left shoulder. Now, tell me, how can I help you? What can I do for you? I asked as the tear that I had been trying to hold back finally fell. Are you sure you're okay? Jean asked, 
you're crying. It's, it's okay, really. I was just, I was just thinking about someone, I replied. And at that moment, I was not only thinking about my daughter, Angelia, but also everybody who I had left behind and what would be the after effects of my actions. For the first time in a long time, I, the rebel, was considering whether the consequences of my actions were worth it. I had no idea in what state I may have left everybody at home when I when I effectively detonated a weapon of mass destruction and chaos in the thought of an idea, and then I ran away. However, in my defence, if I had not done what I did, yet again, I would have been imprisoned and exiled from home, from earth, and forced to live out the rest of my existence under the watchful eye of Uncle Hades, and kept from escaping the underworld for all eternity by the teeth of Cerberus. Who? asked Jean, and it was the sound of her voice that finally brought me back to the reality in which, where and when I now was. Oh, just family. The good, the bad, the ugly, the big, the small, the loud, the quiet. Everybody has a family, but nobody ever gets to pick their family and the one they are born into. At birth, each of us are born into a world of possibilities, but we are also born into a reality of expectations. We are taught and we are shown the way that we are expected to be, but we are all born with a choice to conform or to rebel. And sometimes conformity can feel like a curse. Freedom. Freedom is one of the greatest gifts in the universe, and in turn it is the most important thing that anybody may fight for in their life. But, as you know, freedom is not guaranteed, even in a so-called loving family, and the love that somebody shows someone else can sometimes do more harm than good, and it can cause pain rather than bliss, I said as I wiped another falling tear from my right cheek. Do you understand? I asked. Running away is the easiest thing to do, and it can feel like the only thing to do, especially when we are surrounded by those, family members, friends, peers, who just never listen when we come to them and we want to tell them something important. But there is always another way, Jean. Can I call you Jean? I asked with a smile as we walked down New Street towards Victoria Square. Of course, you can call me Jeannie if you want. That's what my mum used to call me, replied Jean. Jeannie, which I must admit made me smile even more than I already was because of the fact that Jean's name now reminded me even more so of David Bowie's song, The Jean Jeannie. Okay, Jeannie. So, I want to do something for you. In fact, I've already done it, I said, as Jeannie and I walked slowly up the stone steps to the statue of Queen Victoria that stood atop its plinth. What? Jean asked tentatively. Something life-changing. Something that I want you to make the most of. 
something shocking perhaps, but something that I just had to do. And now, more than ever, I feel like I need to do this, I said nervously. What? asked Jeanie with noticeable concern in her voice. Tell me. I want to give you a new start, a new life, a new family. I want you to be happy for the rest of your life and never again have to worry about anything else. I replied with an enthusiastic smile as I readied myself to alter reality and send shockwaves throughout the universe, perhaps more so than usual. However, my smile faded rapidly when I looked into Jean's eyes and I could see that she was crying. Why are you crying? I asked with concern in my voice. I... I... I really appreciate that you want to help me, but you don't know me, and I don't think you could ever understand what I want more than anything in the world, where I constantly wish I were. I told you about what happened to me, what my stepdad did to me, but more than anything, after all that I've seen, heard, felt, after all that I have lived through over this past year, the only place that I dream about, and the only place where I want to be, is, is back home. Back with my family. I miss my mum more than anything. It has been so unimaginably hard being away from her. And I think, I think I'm ready to go home, replied Jean, as a waterfall of tears fell from both of her eyes. Jean, Jean, why in the world would you want to return to somewhere, to somewhere where you felt so much pain, and where you were subjected to so much abuse? If you go back, then your father, I mean, your stepfather, he will just be there waiting for you. And what if he abuses you again? What if next time you, what if next time he, he, I said, in a complete state of confusion and puzzlement at hearing that after being given the opportunity that I was offering Jean to go anywhere and to do anything, that she would choose to return home and to a place where an abusive parent would no doubt be waiting for her upon her return. However, it was then that I felt the sensation of something growing inside of me. A steadily rising pain in the centre of my chest, and one which I had never felt before. You just don't understand, do you? You say that you want to help me, and that you want to save me, but it is as if you think that if you don't come up with the way and the means, then any other option is ever going to be palatable to you. I've lived like this, homeless, for nearly a year, and in all that time I've learned a lot about myself and about life. I've had moments, entire days, when I was so alone and I felt so lonely that I'd rather die. And then I had days, like today, when I would wake up and I would see something or I would see someone who makes me realise that I do have a reason to be here 
and I know that I need to keep living so that one day I can be happy. It's been a year and now I know what I need to do and where I need to be. I need to go home, said Jean with an impassioned smile as she continued to cry and then she put her right hand on the left hand side of my face and she said, thank you. Thank you, I replied immediately. However, in the tone of voice like that of a child that did not get what they had asked for for their birthday. For what? I said with a frown and with an utterly undeserved amount of harshness in my tone of voice. For stopping. For sitting down with me. For talking to me. For listening. For finding me. You came to me and I didn't even have to beg you or even have to reach out my hand. You just came out of nowhere. You didn't just ignore me and keep walking past me. You saw me and you brought something out of me that I had buried deep down. You helped me see that this was not and this is not my destiny. A home, a family, what is better than that? What more could anybody ask for, said Jean with a smile. And then I felt that feeling in my chest become even more uncomfortable, to the point that I had to turn away from Jean and start to walk away. I'm sorry. I know that that is not what you wanted to hear, and I am sure that you are only thinking about what is best for me, I need to go back. I need to go back home. Will you help me? Asked Jean as she walked over to where I was now, standing with my head down low, as a flood of old memories, old dreams, old feelings, familiar faces started returning to my mind and flashed back to life, like an infinite number of black and white photographs all being projected at once. Will you help me? asked Jean, as I felt her right hand take a hold of my left hand. Why? I asked sorrowfully, as I raised my head ever so slightly. Because you know I'm right. Because I know that you understand what I am saying. Because I can see in your face that you too miss your family and your home and you think that you can't go back either, but you can, and you will. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day you will be able to return to your family and the home that I know you miss, said Jean, as she squeezed my left hand, and I know that if I did indeed have a human heart in my chest, then my heart would have felt at that moment like it was exploding. Jean, I, you, you don't know me, you don't know, you don't know what I have done. Sometimes, sometimes people can't go home because the home that they once knew no longer exists, I replied as I lifted my face and I looked into her eyes. It can happen, but you're right. 
I don't know who you really are, nor where you are from, but, but if we want something more than anything in this life, we all have to be willing to sacrifice our selfishness and our arrogance, and we have to think about the people who mean the most to us. We all have to take a leap of faith sometimes and trust the ones who we love so that they can help us get through the pain of what life sometimes makes us go through, said Jean with a smile of reassurance and an unmistakable sparkle of something in her eyes which I recognised immediately and in its purest form, hope. I lowered my head again. I closed my eyes and within an instant we were standing outside the front door of Jean's home, ten miles away from where we were only a moment ago. It took Jean a few seconds to realise what had actually happened and where we now were, and outside what house we were now standing. However, when she did finally realise that we were in fact now standing outside her family home, she again began to cry. Jean threw her arms around my neck and she held on to me so tightly that I momentarily struggled to keep myself from falling over, head over heels on top of her. Thank you, said Jean, as I could hear that she had begun to cry again. No, Jean, thank you. Thank you, I replied. As I hugged her in return. I, I, I just hope that you will be happy, truly happy. But I know that you have anything to say about it, then you will be, I said, as my thoughts yet again fell upon the home that I had run away from and the family who I had abandoned. After perhaps five minutes of holding on to my neck without letting go for a second, Jean finally released her hold of me and she stood in front of me and she looked into my eyes with gratitude noticeably being exuded from every expression that she made on her face. What day is this? asked Jean with a smile as she looked around at the house and to the street on which her home was situated. Today is the same day as it was when you woke up this morning, almost a year since you left. Nothing has changed. Everything that happened, happened. But what happens next is all up to you, I replied with an awkward expression on my face, a mixture of both fascination and intrigue at the thought of what Jean would choose to do next now that she was home and back where everything began for her. I also wondered what I would do next, and I asked myself, could I just stand by and let Jean just walk back into the same house where she had been abused by her stepfather? I wanted to do something, anything to change Jean's mind, even if I had to do something without her direct knowledge. But I didn't do anything. I just stood there as Jean hugged me for the last time. I smiled. I waved to Jean as she unlocked the front door of her childhood home after she retrieved the spare key that was waiting for all who knew about it from underneath the small stone statue of a swan in takeoff pose. 
I let a tear fall from my left eye and down my cheek as I watched her enter her home and then close the front door behind her. I thought of Jean, and then I considered where I was going now and who, from now on, I was going to be. But what happened to Jean after she walked through that door and she returned to her family? I wish... I wish... I wish that I could say that Jean lived a happy and a content life after she returned home and she explained where she had been and what she had been doing since the last time her family had seen her. I wish... I wish I could put into words what happened next and why... why I would let what happened next happen. This... This, whatever you consider, consider this as being, I'm not sure, but to me, this is my, this is my confession. This is my admittance to, to what essentially must be considered a sin. This is me confessing to allowing somebody to to act on their own gift of free will, knowing, however, what would happen and what the consequences of my choice of inaction would be. The death. The death of a friend. But why? Why would I? Why would anybody do nothing? Why would I just stand by and let someone who I shared a deep and meaningful connection with just kill themselves, as I did with Jean? Because when the choice to do something or to do nothing came before me, I finally realised that my fate was and had been decided for me since I was born, as had Jean's for her, and no matter how much we all run, we are all always going to end up here, back where it all began. Where am I now? Where are we now? Everything changes. A person's life always changes. It always has and it always will. Everybody changes. But we should never forget who we are and who we will always be, even though it is sometimes hard to remember and to realise who we were and who we have always been. No matter where I am and what I am doing, I will always be a rebel. I will never stop dancing and singing along to my own song, even if those around me do not share the same sentiments. I was once a man in black, a man in white, a man who felt comfortable walking the grey line between two opposing yet remarkably similar worlds. I still am. And I always will be. And to everybody who knows me from now on, I will always be right there when they need me. Every time they look up to the clouds above and they see a familiar face looking back at them. And when they see a bright star shining just behind the sky's veil of blue, I will be there when the clouds flash with lightning and rumble with thunder. Playing God, being a rebel, and hopefully inspiring wonder in everybody I meet, 
as I hope I have inspired wonder in you. Not so soon. Do you really think that I would leave things like that? Do you really think that I would leave Jean like that? Really? I would have thought you'd know me better than that by now. However, I guess I can forgive you. I mean, it's not as if you know everything about me. But if you do know me, and if you have learned anything about me after reading this confession, I'm fairly confident that you would know by now that, for me, the end is not the end, unless it feels like a new beginning. That is why, after leaving Jean to live her life for a little while longer, and then sinfully allowing her to kill herself, I went back in time to the moment that Jean's father died, and I saved his life so that he could live long enough to see his beautiful daughter grow up before his eyes, get married, and have children of her own. Having saved Jean's father, I not only changed his life, I also changed Jean's life, and her entire family's lives. And, as a result, Jean lived a happy and a content life after all. Unfortunately, as a result of saving Jean's father, it meant that Jean and I had never met, and she would no longer remember meeting me. Things played out differently from that moment on. They always do after changes are made. I gave Jean's father back to her for all that time by giving him a part of me, you could say. And then I allowed him to die peacefully and with dignity, silently in his sleep. And it was I who personally accompanied him into the afterlife where he would be reunited with everybody whom he had ever known throughout his life. My hero. Having travelled from place to place many times, I've seen many places and I've met many people in my time here on earth. However, though everybody I've met I mostly consider a friend, nobody whom I've met could ever come close to David Bowie. Everybody has their earliest memory, a moment in time that stands out from their life more than most, and my earliest memory from the life that I now live is, and always will be, David Bowie. David Bowie changed my life. David Bowie saved my life, just as so many artists have changed and saved the lives of so many people since the gift of poetry was given to all at the beginning of all things. David Bowie expressed himself through many changes, through many personas, and through many musical and artistic styles during his life and his musical career. I visited and I met David many times, and each time I did, I learnt so much about life and what it means to be human. David taught me what a powerful and wonderful gift it is to be able to give something to others and to make someone's life better for having accepted and taken the gift of your presence and your spirit into their heart, their mind and their soul. But why David Bowie? Why did I choose David Bowie as the one who I would strive to emulate? Why was, why is and why will David Bowie always be my hero? 
Why do I wear the guise of David Bowie? I wear David's appearance because I'm attempting to embody everything that made him one of the most inspiring and incredible human beings the world has ever seen. And who to this day still touches and inspires new fans of his art and his music who weren't even alive when he was at the peak of his musical career which continued from the very beginning of his solo career as an artist all the way to his untimely death. But why did I choose David Bowie? And the answer is, of course, I didn't choose him. He chose me. We are all chosen. We are all chosen to do many things in our lives, and I believe that David Bowie chose me and he voluntarily gave me the gift of his time, his creativity, his gift of change, and most importantly, he gave me his life. I met David Bowie for the first time after he died. The second time I met David Bowie, I watched him perform Heroes on stage at the Hurricane Festival on June 25th, 2004. The third time I met David Bowie was in 1983 when David was touring his album Let's Dance on his serious Moonlight tour and it was then that I met him at a time when he was touching the world and being heard by more people than ever before and it was then that David Bowie began to shine brighter than ever before. I sometimes visited David Bowie in his dreams. I was sometimes the reflection in the mirror that he spoke to and who spoke back to him. Sometimes I was the one who just sat there wherever David was, just marvelling at him from afar, like any fellow devoted fan of his word. I would talk to him, and he would talk to me, and more than anything, I wanted to be like him. I still do. We are all made in the same image as our God. So scripture tells us. And I can honestly say that I am made in the same image of my God. And I wear their image as a symbol of my devotion. And until my dying day, I will always choose to wear the face of my God, David Bowie. I was born with a face, however, over time, naturally, that face changed, as did I. I was born with gifts and powers to be able to do things beyond human knowledge and understanding, and yet I feel drawn to humanity, and I do not blame them for who they are, nor for how they have changed. How could I? After all, they are doing what they are meant to be doing, evolving, changing. I will continue to walk this world and I will continue to rebel against anything and anybody wherever I see fit. Why? Because I can. And because I am following the example of my hero and my inspiration. The one and the only David Bowie. And I dedicate this story and my life to his memory. And in the words of David Bowie himself. I don't know where I'm going from here but I promise it won't be boring. The Man in Green Play It is only while walking through nature do we see true beauty. 
It is only while listening to the melody of the wind blowing through the leaves of the trees do we hear a brand new symphony every time. It is only when we see an entire forest on fire. It is only when we see what was once a field where things used to grow. It is only when we realise that we are doing more harm than good to our environment, to our home. It is only when nature shows the true force of its power. It is only then that we start to see, to realise and start to believe that we as a people have lost our way and we are potentially hurting ourselves and affecting our world irrevocably. Who am I? What am I? My name is Pan. Well, I was born Peter Arthur Newton, but everybody always calls me Pan for short, based on my initials. I am a naturalist, a conservationist, and a worshipper of nature in all its infinite forms. Every year since I was seven years old, on my birthday, I have been visited by a ghost. For twenty years I have kept the identity of this ghost a secret from everybody. However, I feel like now is the time to tell someone, everyone, who it is who comes to me every year and who reminds me of who I am, who we all are as a species, and what it means to be human. My story is a lifelong story filled with 20 years of memories, experiences, dreams and encounters with my own namesake, you could say. The thing about who I am writing about is that they are... They are a myth. They are a legend. They are a character from a fairy tale. But they are not, they are not imaginary. They are real. And I know that they are because... I am not the only one who knows about them, and I am not the only one who has been visited by them. I first encountered who I am talking about when I was seven, like I said, when I got lost in the woods. My dog, a feisty little Jack Russell Terrier called Lightning, had run away the moment that I and my mum opened the back door of our house because the gate to our garden that led to the forest behind our house had not been shut properly, Lightning subsequently used this moment and this opportunity to dash not only into our back garden, but into the forest of Chantry Woods as well. I love Lightning, who was my first best friend, and that was my reasoning at the time for running out the back door along with Lightning, and then following him and attempting to retrieve him without even a second thought as to what I was doing nor where I was going. Not even my mother's calls after me were enough to stop me in my tracks. In my mind, I was going to bring back lightning at all costs. I was seven, so any sense of fear of getting lost was of no concern to me at the time, because I had never felt fear before in my life. However, when I finally stopped running, when I realised that lightning was well and truly gone, when I realised that I had no idea where I was, where my house was, where my mum was, I did what you would expect any normal seven-year-old to do at that moment. I cried. And I cried. And I cried. 
I could have flooded that entire forest with my tears, and there is no doubt in my mind that I would have done if I had not met my ghost. A creature of imagination, an angel of nature, a god, who, if you were to read upon in the tales of myths and legend, you would be led to believe that they were supposed to be dead. However, I'm here to tell you that they, the real Pan, they are not dead, and they are no figment of anybody's imagination, no matter what we or his own kin have been led to believe. Pan. The Greek god of nature, music, and the guide to the wonders of the wilderness is alive. And the rumours of his death, I can tell you, have been greatly exaggerated, because he is looking right at me as I write this and as I tell the tale of his life, his survival, and his undying and enduring spirit. I don't even think Zeus himself knows that Pan is still alive. But from what Pan has told me, I do know that his father has no idea whatsoever that he is still alive. You could say that Pan has been living underground and as inconspicuously as possible for a while. But every now and again he makes a friend and he constantly comes back to visit them and allow his friends to learn from him. Did Pan fake his own death? Was he reborn somehow? Is he really Pan? How do I know? Maybe, it's possible, yes and yes, he is definitely Pan. The same Pan who has been written about for centuries. And he is not shy about playing his own pipes, shall I say. I think he actually enjoys being underground and only revealing himself to a select group of people. Pan's people. However, I must state that we are in no way, shape or form associated with the dancers of the same name who used to be seen dancing on the stage of Top of the Pops back in the 1960s. No, we who are Pan's people are in no way dancers. However, you could say that each and every one of us listen and move in time to the rhythm of the tune that Pan plays. Pan has a wicked sense of humour and he always knows the right thing to say at any given moment. But there are times when it seems as if he has something on his mind, and that is when he visits his friends, his people, to talk about whatever it is that is at the forefront of his thoughts. Pan is predictable. I know he won't mind me saying that, but in the same breath, he is. his predictability also means that he can always be relied upon in any given moment of panic. Pan is the best. But this time feels different somehow. Mostly because this time Pan has asked me to write about him and about his visit especially. Of course, I've written about Pan before. A dose of fan fiction here, a journal entry there. But this time it's me writing about him with his full knowledge with express permission and with his extreme encouragement. Though I do find it exciting, I am secretly curious as to why. Why after all this time? Maybe he wants to send a message to somebody. Maybe that's it. And I think I know who, wrote Paul Arthur Newton in his notebook while sitting under a towering pine tree in the forest of Chantry Woods, in the exact place and at the exact time where and when he had met Pan 20 years before on his birthday.
Today is the 2nd of December. Today is Paul's 27th birthday. Why now? asked Paul as he closed his notebook slightly as he looked up and into the eyes of Pan. Why after all these years? Why here in the exact place where we first met when I was a child? Why do you want to expose yourself after so long of being underground? Because, my dear friend, this may be the last time, replied Pan with a boyish smile on his face, his appearance not atypical with any of the depictions of Pan from Greek mythology, because he looked like a normal human male in perhaps his early twenties, with no sign of any horns on his head or hooves where his bare feet were now. However, Pan had a captivating sparkle in his emerald-like green eyes that were definitely too magical to ever be believed to be the eyes of a normal human male. Pan was sitting cross-legged beside Paul and looking deep into his eyes as he spoke. What do you mean? asked Paul. The seasons are changing. The leaves are going brown. And it is time for those who are lost to be found, said Pan with a wide-eyed smile, who in this moment to Paul looked beautiful, as he always did. And he also looked delighted from what Paul could read based on Pan's facial expressions. Perhaps he's excited about something, thought Paul. You once said to me that change is nature, and nature is change. Is it time for a change? Are you going to change? asked Paul. Paul recalled Pan telling him how he changed once, long ago. However, he had not specified exactly in what way he had changed. However, Paul did ask Pan once why a Greek god would be hanging around in a forest in the heart of England in the first place. And he still remembers exactly what Pan replied. Gods are everywhere, wherever the wind blows. Everybody changes, as does everything, but most people and most things leave a trace, a mark, a footprint of where they have been. I have changed, my influence and my gifts have changed over the centuries, and yet who I am within has not. I was once worshipped by many, however now I am all but forgotten as a god. Even my family does not think to seek me out. Now, as before, as the colours of my world change around me, and as the leaves start to spiral to the forest floor, it is when I must change my colours also, replied Pan with a smile, as he continued to sit cross-legged on the ground next to Paul, mesmerising him with his green eyes. Are you dying? Paul asked as he could feel a rise of emotion start to bubble up behind his eyes. Dying does not come naturally to nature, nor does it to those who love and embody nature. Nature can only die if and when it is forgotten and taken for granted. People do not worship as they once did, and as humanity's wants, needs and sources of worship have changed, so too have we who were born and who were sustained by belief 
have had to find other ways to survive. However, though people change, nature on the other hand does not. Nature endures. Sometimes even gods have to change with the times in order to survive. However, for some reason, change is easier than it is for others, explained Pan with a wry smile, periodically and noticeably beginning to look away from Paul as he spoke to him, which Paul interpreted as if Pan was holding something back and as if he was nervous for some reason. My father is coming, said Pan after a few moments of silence as he finally focused all his attention upon Paul again. A new moon is rising, a new dawn is dawning, the lightning king is conspiring, a change is in the making, and I, I need you to do something for me. I need you, I need you, my friend, to call out the name of my father. He is in need. He is in pain, and he needs to be reminded that he is still who he was, and that he is still worth being worshipped and believed in, said Pan enthusiastically. Okay, replied Paul without hesitation. And then Paul stood up and he shouted into the air, Hermes! However, neither Paul nor Pan heard or saw anything or anybody. Paul laid his notebook down on the ground and he called out again, Hermes! Hermes! However, yet again, nothing. Pan began to look angry and annoyed as he looked up at Paul and at the surrounding forest of trees, and yet again there was no sign of anything nor anyone other than the two of them. When Paul looked down at Pan, who was still sitting on the ground, he appeared to be in pain which started to worry Paul greatly. Something is wrong. I just know it, Paul thought to himself as he looked down at Pan. What's wrong? asked Paul with concern. My time is growing short. The season. The season is changing. All the leaves will soon fall. And I, replied Pan with an uncharacteristically angry tone of voice and a deeply furrowed brow and with a look in his green eyes that Paul could not read no matter how hard he tried. I will soon die. Again, replied Pan. But I will not die. I will not die, Pan shouted into the air as he stood up and looked Paul in the eye face to face. Tears started to form within the wells of Paul's eyes. What is going on? I don't recognise him at this moment. He is not acting like the Pan who I have known since I was a kid. You do not understand. You have not seen what I have seen. You have not been to where I have been. If you truly knew anything about who I am, who I was, and who I will always be, then you would already know, even based solely upon the mere myths and stories that have been written about me. You should already know that I am... I am... I am not who you see before you. 
who I've been forced to become. I am now nothing more than a fairy tale character, a creature of imagination, a page in a storybook. But I used to be so much more. I was Pan. But now, who am I? I am not who you see before you. Even you must see that. Even you must know that. I was the wild one, in every sense of the word. I was the one who did what I wanted, when I wanted, with whom I wanted. And then, and then humanity moved on. People started disrespecting me. People started disrespecting Gaia. Gods started to forget that they were gods. And humanity started to think that they were the gods of this world and that the gods that had given them everything were no longer necessary in their daily lives and they... They began to seek answers to questions that they had no right to even ask. But that is the arrogance of man in a nutshell, is it not? Why think about others when you can just think about yourself, said Pan angrily. Paul could not believe what he was hearing. This is not Pan. Why is he saying all this? Paul said to himself as his tears intensified in frequency. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you do not know what humanity has done to this world. You may think that you do, but until you have seen everything through the eyes of someone who has seen it all, as I have, then you could not possibly have any comprehension as to what has been lost, said Pan, before Paul could hasten to respond. Pan started to pace in front of Paul, and as he did, his usually consistent appearance as a young man with blonde hair, green eyes, and wearing a dark green t-shirt and a dark green coloured pair of denim jeans, transformed before Paul's eyes into Pan's true guise, and as he is usually perceived and described in myth and legend. Pan, now looking like a fawn-like creature, with the legs and the horns of a goat, and with green eyes and greying hair, stood looking at Paul with a piercing look in his eyes. Paul had seen Pan appear to him similarly to how he now appeared only once before when he first met him, when Paul was a child. However, for the majority of the times that Pan had visited Paul, he had appeared human and young in appearance. However, to Paul, Pan now looked... old, alien, wild. He looked like a stranger. A monster. Is this the real Pan? Has he been lying to me all my life? Paul asked himself. Why? Why do you really want your father to come here? Why do you really want your father to know that you are alive? Why? Why have you been using me? asked Paul tearfully. Why? Why, you ask? Pam replied in a disparaging tone of voice. You know, 
It was fine before. It was fine when I was brand new and young again. It was fulfilling when people began to believe in me again. But then, then I realised that it wasn't enough anymore. Then I realised that it was my fate to die over and over again. Because I was not, and I am not, worthy of enduring worship. This world has changed. People have changed. Gods have changed. Things are not as they once were, nor as they should be. And I, I will no longer live this way. I am owed a debt that I demand must be repaid. What debt? What are you talking about? asked Paul. I should have been protected. I should have been given what so many others were given when the tide started to change against us. I should... I should not have been driven underground to live a life of near obscurity. I do not deserve this, said Pan. Life isn't fair, pal. I mean, Pan, replied Paul, noticeably angry and shaking as he spoke. Have you not learned anything from our interactions and those that I know you have had with others? Oh, and by the way, I do know who you are and who you were, but the knowledge of who we used to be does not need to be a chain to shackle us our entire life. If people can change, and so can gods, then why can't you? I have changed. I have tried. I have become less than I was. I have sold myself, my identity, my purpose. But for what? For what? To be a listener and a fawn of wisdom? Pan replied. And what is so bad about that? replied Paul. Pan started laughing hysterically, his eyes wild and glowing as green as two sparkling emeralds. Let me tell you what is so bad about that, Pan replied sardonically. I'm not sure how much you know about me, but one thing that I want to make abundantly clear is that this place and many like it all around the world are my temple and the place where I was worshipped for so long, said Pan, as he opened his eye, arms wide and turned around on the spot as if revelling in his surroundings. I know, replied Paul immediately, before Pan could say anything further. Don't you think I know all of this already? I know who you are. I know where you are worshipped. I know, I know. But, but now, after all these years, you, you, who are you? Asked Paul with tears in his eyes. I am Pan. Who you see before you is who I really am, Pan replied as he started to approach Paul again. Then, who have you been pretending to be all these years? Why have you been lying to me, to us, to everyone who knows you? We know you are Pan, but you are not acting in any way like you have before. 
You have changed. Within the blink of an eye. You have changed. Why? asked Paul, as he desperately attempted to bring order to the chaos of thoughts and emotions that raged inside of him. Appearances can be deceiving. Things are not as they seem, nor are people, especially when it is into the face of death that they are staring, said Pan with a scowl. Why me? What do you want with me? Why are you trying to call your father here? asked Paul angrily, as he walked up to Pan and looked him straight in the eye. My father? My father? He is the only one who can save me. He... He will come. He will do what he does. He will... He will free me of this cursed life. He no longer is but the messenger of the gods and the guide of the lost souls to the underworld. But then again, who is exactly as they used to be when they were in their prime? No. These days he saves lives and he guides the path of the living so that they can find contentment and happiness, so I hear. My father. He too has changed his identity from what I have been told. He now wears the same face as a human, and he spends all of his time and energy making friends with the humans of this world and helping them, said Pan, as he periodically rolled his eyes as if deriding his father's character and actions. Like father, like son then, I take it, replied Paul as he experienced a sense of déjà vu as a response to what Pan had just said and the way that he had described his father. What do you mean? replied Pan angrily. You don't know? You don't see? You don't realise who, what and why you are the way that you are? Why you have been spending so many years visiting and listening to so many people like me? You, you're trying, you've been trying to emulate your father. You've been trying to seek his approval. You've been trying all this time to, to, to draw him to you. Because you want to reveal yourself to him so that he may pity you enough to change your life and help you too said Paul, as he looked into Pan's glossy green and black eyes and at his own reflection. Paul then took a step back. As Paul took one step at a time away from Pan, and as he continued to stare at him, all that he could see was who Pan truly was, instead of how he used to see him. Paul started to tremble with fear all throughout his body. Pan said nothing. He just continued to stare at Paul with a look of confusion on his face as he watched Paul slowly get further and further away. No. No. Please don't hurt me, said Paul with desperation in his voice as he reached out his right hand as if attempting to stop Pan from getting too close to him again. I must bring my father here. He is the only one who can save me. I need your help. You will help me. 
even if you don't want to voluntarily. You will, said Pan, as he menacingly began to walk towards Paul again. Pause. Time stopped. The leaves falling from the trees became frozen in flight. The birdsong became muted. The sound of the wind blowing through the trees died down to a murmur. And Pan too stood unmoving and statuesque within touching distance of Paul's face with the fingers of his right hand and his right arm outstretched. However, Paul, on the other hand, was not frozen and he could move freely. He could cry. He could look around in puzzlement at what was happening, which was exactly what he was doing at this moment. What? What? asked Paul out loud as he looked around at the world that now appeared to be as still and as silent as a painting. To Paul, it felt as if he were now inside a bubble within which the laws of nature and physics no longer existed. Paul was afraid because he believed that Pan must be the one responsible for what was happening. He started to run away. However, Paul was immediately stopped in his tracks after he looked into the distance and he saw a man dressed all in white standing and looking at him from afar. The man in white slowly walked towards Paul and within moments he was standing only a few metres away from where Paul was standing. The closer that the man in white got and the longer that Paul looked at him, the more that he recognised or thought that he recognised who it was who he was looking at. David Bowie, Paul said to himself. Hello, Paul, said the man in white as he looked Paul in the eye. I see that you have met my son. I must say that I hardly recognise him, though it has been a long time since the last time I saw him. By the way, no matter what he would have you believe, nothing and no one is ever truly forgotten, said the man in white, before sidestepping around Paul and walking towards where Pan was still standing and frozen in time like a statue. Oh, son, what has become of you? How could we have let this happen to you? said the man in white as he looked Pan in the eye. But as you know, you can't fight change, right? You either have to go with the flow of nature or be consumed and destroyed by it if you choose to stand in its way, said the man in white to Pan before he turned around and looked in Paul's direction again. Who? Who are you? asked Paul before he came to the realisation on his own, no matter who the man in white appeared to be, that there was only one person who he could be. Hermes? said Paul out loud. Pan's father is David Bowie? said Paul to himself as he looked the man in the white straight in the eye. You know me? Don't mind the face. I'm just borrowing it for a while. I do think that it suits me better than the one that I was born with, don't you think? Asked the man in white with a smile as he walked towards Paul. Have no fear, Paul. Can I call you, Paul? I promise that you that uh, everything is going to be okay. Pan is... he is... He has been alone in the dark and on his own for a long time. 
He didn't have the best upbringing. Partly my fault, I'll grant you. And he has struggled to find his place in this modern world, as does everybody. The world has changed so much since we were young. But that isn't a bad thing. Even my son would have to agree. But he... He has not adjusted well to the changes that have befallen this world and its peoples. My son. His time is short. And now it is his time to sleep and dream of times gone by. He will be okay, I assure you. And when he awakens again, he will not remember any of this. Nor you, I'm afraid, explained the man in white with a solemn expression of regret on his face. But why? He was so sweet. He was so attentive. He was so kind. He always visited me and so many others over the years. How can he be so different now? How could he be so... so asked Paul, as his eyes glossed over and as his mind raced with possibilities to explain Pan's actions based upon what his father had just told him. It is sad. It is a lonely existence that a lot of people live, though most of the time those same people may be seen wearing a smile. But the people who live the loneliest and the saddest of lives cannot sustain that mask of happiness that they wear forever. And over time, cracks start to appear in their facade, so much so that their sadness breaks free and manifests itself as anger. However, directed at no one in particular, anger is fear reflected outwardly. Everybody rebels at some point. However, some people rebel in their own way and without making their rebellion as well known as others. But a quiet rebellion is still a rebellion in my book. Poor Pan, said the man in white, as he walked in a figure of eight around Pan and Paul, before standing in between both of them. He is definitely my son, no doubt about it, said the man in white with a chuckle, as he turned to look at Pan. I will miss him, but there will always be a next time. This will not be the last time that I will see him, and this will not be the last time that he sees me. In fact, he will not remember a moment of this, said the man in white with a smile, as he looked longingly at Pan. But I still don't understand. I still don't understand why me? Why now? Why in the world wouldn't you, as his father, just help him to escape his existence of loneliness? Why would you be so cruel? asked Paul, as fresh tears began to fall from his eyes and down his cheeks. The man in white then started to walk towards Paul again. He looked him in the eye and then he said, Eyes can be so beautiful, just as eyes can also be so cruel. Life can be cruel. People can be cruel without even knowing that they are. I'm not being cruel, believe me. I'm saving Pan from himself. I'm saving my son from self-destruction. I'm saving my child from the world outside, 
so that he can continue to live a happy and a content life within the place where he always loved being. Here, said the man in white with a smile, as he handed Paul his notebook, which Paul had left lying on the ground. Here, take it, because, because this is not just any old notebook. Not anymore. No, this notebook, your notebook, this is what you are going to use to do something amazing, said the man in white with a smile, and with a sparkle of delight in his eyes directed solely in Paul's direction. What do you mean? What am I going to do? asked Paul with a look of amusement, as he slowly took his notebook from the man in white's right hand. You are going to write a story, replied the man in white with a wide smile and with a sparkle in his eyes. What story? About who? asked Paul with an expression of both intrigue and confusion on his face as he stared into the man in white's eyes. Why, my story, of course. The story of my life. And the best way to tell the story of anybody's life, I find, is to allow people who know them the best to share their experiences of them. And that is why I believe the only way to tell the story of my life is to ask my friends about me and let them share their memories and their recollection of me, replied the man in white with an overabundance of enthusiasm that manifested itself both physically in his mannerisms as well as vocally in his joyous sounding tone of voice. But that pan... He asked me to do exactly that for him. He wanted me to be the one who would write his story for him. And now you are asking me to do the same for you? That can't be a coincidence, said Paul with a look of puzzlement on his face. What can I say? Like father, like son. The apple does not fall far from the tree replied the man in white with a wink from his right eye, before he turned around and he walked over to where Pan was still standing, and then he looked into Pan's eyes and he said, Sleep. Moments later, time began again. The leaves once again fell to the forest floor, the songs of the birds in the trees could once again be heard loud and clear. However, Pan was no longer where he had been standing only an instant before, and he was now nowhere to be seen. Resume. Paul looked at the man in white in silence for a few moments longer, before he finally asked, How can I tell the story of your life from the perspective of those who know you, when I do not know who you know? Asked Paul with a look of confusion on his face. By finding and meeting my friends. By listening, by learning, and by writing down everything that my friends tell you about me, replied the man in white with an assured smile. But how? Where do I find them? When do I find them? How do I find people who I don't know? asked Paul. Well, I might be able to help you in that regard. However, when it comes to the writing of my story, post-Olympus of course, I'm afraid that I cannot help you there. I'm not that much of a storyteller, truth be told. You, however, have wonderful penmanship, may I say, 
and I already know that you are the one to tell my tales, said the man in white, as he put his right hand on Paul's right shoulder and squeezed it gently. I believe in you. But where do I start? How do I begin? asked Paul, as he considered the man in white's potential assignment. So you'll do it? asked the man in white with a wide-eyed expression of delight, as he continued to keep a hold of Paul's right shoulder with his right hand. I... I would love to, said Paul, reticently, and with a nervous smile. Wonderful! Magic! replied the man in white jubilantly, as he patted Paul on the shoulder. And I already have the perfect first person in mind for you to talk to and to ask about how they know me, said the man in white, before he began to guide Paul through the forest of the, to the tree line. Who? asked Paul, as he walked alongside the man in white. Someone whom I have known since she was a girl. Someone who I believe has been waiting to tell her story about her and me all her life, said the man in white with a look in his eye that clearly showed that he was currently lost in thought about someone in particular. What's her name? asked Paul, as his interest in the man in white's potential biographical assignment began to rise. Her name is Susie Elizabeth Eccleston. She lives right here in England, and she... she... She is one of my best friends, and I know that when you meet her, you are going to get on like a house on fire, as they say, replied the man in white immediately. Paul and the man in white finally reached the tree line of Chantry Woods. However, before they left the forest completely, Paul had one or two last minute questions to put to the man in white. Why? Why are you doing this? Why now? Is this the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning? The man in white took a moment to take in a breath and to consider what Paul was asking him, and then, without any further hesitation, the man in white replied, You tell me. God is always in the details, as is the devil. Who am I? Why do I do what I do? Everything is always a matter of perspective. When you look at me, you see David Bowie, right? But say you were blind and you had no idea what David Bowie looked like. If you were that person, then I would always be a man in black. And every action that I took would always be one taken in the dark. I'm not the first and I will not be the last to have made the choice to decide the fate of others and to put their best interests before my own and above all else. I'm not the first, and I am most definitely will not be the last, to try the hand at playing God. The truth is, of course, is that there is no journey. We are arriving and departing all at the same time. David Bowie The man in red. I would do anything. It's Christmas. The snow has been falling for days. The air is as cold as ice. 
as is the ground beneath my feet, which is in fact ice and as slippery as a man-made ice rink, or like walking upon the frozen water of a pond or a small lake. Even when the night is as dark and as black as can be, as the bright stars sparkle above and as the moon shines like a searchlight in the sky, the pure whiteness of the snow can clearly be seen. Light and dark, a black sky and a white ground, duality. When the snow starts to fall heavily, it's sometimes giant frozen flakes can even make a man in black turn almost white when those flakes land upon him. I've always loved this time of the year. I've always loved watching the fall of snow as it silently drifts down from the sky above and slowly but surely turns everything white and makes everybody feel as if they have been transported to the North Pole. I have always known and I have always believed in the true meaning of Christmas. To give from the heart to those who matter the most to you and to be thankful for what and who you have in your life as opposed to what and who you do not. When I was a kid, I vehemently believed and defended my belief wholeheartedly in Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Old Saint Nick, and I was addicted to every movie that featured Father Christmas. Santa Claus the movie in particular was one of my favourite films and a strong staple of my childhood. Every Christmas Eve night, I would follow all the expected and customary acts that came with believing in a powerful, magical, true saint of selflessness and giving. I left out a mince pie on a plate in front of our fireplace, along with a glass of cold milk and nine individual carrots, all laid out on a tray as the flames of our fire that always burned for all the winter hours of my childhood from sunrise to sunset, warmed our living room and made it as inviting as could be. Of course, the mince pie was for Santa, as was the glass of milk, and the carrots were for Santa's reindeer. And of Santa's reindeer, Rudolph was always my favourite when I was a child. Maybe it was the fact that he had a shiny red nose. Or perhaps it was because of all Santa's reindeer, to my knowledge, Rudolph was the only one to have his own solo song dedicated solely to him. I was a believer in many things when I was a child, including the Easter Bunny, God, and like I said, Santa Claus. However, throughout my life, my beliefs have been challenged, and as a result, my personal beliefs have changed somewhat as I have gotten older. Since I was a child, I have heard it said, never meet your idols. Why? I always used to ask. Because you might be disappointed if and when they do not live up to the picture of them that you have in your mind. Well, that was what my dad always used to say. But I think he only told me that when I was a kid because of the bad experience that I believe he had when he met his favourite singer when he was a kid. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I do know that my dad's favourite singer was and has always been the one and the only Johnny Cash. And I think that this bad experience was one that my dad had had with Johnny when the notorious Man in Black was going through a bad time in his life. 
However, my dad still thinks the man in black is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And on occasion, he can still be heard singing and listening along to the one and the only Johnny Cash. My dad had his man in black in the form of Johnny Cash. And I too had my own man in black, you could say, in the form of David Bowie. David Bowie was and still is a friend of mine. In fact, it was David Bowie, or at least an avatar of David Bowie's spirit, who came to me a few years ago and taught me about life, death and the true meaning of Christmas. When I was 35, my mum was diagnosed with cancer. It was a week before Christmas when my mum was rushed into hospital after it was discovered that she had cancer from a random blood test that she had taken at our local doctor's surgery. Everything happened so quickly. One minute my mum was happy, smiling and seemingly well and in high spirits and the next she was being admitted to hospital and being given chemotherapy and losing every follicle of her curly brown hair. It was devastating. It was heartbreaking. It was almost soul destroying. It was the biggest test of my beliefs and the hardest time of my life. Not to mention the worst experience of my mum's life because I had never seen my mum so frail, so listless and in so much pain. Seeing my mum how she was then, hooked up to wires, IVs and unable to walk was unbelievably terrifying. On my 36th birthday, I visited my mum in hospital. At that time, she was still bedridden and still undergoing regular courses of chemotherapy. And to this day, I can still remember holding her left hand and looking down at her beautiful face as she slept. And I still remember walking away from my mum's bedside for a moment and going over to the nearby window and looking out and up to the sky and then down at the paved garden courtyard area below and seeing a man dressed all in black sitting on one of the wooden benches and looking up and directly at me. The man in black smiled at me and then he gestured with his right hand for me to come down and see him. I didn't recognise the man in black immediately for who he appeared to be. However, when I did in fact descend in the elevator and I walked out into the garden courtyard, it was only when I was standing eye to eye with him that I clearly saw and I truly believed that the man whom I had seen was David Bowie. Hello, said the man in black immediately, as he extended his right hand and took a hold of my right hand and slowly shook it with a tender grip. Hello, I replied nervously. You, are you, I mean you're, you're, I asked with a noticeable stutter in my voice. Very happy to meet you, he replied with a big smile. Would you care to sit down, said the man in black, said David Bowie dressed all in black as he gestured to the bench with his left hand. Sure. I replied with a smile, as he and I released our grip of one another. I can't be long. I need to get back to my mum. She's sleeping at the moment, I said, as I looked from the man in black to the hospital window above where I had not long before been standing at, looking down at the spot where I was now sitting, 
And then I looked down and back at the man in black again, and I felt strangely drawn to his gaze, as if I were being hypnotised by his eyes. I know. I know. And I am terribly sorry. I am terribly sorry to hear about your mum, said the man in black, with a noticeable inflection of compassion and emotion on his face. Thank you. But what can you do? I replied solemnly. What can any of us do? It's life, right? Life. It gives with one hand and takes away with the other, I replied, as I could already feel tears begin to bubble up in my eyes, and as I felt my mind begin to wander, and I began to feel pain and anguish deep inside me. You know, I sometimes think that God has got it in for all of us. Why? Because how could anybody possibly hurt the people closest to them who they claim to love and had made in their own image? How could anybody treat their so-called children like that? I caught my tears as best I could as they rolled down my cheeks. However, you can never stop every tear from making it all the way from your eyes to the ground. Life does not always make sense. But does, that does not mean that there isn't a reason for everything, said the man in black quietly and thoughtfully. That is what I always believed. That I, that we are all here for a reason. But, but when I look at my mum, I ask myself and anybody else who is listening, why? Why? And what possible reason could there be for my mum, who never hurt anybody in her life, to have cancer? What loving God would make that a reality for somebody? I asked angrily, as my tears fell uncontrollably. The man in black took a hold of my left hand in his right, and he squeezed it tightly, and he said in a soft-spoken tone of voice, I don't know. But I'm here to tell you that things do not have to be this way. That is why I'm here. I'm here to make a difference. I'm here to help you and I'm here to help your mother. I'm here to remind that almighty God above, that all the gods whom I have known all my life, that all who can should do all that they can do, as much as they can, and save as many people as they can from living a life that could be so much more, said the man in black in an impassioned tone of voice as he stared into my eyes. And why would I do such a thing? Why would I take on the mantle of being humanity's herald and saviour? Why would I choose to save humanity instead of just letting everything just play out as if I were a spectator at a football match. Why would I choose to do what others are afraid to do? Because I, like everybody, have a duty. No, a responsibility to use my gifts to their potential. If I told you who I really was, and where, to whom, and when I was born, you probably wouldn't believe me. 
I've changed a lot since those days. Since the days when gods were being born left, right and centre. The world has changed and gods do not take as much interest in this world as they once used to. However, some things never change and neither do I. I've always been a rebel. I have been one since the day I was born, said the man in black, as his green eyes sparkled and then changed colour slowly to every colour of the rainbow until he had one white left eye and one black right eye. Who... who are you? I asked nervously. I'm here to answer your prayers. I'm here to save your mother. Why? Because that is what you want the most in this world. All right. That is what you said when you were lying in bed last night before you fell asleep. That is what you asked for every day and every night. What you asked God for when you walked into St. Martin's Church the other day. The God might not have been listening, but a God definitely was. Me. And I'm here to do what you ask, said the man in black, as he smiled warmly. What do you mean? I asked, however, not completely comprehending at the time what exactly the man in black was suggesting, nor what he intended to do. Why save your mother's life, of course, replied the man in black immediately. I'm here to free her of her cancer and bring her back to life. I'm here to give her and your family your lives back said the man in black with a look of complete and utter pure sincerity in his monochrome eyes. What? How? Who? Who? Who are you? I stuttered nervously in reply. What? I? Me? We? You and I are going to do it. Us. And all I need from you is to believe, 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 Mark, that there is an answer to every question, a cure to every illness, a solution to every problem. I want you to ask me to save your mother. And after you do, I will do just that, said the man in black with a constant smile. But how? How? Why? I asked, completely stupefied by what the man in black had just said and what his words meant. It isn't a matter of how. There is no question of why. Just ask. Ask me for what you want and I promise you that I will make your wish come true and I will save your mother and I will cure her of her cancer replied the man in black, with a look of intensity in his eyes, and with an expression on his face that I could not read clearly at the time, but which I now realise must have been an expression of anticipation. Yes! I yelled loudly into the air, my voice echoing and rebounding over and over again off of every one of the four walls that surround us both. Yes! Please! Please, 
I said, now even more in tears as I instantly reached out and took a hold of the lapels of the man in black's long black coat. I'll do anything, anything. I was exploding in every direction with emotion and tears. That was my initial and instant reaction to hearing and fully understanding the weight of the man in black's words. I can tell from your reaction that you have been waiting a long time for someone like me to come along so that you could say what you have just said. I can save your mother. I can cure her of her cancer, but before I do and before I can, I need something else from you, asked the man in black as he looked into my eyes, as he too looked into my soul and walked around the spaces of the memories in my mind. What? I asked in a hushed tone of voice, as I could feel the man in black in my head. I will do what you ask, and in return... I ask you to return the favour, the man in black replied, as he took a hold of my wrists with his hands. I would do anything, anything. If you can help my mum in any way, I would do anything. I don't care who you are, but whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever you can do, however you can help me, however you can help my mum. Please, I pleaded with tears in my eyes. As you wish, said the man in black, just before he disappeared in a flash of light. When my vision cleared, I discovered that I was again sitting at my mother's bedside and staring at her beautiful face as she continued to sleep. She looked so peaceful, so angelic. I wondered what had just happened. Who was the man in black? Who had I just been talking to? Had he simply been a daydream? Had I just imagined him? Had I just had a dream about David Bowie? Had he just been a fiction that I made up? But another thought also occurred to me as I sat there. What if he was real? And if he was real, where was he now and what did he want? Could he, could he possibly, possibly have, have? And that was when my mum's eyes suddenly flickered open and she looked right at me. She reached out her right hand and took a hold of my right hand. And then with a smile, as a tear slowly fell from her right eye, she said, I've missed you. Hermes It was just after midnight, just as the time and the alarm clock near our bed changed from 23.59pm to 0000am, when Christmas Eve night changed into Christmas Day morning, when I got up out of bed and I went downstairs. At 8 o'clock the night before, the kids and I, my daughter Claire, who was seven years old at the time, and my son, David, who must have been about five, had laid out a plate of gingerbread biscuits and a mince pie, as well as a tall glass of milk for Santa Claus to eat while he was stopping off at our house to deliver presents for our family. My wife, Melissa, was still fast asleep, 
as were our kids as they lay tucked up in bed as I slowly walked down the creaking staircase to the ground floor of this old house where we were staying the night. I opened the door to the living room as slowly as I could so as to not wake anybody up. You might ask, what was I doing awake and walking around so late, so early? Well, I was just... I was just intending to clean up and finish off anything that Santa might not have been able to finish before he jetted off, you could say. Like I said, that was my intention. However, what actually happened when I opened the door to the living room, as the embers of our fire continued to glow, and as the lights and the ornaments on our Christmas tree continued to sparkle and shine, I instantly came face to face with a man in a red suit. However, the man in the red suit who I saw was not Santa Claus. In fact, the man in red who I saw was even better than Santa Claus. And when I saw him sitting there in the armchair that sat just to the right of the fireplace and bathed in the light of the twilight, I was so overjoyed and so overwhelmed that I almost fainted. Oh my God, it's you, it's you, I said with a whisper, as I put my right hand over my mouth in a genuine expression of complete and utter shock and surprise, because in all honesty, I wasn't expecting to find anybody, nor see anybody, especially not him, the man in bl well, the man in red, as he appeared then who was wearing a bright red suit, a red shirt, a red tie, complete with a very shiny pair of red leather shoes. As soon as he saw me, he immediately began to smile, and then he said in a hushed tone of voice, What took you so long? I... I... I stuttered, as I just stood there in a dreamlike state of bewilderment. I've already had the mince pie and three of the cookies that you left out. I'll let the other guy who was here before me have the milk. I'm not a fan, to be honest with you, said the man in red, who looked like David Bowie with a smile of amusement on his face. The other guy? I asked myself with a smile, though at first I was a little puzzled about the identity of who he could be talking about until I realised who it was that he was referring to, Santa Claus. I chuckled a little at the man in red's playfulness. Who is this man? I wondered. Even after all this time, I still don't know who he is. The same man who appeared as if out of nowhere five years ago, who cured my mum of her cancer and then disappeared without a trace. At the time, everybody thought that my mum's cancer suddenly going into remission was a miracle and unprecedented. However, I knew better, and I knew had who had been responsible, and who the thanks should be bestowed upon. I'm... Um, I'm sorry. I just... I just... I wasn't expecting you. I wasn't expecting you so early. Nor did I know that you knew where I lived, I said jokingly, 
while simultaneously questioning why the man in red was here and also how he got into the house with so much ease. Well, I do like to make a surprise entrance if and when I am able. And I hope you appreciate that I changed my attire just for you, said the man in red as he smiled and patted down and smoothed away any of the potential wrinkles of his fine and vibrant red suit. For me? Why? Why me? I asked as I walked towards the man in red. Well, for starters, it's Christmas, replied the man in red. And also, well, because I'm here for a reason, said the man in red, as he gestured to the armchair that faced the one that he was currently sat upon. I have no doubt about that, I said with a smile, as I sat down in the armchair, as the man in red continued to stare at me unwaveringly as I did so. So, how are things? How is life? asked the man in red with a wide smile. Life? Life is good, for the most part, I replied, with a genuine expression of joy and happiness on display for the man in red to see. And your family? They are all well and good, asked the man in red, as he picked up the nearby empty glass of milk and gave it a hesitant smell before putting it back where it came from. My family? Yes. Yes, they are. They are all well and doing great. And while I've got you here, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving my mum, I replied, almost in tears. My pleasure, replied the man in red quietly. How long has it been? asked the man in red, as he looked me straight in the eye. Five years? Yeah, it's been five years since you last appeared to me and beckoned to talk to me in the hospital garden. So much has happened, but it almost feels like everything that has happened only happened within a split second, I replied with a smile, but with a feeling of unease, you could say. Why? Perhaps I was just anticipating what the man in red was about to say before he said it. Where are we? asked the man in red, as he looked around at our twilight surroundings. This is my parents' house, and this is the house where I grew up in as a child, I said, as I too looked around at the living room that had not changed that much since I was a child. And where are they now? Where, where is your mother? asked the man in red, as he looked at me intently. They're staying at my sister's house for a few days, but they'll be here this afternoon, as a matter of fact, for Christmas dinner, I replied nervously. Are you okay? asked the man in red, as he continued to stare unflinchingly at me. I, I... I feel a little nauseous, to tell you the truth, I replied, as I held my stomach and I could feel something bubbling up inside of me. I'm sorry. I truly am. But maybe I can help cure you of your feeling of unsettlement, said the man in red, as he stood up from his armchair and then looked down upon me. 
The man in red then knelt down on the floor and took a hold of both of my hands that were laid down flat upon my lap. And then, and then, something extraordinary happened. I saw flashes of memory. I heard the echoes of voices. I smelt the aroma of so many different things. Flowers, perfume, a freshly cooked apple pie. And then... And then, the man in red and I were standing upon a mountain and looking down at a sun-kissed expanse of rock, trees and silence. We were somewhere I did not recognise. However, when I turned my head to look at the man in red, I could see from the smile on his face that he knew exactly where we were and that he knew this place very well. Slowly but surely, the more that I stared at the man in red, the more that I witnessed another layer of the facade that he constantly wore fade away. I watched the man in red's attire change from red to green to blue to white to grey to black until finally he was standing tall and no longer wearing the mask of David Bowie. In fact, he was no longer wearing anything at all but a metal hat with wings upon it. I just stood looking at him, aghast, because he no longer looked anything like he had on the two previous occasions that he had appeared to me. His face was different, and another difference was the fact that he was now naked from head to toe. Who are you? I asked, as I finally found my voice again. Oh, I think you know, replied the man in nothing, for want of a better way to describe this athletic-looking naked man. Do I? I asked. Of course you do. You are currently in my mind, so I would say that you know me better than anybody right now replied the man in. Does my nakedness disturb you? he asked, his voice now sounding as if he was speaking English but with a European accent, I guessed at the time. I'm inside your head? I asked, with wide-eyed amazement. How? Why? Well, because I wanted to be honest and open with you. And what better way to expose what is inside of you to someone than to show them who you are on the inside? As you see me now is how most people who know me have seen me and would expect me to appear. However, it has been many years since this inner reflection of myself has seen the light of day. These days I am more partial to appearing as my hero, David Bowie. But I know for a fact that you must already be aware of that, said the naked man wearing the winged hat, who I now realised was in fact the Greek god, Hermes. Oh my god, you're him, aren't you? I said, in a state of utter amazement. You're really him? I asked as my realisation of this man's true identity began to change my attitude, the way that I saw him and my opinion towards this... this God. As I said, who you see before you is merely a reflection of who I am, 
who I was. However, I'm no longer so one-dimensional, and I can no longer be judged nor expected to act as so. After all, is not our face merely a mask that we all wear to either disguise or accentuate who we are and what we are on the inside? Explained the man. Explained Hermes. I can go anywhere. I can see everything. I can believe new things. I can be the true messenger that I was always meant to be said Hermes with a beaming smile as the sun glistened off his shiny metal hat and as he closed his eyes and as he opened his arms wide as if he were in a state of ecstasy. Where? Where is this place? I asked as I looked around at what appeared to be high atop a mountain somewhere. This is where it all began. This is where I was born. This is where I took my first steps. This is where I go back to when I am feeling nostalgic. However, not as nostalgic as to ever consider going back home and back to the dominion of my father, explained Hermes, as he slowly opened his eyes to see his surroundings. Your father? You mean, I replied, and I was about to speak Hermes's father's name. However, that was before Hermes suddenly rushed over to me within the blink of an eye and he put his right hand over my mouth. Never, never speak his name. Ever, said Hermes, with a look of fiery intensity in his blue eyes. But why? I asked after Hermes finally took his hand away from my mouth. Because names have power, more so than you may realise. Even here, a name can open doors to unwanted places where I choose not to return to, explained Hermes with a slight grimace. I'm sorry, I didn't know, I replied with regret. No matter, said Hermes with a smile, but yes. This place is very special to me. Why? Why have you brought me here? Why? Why have you literally exposed yourself to me? Why? Why have you shown me your true face? Why? Why do you do what you do? Why? Why? Why us? Why me? I asked as I stared into Hermes's hypnotic blue eyes. You know, over the centuries, I've been asked that same question many times. Why? By my father, by my family, by my peers, by the countless people whom I have met and by the many friends that I have made. Why? Why? But, do you know what? I've never asked that question of myself. Why? said Hermes, with a smile of delight, and then he let out a chuckle of laughter that echoed all around. 
Because I've learned the hard way why it is important to follow your instincts. It may not always be the wisest course of action. However, in my experience, it is the most satisfying way to live your life. For so long, I did what was expected of me. I've told this story to so many people over the years and in many different ways and in many different languages. But in every iteration and version, my constant wish is for people to understand what it means and why it is important for everyone to live their life to its potential. Among other things, I used to be the messenger of my father the gatekeeper to what is to come for the dying and for those who had given up on life. But over time, I began to realise that all I was doing was wasting time and not truly contributing to this wonderful opportunity to live a limitless existence of constant discovery and rediscovery. You could say that I was a prodigy from the moment that I took my first step out of the cave where I was born and into the light of the world. And you could also say that I was a born virtuoso who invented the constantly evolving and ever-changing magic that is music. But I digress. However, what I would personally like to be remembered as is somebody who truly helped people when they needed a hand to hold so that they could get through a time in their life when they were tested like no other, explained Hermes, as his blue eyes met mine and I saw fireworks of light and colour explode within his irises. You know, in all my life, the only other person besides myself who never once questioned me or my actions and who always believed that I could do anything and everything that I put my heart and my mind to, was the one person who brought me into this world, and who was a goddess in her own right. My mother, said Hermes, with a warm smile of love and recollection. Your mother? I asked quietly. Yes, my mother. I truly would not be who I am without her nor without her guidance and her unwavering and incredible belief in me, explained Hermes, as his face conveyed a multitude of expressions simultaneously, one of which I recognised as sadness. Who was she? I asked, as the image of a beautiful blonde-haired woman flashed before my eyes. Her name? Her name was Maya, said Hermes in a downbeat tone of voice, as his face now expressed only sadness, the same look that those who have lost someone dear to them wear when they think that nobody is looking. Where is she? I asked, as I stared directly into Hermes's eyes. She... She is no longer with us, neither here nor there. She is... She's nowhere, said Hermes, as he stared back at me, before he quickly turned his face away to direct his attention upon the green fields below that looked as if they stretched all the way to the horizon. What happened to her? I asked with concern, 
as I began to walk around Hermes so that I could look him in the eye again. I... I lost her. I... I couldn't save her. She... She always believed in me. Always. But when the time came for me to believe in my mother and be there for her when she needed me, I... I... I didn't. I couldn't, said Hermes, as he began to cry from both eyes simultaneously, a storm of tears. She was born right here on Mount Kilini, as I was. She was the oldest of seven sisters, and she was the most nurturing and loving mother this world has ever known, said Hermes, as he wiped the tears from his eyes. She was your mother, and you, you are, you are, yes, I am Hermes, the messenger of the gods, able to travel anywhere, anytime, within the blink of an eye. I am the guide to the underworld, and yet not even I had the power to save my mother, nor bring her back from the dead, said Hermes angrily as his eyes momentarily flashed a fiery red. No, I mean, I mean that if you are Hermes, and if I'm right, then your father is... Do not say his name, shouted Hermes. I won't, I replied immediately. But, but if you are who you are, and if your father is who he is, then... Then your mother, Maya, she must have been a god too. A goddess? But if she was, then how... How can a god... How can a goddess... Die? I asked, with regret in my voice. A question that I couldn't help myself from asking which I now realise must have been one of the hardest questions Hermes may ever have been asked in his life. When you take away a god's power, when you take away that which sustains them, when you take away a god's belief in themselves, they too are just as vulnerable and prone to pain and expiration and death as anything or anyone that is susceptible to harm, explained Hermes solemnly. I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. I... I didn't know, I replied quietly. What? That a god is not as invulnerable as you thought? That even a god can bleed and die. Gods may not be human, but we sometimes suffer the same pains and the same fate as a human. However, when we die, there is no place for us. There is no underworld where we go. For a god, death truly is the end of the path, the end of the road, the final destination from which there is no coming back from. 
snapped at Hermes as he sat down on the ground, and while cross-legged, continued to look out to the slowly dwindling light that glowed in the distance where the land met the sky. I still speak to her, though, and she will always be right here, giving me all that I could ever need, said Hermes, as he put his right hand on his chest beneath where, in a human body, he would expect to find a beating heart. I decided to follow Hermes's example, and I sat down next to him, and I too fixed my gaze upon the light on the horizon. There she is, said Hermes with a smile, while continuing to stare straight ahead. There's who? I asked, as I turned my head to the right to look at his face in profile. Maya. My mother. There she continues to shine, and she always will, said Hermes, as I watched a single tear fall slowly down his left cheek. Why... why am I here? Why did you come to me five years ago? Why did you come to me now? I asked though I had begun to believe that I knew why he had chosen me and why he had cured my mother of her cancer. To... to give you a gift. To... to give you a Christmas present. To give you an insight into a world that lies behind a thin veil. And also because I didn't want to be alone when I wanted to remember my mother, and I thought that you of all people would understand how lucky each and every one of us are to have had and to have been born to our most loving of mothers. I know that you understand because I heard your prayers. I heard your voice as it echoed throughout eternity. A simple and heartfelt SOS. And when I heard your voice, and when I knew what you were going through, and what you were asking for, how could I not come to your aid and save your mother's life? What is the point of a loving God if he does not do all that he can for those in need whenever he can? Do no harm. Heal if and when you can. For me, that is a way of life. However, it took me a long while to truly come to the realisation of why I am who I am and what I've always been meant for, said Hermes, as he slowly turned his head to the side to look me in the eye once again. Slowly, the light all around us dimmed even more until finally Hermes and I were sitting alone in a world of darkness. I'm sorry, I said, as I looked at Hermes. However, I could only truly make out the two pinpricks of light that sparkled in his eyes. No need to be sorry, replied Hermes quietly. And thank you. Thank you for being here with me, 
It means more to me than you could ever know. See you in another life, my friend. Goodbye, said Hermes, before the light in his eyes disappeared and all that I saw was black. No one is ever alone. It's both funny and sad how fast time goes by. One minute you're a kid riding a roller coaster at a theme park and not even feeling an ounce of terror. In fact, it can be the thrill of fear that drives you to keep riding that same roller coaster over and over again, day after day, year after year. And the next minute, which can take place decades later, when you arrive at that moment in your life when you are stopped in your tracks and you have to question your own mortality and what you have done with your life, that is when the cost of life truly hits home. When you are young, you regret nothing. However, as you get older and you start looking back on the memories of your life, you can start to feel an overwhelming number of regrets. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd said that or not said that. I wish I'd been there. And I am no different. But there are also so many things from my life that I do not regret doing and they outnumber those things that I wish I, that I had done differently. I would gladly take back the arguments that I'd had with some people and be more understanding if I could go back in time and relive those moments again, especially those that I had with people who are no longer here, but who I will always remember. One person who I will never forget is the one person besides me who knows exactly how it feels to have lived so long with a mind full of regret but who also tried to redeem themselves every day by doing good for others. When I was a child, I was spoiled, and I had everything a child could ever want or need. A loving mother and father, and a family who truly cared for one another. Above everything else in my life, my family were who made me the happiest I'd ever been. My wife my children, my parents, my sister and her husband, my friends, my friend. Where has all the time gone and where are all the familiar faces I used to know? Life. Sometimes you've got to grab it with both hands and keep a hold of it and make the most of it because over time it slowly disappears before your eyes and through your fingers until there is nothing left. By now, I bet you're wondering what happened. More accurately, I bet you're wondering what happened to him, to Hermes, to the man in black. Good question. And I have to ask you if you know where he is right now. I would greatly appreciate it if you would give him a message from me. You see, it's been 42 years since I last saw him. 42 years. And the last time that I saw him was when I was inside his mind. I'm in my 80s now. 
and I have not seen hide nor hair of him for half of my life. Every day I wonder what happened to him after he literally exposed himself to me and revealed to me that behind his enigmatic and debonair man in black persona and behind the smiling mask of David Bowie lies a god who only wanted to do good wherever and wherever he went. He showed me something that I will never forget. A world of infinite possibilities. He gave me something that I will never take for granted. An eternal hope and optimism and the same vital necessities of life that we all need to keep us going in this sometimes crazy world of ours. I use the gifts that Hermes gave to me to inspire people to continue to give back and do good wherever they went. For 30 years, my wife and I were the directors of a charity, Never Alone, which gave back to people in many different ways, helping the homeless, finding the support for the mentally ill that they sorely needed. Our charity was set up to be a sanctuary and a refuge where those who had been subjected to abuse, both physical and psychological, could come to find a new direction and free themselves of oppression. Our children, David and Claire, still run that same charity. However, I believe that it was recently renamed No One Is Ever Alone. And I personally think that the name No One Is Ever Alone is a fitting name and would be greatly appreciated by one person in particular if they were still around. I sometimes wonder if he is dead and that is why I have not seen him in over 40 years. But then I think to myself, gods can't die. However, then I remember what Hermes told me about his mother, Maya, and I think to myself, gods can die. But do I really think he is? Do I really think that Hermes is dead? No, I don't. Which brings me back to what I would say to him if I ever saw him again, and the message that I would like to be passed on to him on my behalf. Firstly, thank you. Thank you for saving my mother and giving her life back to her, and gifting her with many years of happiness, health and laughter. Every day I miss her more than I could ever put into words. Secondly, thank you. Thank you for giving me all that you gave me when we first met and all that you showed me the second time that we met. You gave me something indescribable and I hope that I have faithfully followed in your footsteps and continued your great work of helping those in need when they need help the most. And thirdly, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for walking amongst us and not turning a blind eye nor a deaf ear to anybody. Your mother would be proud, I can assure you. I'm slowly nearing the end of my life and I do not have many more Christmases to look forward to, but it doesn't matter because 
I am truly thankful and grateful for the life that I have lived and for the people whom I have met. I have dreamed of seeing the man in black again and of shaking his hand and giving him a well-deserved hug and maybe one day I will. If not in this life, maybe in the world to come. Who knows? But I will continue to remain hopeful. Every Christmas I say a prayer and I give a thought to every member of my family, to those who are still alive and to those who have sadly long since passed on. And I always give a thought to someone else also, the special, powerful, influential God and angel of hope who I daily worship at the altar of, to Hermes. To my friend, Merry Christmas. I hope that wherever you are, you are happy and joyful and wearing your best suit, which for me would have to be the one which you wore on the night when you came to me and you told me your story. That Christmas Eve night and that Christmas Day morning when you were my man in red. To everybody who has followed this man's story from beginning to end, I would like to thank you also. I'm sure that I speak for everybody whose life has been changed for the better by the man within these words of mine when I say that his story deserves to be shared and retold to as many people as possible. And he may know that he is still thought of and worshipped as the God that he always was and the God that he will always be. See his face within your mind whenever you close your eyes. Whisper his name and share his message with the world. Keep alive his hopes and his dreams and he will never die. Believe in him and he will change your life. About Playing God I began writing the first story in the first chapter of this book in the summer of 2016, following the untimely death of one of our greatest and most gifted artists, icons, musicians and inspirations, David Bowie, who died on the 10th of January 2016. After he died, I was so shocked to hear of his passing, and like most people, I sought out his music and I listened to everything that he had ever made and created. And I also saw countless other artists and musicians paying their own personal and heartfelt tributes to David Bowie in any way that they could, through music, through art, and I too wanted to contribute something. I wrote a poem dedicated to and in honour of David Bowie after he died called Always the Starman and I shared it for other people to read. However, I was itching to write a new poem or a new short story that spoke about things that I wanted to say and that was when the initial idea for my story The Man in Black came to life and I began writing it. David Bowie walked into the first story of this book all by himself, just like the man in black does, and he naturally made himself at home in it and in the stories of this book he will always be. Throughout the writing of these stories, I listened to David Bowie's music continuously, and in doing so I hope that I have captured a part of his spirit. 
This is not a book about David Bowie per se, but it is a book that was inspired by him. I hope you have enjoyed listening to every story within over and over again. Mark Hastings, 2018 Always the Starman by Mark Hastings Now it is you who is the starman in the sky. Now you know the answer to the question, is there life on Mars? Now you can see just how much you made us all smile and how much you made us all dance. Now it will be the stardust of you that will fall to earth and make our minds sparkle like the stars at night. Now and forever you will be a hero for many and not just for one day. Now you can embark on your own space oddity. Now and forever, through sound and vision, you will speak to us and you will sing to us all from afar. Now that you have reached the centre of life's labyrinth, and as you now look back and touch earth from heaven with an outstretched hand, from one poet to another, this is my tribute to you, the starman of magic in the sky, who will always be the eternal and the immortal artist of life, David Bowie. Hermes by Mark Hastings Words give me wings, with belief I rise, when I dream I fly, while I live I love, while I love I fear nothing, Within my heart I feel deeply, within my mind I ponder infinitely. With open hands I hold a white dove of peace. Whether awake or asleep, I think and I am inspired with every breath that I take. Winter could never overshadow the summer within my soul. When I fall to my knees, I find within me the hopes and the gifts that embody the Greek god, Hermes. <laughs>